Hi everyone, welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. This is the final episode of our Xenogears story analysis. It's so, over. Joining us for this occasion, once again, Chris and Eric from Retrograde Amnesia. Welcome back, fellas. Hello. Hello, thanks for having us back. Hopefully you will uh, double our audience again, so <laughs> we appreciate <laughs> you having us on again. I hope so as well. Um, also, we have Patrick Holloman from the Game Design Forum, also director of the upcoming indie RPG Quartet. What's up? How you doing? Hi, great to be here. As always, talking about Xenogears, my favorite thing to do in life. <laughs> it's a fun thing to do. It's also an exhausting thing to do. So as I've told these guys before we get started, I think that I'm going to take mostly a back seat in this episode, let them uh, do the talking this time. If I can help it, sometimes I can't help it, but... Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it's all about the, the finer details of the game in which uh, you've played twice and I've played once, so... Right. Maybe the people who've played it a dozen times will have a little more clear knowledge on the subject. You're not hardcore until you've read the script twice. You know what? <laughs> that's, that's a fine point. Um, you're, no, you're not hardcore until you've read it in Japanese, which so I still didn't that's, do. Uh, my that's Japanese true. is not good enough. I, I, I can do like certain selections. I'm like, ah, oh, that's not what he said, but yeah. yeah, yeah. So last time uh, we left off with basically the ending of the game. Um, so we've gone all the way through the story. Yeah. But this podcast is mostly going to be focused on, we, we kind of hit up Patreon and the YouTube comments and our Discord to get yeah. some additional questions from the audience about uh, any areas of confusion people might have on the story, um, certain things that they felt like weren't answered, or, or maybe they're still, you know, confused mm. about. And just also anything people wanted to ask us to re-examine, um, having gotten all the way to the end now, um, and just additional questions that they want to ask. So this is mostly um, responding to comments uh, and questions from the audience on this one. but. Um, the reason that we've, we've brought on uh, Pat Holloman in particular is because there's a few um, really interesting points of analysis that, uh, that, that he's going to bring on here that I think are really interesting Good. Um, to kind of uh, bring in some more referential material, right? Some of the things that they were... I was wondering really? why Pat Holloman was here. I was like, <laughs> what are you doing here, dude? What's your deal? Yeah. Where'd you come from? Um, yeah, we would talk a little bit about Gnosticism and like... Oh, that'll be nice. Yeah, it's it's hard to understand Gnosticism without some background in ancient Greek philosophy. So perfect. I I wasted my college degree um, <laughs> being unemployable, and I'm here to give that wisdom to you. Well, great, great. And of course, with Chris and Eric, uh, now that we've actually finished the game, when when he had him on at the beginning, we were dancing around so many. I know, and it was things, like, let's right? talk about that later. <laughs> it's like, anyways, uh, additional things that they can add. Also, yeah, was... I actually want to start off with this. Were you guys going to say something? Sorry to cut you uh, off. No, I was just going to say it was really disappointing the first time we came on that we did not get to uh, tell you about every time we went to go visit Choo Choo and, and check her uh, dialogue <laughs> updates every time to see how she felt about every every scenario because I know you know I know Mike's a big fan. You know, um, oh, yeah, we didn't do that as much. I kind of avoided <laughs> Choo Choo for the most part. Yeah. Although I learned something interesting about Choo Choo in Perfect Works. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's the other part, too. The other thing we're going to do is talk a little bit about Perfect Works. That was kind of the homework for this week, yeah. just to read through that. We're not going to touch on every page. Let's just say that much. We're not going to do a page-by-page yes. page breakdown of Perfect yes. Works. No, but we, we will refer to it 
in answering exactly. some of these questions. That's, yeah, that's perfect. And uh, I'm definitely not frantically things. opening a new tab on my browser to bring up perfect works. <laughs> <laughs> not that's not why the screen is bright. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Um, one thing that uh, it, it's actually been requested a couple times in the comments for us to talk about, but I purposefully did not talk about it in our podcast because I wanted to send people to Retrograde Amnesia's podcast um, because this is where I heard this for the first time and my mind was completely blown. It was just so interesting. There is um, like an audio clip, uh, a vocal audio clip in the, the boss music of this game. Um, and people for a long, long time debated what is right. being said there. I learned this from these guys as well. Yes. Yeah. So yes. let me turn Very it over cool. to you guys. I can't believe you guys figured that out, by the way. That's <laughs> unbelievable. All we did was consult, uh, consult the, the ancient tome known as GameFAQs.com to figure this out. So. <laughs> okay, I can't believe they figured it out. Yeah, I'll give it to <laughs> I'll pass it over to Eric to, to explain how this came about. I'm glad you all brought this up because we didn't cite our proper sources the first time, and everything about Xenogears is communal knowledge. So now I can properly right. attribute uh, Wizard517 um, in October of 2016 for this post. Thank you, Wizard517. What a beast. Yes. Now everyone knows exactly who to thank. Who the fourth Shavat Sage. <laughs> this person said that Awesome Id 3200 first discovered a longer version of the same clip in the Command and Conquer Renegade game through a track and yep. ammo clip. I remember and that. And then another person made a topic uh, and made out the words, total sentence imposed is 10 years in the state prison and linked to a transcript of a CNN newscast from July 2004. That newscast broadcast documents of the death of Marlon Brando and took a look back at his life, and they found out the clip was from the trial of Dag Drolet, who murdered, who Marlon Brando's son murdered at some point, and the judge uh, was saying total sentence imposed is 10 years at his sentencing. Total sentence imposed is 10 years in the state prison. And the dialogue was drawn from a 2015 documentary called Listen to Me Marlon, based on Marlon Brando that is now available on Showtime. And that still doesn't answer the question of how this got into the game and, or where Matsuda actually heard it. And the best guess I've seen so far is composers would buy these CDs with just samples on them in the early 90s, that just random samples of English instruments, percussion, whatever. And he must have been listening to that heard it in English, not quite knew what the, the the words meant, but like phonetically liked how it sounded and just put it in the right. game. That's my Ooh. speculation. But like, if you know, Very if you trace cool. a butterfly effect back far enough, if a guy hadn't died in 1990, the song uh, Night of Fire would be totally different from what it is. Yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> that's pretty it's wild. really, really crazy. I, th yes. I think it has the same rhythm as the main phrase of Night of Fire. Dun, da 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 uh, and there's yeah. a total, total sentence imposed is, is it's similar. Is That's, yeah, you can get like a good beat. It's like it's just like a rhythmic sample type. I think he just probably heard the rhythm and was like, cool. Yeah. yeah. That's a good Two guess. Two thumbs up. That's a good guess. I like that. So anyways, that's why I held off talking about that because I wanted everyone to go check out Chris and Eric's podcast. Thank Do you. it again if you haven't yet. They're doing If Final you haven't Fantasy heard Eight enough right. of Xenogears. There's a whole other podcast that does the whole thing again from the <laughs> Maybe beginning. Maybe wait till next year. It's fine. <laughs> hey, sure, sure. Yeah, skip yeah. to season two. Yeah, wait a few months. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so let's jump into some questions here. Yeah. This first one comes from Zacharias. Uh, this is for Chris and Eric. Hey, this question is for Chris and Eric also. After completing the game, do you think Xenogears had the best cast of villains? 
out of the games that you have played? First of all, I think I know who Zacharias is. So I think he's a patron of ours as well. Zach? Mm. Yeah? Oh, okay, yeah. So, what's up? Uh, yes? Short answer, yes, right? Yeah, I mean, best for me is a subjective version of whatever I'm really into at the moment. <laughs> and, like, I think about Zenogears <laughs> a lot. And there's, like, a... There's a wide collection of villains who all have their own motivations for the most part. And the game kind of tears them down as it goes on until it reveals who the big bad is. Maybe, I think, if you can put it all together. But I don't know. If you can separate the complexity from the convolution from the actual like intention of what they were supposed to be, I'd, it's top tier, definitely. I, one thing that continues to shock me, and this shocked me the first time we went back and replayed it, and it shocked me when I was listening to your guys' podcast, I think mm. it was like it was episode eleven or twelve, and Kason was like, "Wait, who's Krellian again?" And I was like, "Wow, <laughs> like Krellian gets a lot of play in the second half of the game, yes, and yes. you don't mm. even get a glimpse of him until he is uh, no. uh, flying in the what was it called octopus trap? I think is the, <laughs> the way you yes. describe the, uh, the name yeah. of the ship. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Yep. And and for for the game to be able to introduce a villain so late in the game, and yet he be you know he'll he'll he ultimately becomes one of the more interesting villains in the game and probably the most interesting character in this video game right it, it's it, it's impressive they were able to pull it off because most of the time when you think about a villain that was introduced halfway through you you tend to ascribe that as a as, as a weak villain right typically the writing wouldn't be as strong yeah it's definitely a unique cast of villains like i can't i kind of can't believe they pulled it off one thing very well done one thing i think pat you said this to me on on twitter once or, or somewhere that every time Krellian is on screen, it's he's electric, and all of his dialogue is just—it's it, like it—it's it, it, a showstopper. You have to see what this guy's going to say. He's like an experiment, like no Tate Mai, the that with the Japanese that that um, the thing put before you, the edifice mm -hmm. you build up, which you know, hide your true opinion and be subtle and things like Krellian has mm -hmm. none of that, and like mm -hmm. he is he, to, to the degree that even English speakers are like, whoa, this guy is just an OG, like. He just absolutely says whatever is on his mind, exactly how he feels, doesn't care about what anyone thinks about it, just absolutely goes for the kill every time. Um, I think one of the reasons, though, um, why he, he can be characterized so fully in half of a game is that half of Xenogears is 80,000 words, which yeah. is, you know, uh, Final Fantasy VII is about 45,000 words, so... Well, the yeah. first Harry Potter book is 76,000 words, so... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I think the second Harry Potter is probably around 80. Yeah, um, it, I think I think I put it in the uh, Pride and Prejudice is like sitting in around like one eighteen something like that. I have a graph of it somewhere on my Twitter, yeah. but um, it's like it's right Xenogears is like halfway to a Tolstoy novel. Yeah. it's really long. that's wild. That is so dense. <laughs> yeah, and cool. you know another thing, and I'm gonna pick on Casey again because he, he was you know your your fresh experience with this game was you know it, it was it was nice to see, yeah, but well. there was a point when you were like I think I know who Groff is. And like, I think it's Faye's dad. And I was like, he's 25% of the way there. You know and what's dumb, though? <laughs> I, w I thought I was wrong as the scene played out at the end when Wiseman shows up. And I'm like, oh, Wiseman's Faye's dad, duh. Um, and, yeah. then it, then, and then they really threw me to the weirdest place I've probably ever been playing a game where I was like, I was right, but I don't get how. Yeah, I don't understand exactly. this at all. I don't like that I was right. And the way I thought I was right was wrong. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yes, and it, it, it works out really, really nicely because you can't like. I'm pretty sure it's impossible to be right about the identity of Groff. <laughs> I and, would say that's probably accurate, and that's that's even more insane because 
you get like all of his backstory, like a good chunk of disc two with all of the backstory of the uh, of all of the events of 500 years ago. You are literally seeing him turn into a villain. You're seeing him and Krellian turn into a villain simultaneously. Yet you have no idea how or why that's happening with uh, with him specifically. Right. All right. So dovetailing off that question regarding villains, and I think this will be a big one for Pat here. Um, I also copied down. Um, an excerpt from um, Perfect Works on this. So I'll read the question and then I'll read the Perfect Works passage and then I'll kind of pass it on from there. Uh, Jacob asks, Hey guys, uh, loving the Xenogers podcast, something I'm still confused about is what exactly did the Gazel ministry want with Deus? And how did that differ from what Emperor Cain wanted, if it did at all? So this is confusion as to what the villains want <laughs> um, and and where they align and where they don't. That's fine. It's what like they're great villains, but, but, but what, what exactly were they doing? <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, it's messy. It's very messy, which is realistic, right? Oh, right. Real it's villains incredibly realistic. Like so, if you look at like, you know, like politicians who are vilified today, like Thomas Jefferson, messy. Yeah. Um, right. That like, just look at his life. It's like, you'd be like, okay, the Gazelle ministry is in the shallow end of the pool in terms of messiness. But um, right. so... To understand the context of what the Gazel Ministry um, is, and right, right what before they you want. start, right before you start, yeah. Pat, uh, I want to just really quick read the passage from uh, please, Perfect please, because I have and my control F and the, set, and set the, the foundation, right? and then I'll and then I'll let you take over. What so, page is that, by the way? Oh, I didn't take down the page number. Killing um, me, unfortunately. Bro. <laughs> yeah, this is what I do sometimes when I don't care anymore. <laughs> so, um, it says. Those rulers of Solaris, Emperor Cain, and the 12 members of the Gazel Ministry, as well as Miang, while holding the same goal of resurrecting Deus, each side also has different thoughts. Cain does not desire the reforming of humans as parts for Deus, but rather that they be reformed to as, so as to be free from that fate. And so for that reason, he awaits the appearance of the contact and secretly wishes the destruction of Deus. This began to occur I think around the time of the war between Solaris and the surface 500 years ago, Cain started to kind of yeah. separate from what he yeah. wanted from the Gazelle ministry at that time. Okay, it goes on to say, on the other hand, Miang, as part of Deus, seeks to realize the full resurrection of Deus. Those humans she deems unworthy, she immediately sets about resetting in order to spur on reform, and as a result, causing the resurrection of an enormous perfect weapon. Having been born for this reason, Miang has no other goals. After an incredibly long time, the Gazelle are reborn as information and once again take up their desire for rule. Of course, this means not only rule of the surface, but invasion of other star systems using Deus as the ultimate weapon. While they cooperate with one another for the goal of resurrecting Deus, they also manage to use each other in the process. So, real quick summary of that. The Gazelle and this was kind of brought up in the scene with um, Kralian. They want to rule. They want to become God in a sense and go out into the stars yeah. and subjugate other planets and things like that. And Kralian rebukes them for that in that scene, right? Miang is basically just programmed to resurrect Deus. She cares about nothing else and she wants humanity to be sufficient parts for that, which is why all the resetting, all the um, you know wiping out humanity down to like 1% mm -hmm. of the population and starting over yeah, again. Yeah. Cain was originally in line with Gazel Ministry, but he's not anymore. Now he wants humanity to be free of that fate, which is why he's sending uh, 
why he's sending Satan right? out yeah. to like find the contact, right? Okay, go ahead, bet. So yeah, so their conflict, like the muddy conflict between all the various villain factions is a reflection of, um, of, of Gnosticism. So um, mm. in Gnosticism, you have the perfect creator of the universe, the um, God, the monad, what you will. There's not one orthodoxy in, in Gnosticism. Yeah, no, that's Give up any notion point. you have of having an orthodoxy yeah. in Gnosticism. Be like, that's not what I read. Okay, yeah, that might be true. Um, but anyway, um, one thing that Gnostic schools have in common is that there was a perfect creator of the universe um, and that he, from it or he emanated the physical universe, um, the flawed universe. And then in that universe, there was another being, a very powerful being, the Demiurge, which then was it fancied itself to be God, right? And tried to imitate God, but could only do so in a flawed way. So that relationship of the perfect world of ideas, which comes from Plato in the Timaeus, right. and then the flawed world the of physicality, um, the fallen world that we live in, um, that relationship defines all the villains in Xenogears. So um, in Xenogears, we have God, the monad, um, the wave existence, he, out of him, emanated through the Zohar, emanated into Deus, who then Deus said, well, I'm God, um, got a God complex. And then, but Deus was blown up by the Eldritch and created, and its backup system, Catamony, created, it, Zeus emanated, literally, physically emanated, Miang, the Gazelle, and Cain. Um, and then the Gazelle and Cain immediately set themselves up as God, just as Deus, Deus had done. So then, um, you know, Cain has the technical authority, Cain... From what it looks like in the game, Kane has um, absolute authority, but limited attention. Um, but then Gazelle, under him, created, they're like, well, now nah, we're God. You know, Kane, Kane is old, you know, whatever. We, we're going to be God. We're going we're gonna to pilot Deus. Deus is not going to pilot us. Um, they want the same thing, essentially, but they want to be the ones in charge. They want to be the CEO, not the, you know, the secretary. Um, and uh, so that's why they have enmity with Miang. Right, that they, they fight Miang because Miang is just literally Deus. She is just the robotic incarnation of Deus as well. Whereas they are a separate entity created biologically to restore and generate a bunch of biomass that can then go back into Deus. But they set themselves up a god. They're like, ah, nah. Just like the wave existence emanated Deus and the Deus emanated them, they're gonna say, ah, we're gonna we're gonna set ourselves up as God in a lower and even more flawed way. And um, that's also why all their plans fail, right? Like why Miang's plans mm -hmm. fail too. They keep resetting humanity hoping for a better version of humanity, they're never going to get it because right. just like the Demiurge, they can never create something which is not flawed. Um, the only good thing that exists, the only pure thing that exists in humanity on the Xenogears planet is what came from the wave existence, the Numa, um, the, the, the breath of life, which came from God or the Monad originally. Um, but you also see this, this, um, I won't go on for too much longer here, but you also see the, that, that relationship of, uh, um, someone, an underling, trying to set themselves up as God above the person who created or, or gave them power. You see that all the way down, right? Um, Ramses is given power, and then he wants to overthrow the, the Order of Solaris. And reform um, it in his... Yeah. Right, yeah. Shekhan is, is an underling in two senses. Yeah. He's an underling for Gebler and an underling of the King of Abba. He served the King of Abba as a, as a, um, a bureaucrat. He, yeah. he tries to overthrow both. Um, the ethos... They are underlings of Solaris that completely dependent on Solaris for supplies. They try and overthrow Solaris by getting to the Zeboim technology first. Um, so basically everywhere in the game you have 
some subordinate setting himself up as the as the god figure or major power, despite knowing that there's a higher order right there, like literally right there that he has to overthrow. So that's what the gazelle is doing. It's just a microcosm of this the the Gnostic struggle of as soon as I've been created, I'm going to set up my own increasingly flawed order in which I am God. Um, and that's why they fight against Cain. And that's why they fight against me because they want to be the boss. Yeah. Cool. That's actually really uh, a really interesting uh, take on that because there's yeah. the, the game does this in sort of multiple ways where it does like microcosms. It like takes yeah. a thematic element and yes. then it like represents that conflict on a bunch yeah. of different levels. The idea so of like, that is a fractal. Basically yeah. it's a fractal that's, that is, is you zoom in, but you're still saying the, seeing the same pattern. Yeah. And then you zoom in even more in the pattern, and it's just the pattern again. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't matter at what scale, you're seeing the same pattern. Right, so like you take Faye's um, you know, whole hang-up with fragmentation, right? Mm-hmm. Like his need for wholeness. And you go yeah. all the way up to Deus, who is also physically fragmented. Yes. And yes. is searching for wholeness. Yes. And like, it's like that conflict is represented on like right. every level Every that's, scale of the that's game. fascinating, and that's yeah, and not even easy graph, to do. Right? Yeah, graph. Oh yeah, graph too. too. Yep. But he's seeking profane wholeness instead of a holy wholeness, which is well, what Sophia and and, and as, Faye are also as, and, and the wave as, existence as well, right? Yes, the wave existence yes. is also looking to return. He's lost yeah. and is looking to re put himself exactly back in the, the thematic. The thematic material is very like focused and and consistent, and it's very clear. They knew exactly what they were trying to say. And yeah. they represent that everywhere, it, both with like the Gnostic stuff that, that Pat is talking about, talking about the all the psychoanalytic stuff. Yeah, it, it, it's not. They, there's almost never just one reference. It's like they they show that in so many different in a levels. ton. Yeah, yeah. It's really the way cool. the way that I, I like that the read of the Gazel Ministry as like uh, an imperfect emanation from from Deus, because not only do we do we do we know that just because of the structure of the of the game but we also see it play out because i think one of the reads that you and i got eric is that these guys were although they seemed like this this shadowy council they were kind of dumb and and they were constantly yes. taken advantage of by yes. those that were that were above them so the, yes, you yes. know it's interesting that like their their imperfection shows in the way that they uh try to uh, obtain power so and and, and Pat brought this up to me in a, in a DM on Twitter, but Deus is the same way. Like, Deus can't make the Seraph Angels correctly. He has to have um, Trellian step in with the <laughs> nanomachines to, like, right. actually get them to not be terrible be zombie usable. wells exactly. and make them into the weapons they're supposed to be, right? And, and the ultimate source of the knowledge of the, that Krellian uses, I mean, Krellian's just a user. Um, yeah. Faye and Ellie created that, right? right. Faye and Ellie, because mm-hmm. like, I guess some of Faye's superpowers and Ellie's superpowers can manifest as intelligence, yeah. right? Um, so they were inspired by God to create Emerelda, and that's that's right. the power that Deus is abusing. Yeah, it kind he of explained that. that in Perfect Works a little too, where it was like um, Faye, as the contact, can make a wish, a desire within his mind that can then the the Zohar, what the um, the wave existence can then somehow work things around to find the the correct. Um, way for that to happen yeah. right with the, the time the, compression but not not the, ff8 time <laughs> compression what <laughs> the will of the wave existence, yes yeah and then manifest. it kind of becomes manifest for Faye just based on you know something that he wanted initially 
which is actually the most Gnostic thing, right? Gnosticism is not about physical yes. power and giant robots. It's about yes. knowledge. Yes. Um, so fake getting secret knowledge is exactly. the most Gnostic thing. Gnosis, yeah. right? The word. Yeah, right? the word Gnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Greek knowledge. Good stuff. Um, let's move on here to... Gosh, man, we you. could talk for three hours just about that. <laughs> but all right, let's move on. <laughs> we have a lot of questions to get through. Uh, Blue Mew asks, do you guys know if Mahan was worshipped during the time of Ramses II in Egypt? Um, oh, the snake, Mahan. Um, right, right, the, the god. snake god? Yeah. Uh, if so, well, the plagues brought on Egypt reflecting their gods being turned against them by the god of Moses and Mahan uh, would have been devoured by the serpent of God in that clash of sorcery against the divine. So he just wanted to know if that, anyone was aware if they it, worshipped Mahan during that time. That is fascinating. I like that uh, thought right there. I couldn't tell you if they did. Uh, one of the things about the Egyptian gods is they, they kind of came and went in prominence. Yeah. So sometimes one of the gods would be heavily worshipped and... You know, one of the pharaohs would prop up a god and say, everyone, this is, you know, where we should go. And then there would be a kind of a counter swing in the culture and let's move to this god. There were like 2,000 different gods in Egyptian, ancient Egyptian culture. And just thousands and thousands. And all of them had different prominence at different times and kind of came and went. So, but long story short, I don't actually know the answer to that. But I'm pretty sure that Mahan was, or Mehen is how they would pronounce it now or how they say it was pronounced. I'm pretty sure Mahen was still a prominent um, god at the time of Ramses II. Do you know about anything like that in your history studies, Pat? Um, no, but I, I, so I haven't seen the final episodes of you of this because we're recording this ahead of time, but um, yeah. a lot of, I wanted to point out a lot of the Mahans um, in, in that case and refers to, some of them are probably Cain and the Serpent, probably true, yeah. But a lot of the Mahan stuff is actually Mahanon, um, right. which is the sixth heaven where God resides, um, surrounded so, by his hosts of angels. Okay, that's fair enough. That works. More like so, the yeah. Jewish mysticism. Yeah, so that's, that's the not, like, so like, it, so, like that's where God's throne is. And that, that probably would be a little more accurate other than the fact that all of these, well, it's funny because you've got the Japanese game makers who are interpreting ancient history and then it's being translated to English and something like Mahan, which means one thing in ancient Egyptian, through yeah. the Japanese, the way it was presented, actually <laughs> they, was supposed to mean something else, like Mahanan. Japanese has a, a terrible paucity of sounds. So, oh, unfortunately, um, very limited in that regard. Yeah, yeah so it, 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 unless you know what they're talking about sometimes, you, especially like something with Hebrew, um, obviously oh, yeah. the, like, poor, poor um, um, Richard Honeywood trying to transliterate Hebrew <sighs> terms. Yeah. Um, like the, yeah. the Thames is actually the Tammuz. The um, Tammuz, yeah, yeah, the, river, yeah, the, yeah. the Hebrew month. We got corrected like, on that. Yep. Oh, yeah, really? It's, it's, just it's, it's, not, it's not the Thames, the river. It's, it's, it's based on one of the Jewish... But uh, it's pronounced, yeah. oh my gosh, that was even another layer deep. Yes. That's hilarious. Yeah, Tammuz. Tam right. So, he, I mean, like, Richard Honeywood <laughs> being a, a good, um, uh, you know, um, subject of the Queen would have thought Thames <laughs> River, but um, it is, in fact, Tammuz. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good to know. Okay, um... This one comes from Mr. Slyke. This is a good one, too. One thing the game kept vague was practically any information on the Diablos and their war. Um, oh, the Elru thing, right? 500? Well, the, the Diablos right? army that Graf goes and gets and, like, wipes out humanity with. Yeah, yeah. The, um, that era, though, right? Yeah. How they almost wiped out all life on the planet. Could you shine more light on that subject, if available? I cannot. So who, who wants Who this wants one? to take that one? <laughs> it's a big perfect works thing, so Eric's yeah. probably the guy, right? Yeah, I'm control-effing my notes on that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'll, I'll vamp for him while he's, he's doing that. Uh, okay. I, I feel course. like 
I don't know how many times the, the term Diablos is Diablos core is used in the game, but I feel like we got the most information of that from a random NPC in a library in Shavat. In Shavat, I know, yeah. not yeah, <laughs> yeah not huh. in the flashbacks at all. Yeah. Also, it, while he's it looking, it was a weapon of some sort, right? Yeah. Also, while he's looking, I just just some context. I mean, Eric will find more. I don't I don't have the, the perfect work stuff memorized, but um, the Diablos weapons are the original Starship Eldridge um, yeah. components of Deus. They were like what the scientists from Earth built as Deus's... Oh, and this is actually a good point for um, translation. What what in the game, Honeywood calls terminal weapons. Yeah. Um, you may be like, what's a terminal weapon? Drone. Yeah. So it, oh. um, De Deus like uses... Or? Right, Deus uses autonomous drones to launch like oh. this giant drone swarm strike. Deus's innovation is that it has this power source through which it can transmit, you know, God's energy to all these things to power them remotely. That's oh. the big innovation of Deus. Yeah, that's at least I what the, the elder scientists thought the, they were getting. Isn't the, the terminology score. that they use something like a, a weapon terminal interface or something? Yeah, like yeah. That? So then that yeah. so it just means that that Deus is the core that sends out these drones, like the Seraphs, like the Diablos. Yeah. Um, so the Seraphs are like the new version of what Diablos was in the yeah time the, of the, the, the the perf the essentially the perfect version. No. I think it's interesting that Perfect Works, or at least the translation that I read, said that Miang tested Deus's combat capability by pitting Diablo's core against the humans. So that wasn't right, necessarily that... like it just happened to kill ninety-six percent of the population. It was still part of a test for further refinement. Right. Yeah, because she... that was supposed to happen once Deus was resurrected. That then it w it was then going to test its strength against the humans that did not become wells. Mm. Yeah, that's well, an interesting idea. I don't know why they would have thought that was necessary, but. They're very I mean, perfect. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's <laughs> about that. It's about that same chain of being, right? Where it's like, um, you know, Dave's can only do flawed, horrible things. It can't yeah. do good things. It can't really create something beautiful. It just consumes. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, so like, so so it is. It is not a god by definition in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it, it can it can only sort of make flawed, you know, like zombie type things. You sure, human okay. beings are actually That's the descendants true. of. Of at least, so maybe, it, I guess it can least. it can consume something, and then it just poops out. Yeah, and then it's like this is my creation, and it's like, no, dude, that's that's not Pro progressively poopier versions. Of humanity. <laughs> Apparently, um, the main flaw with the Diablos core is they lack sufficient ether ability. Interesting. So they, they oh, don't I remember have reading the, that. Yeah. yeah. So so yeah. like, yeah, because that didn't evolve until um, five hundred years the five hundred years ago time yeah. period, right? They Which wanted was, to weed out the weak humans, so only those with ether abilities survived. Right. Yeah, mm. but they would have been packed for bear because they would have been using ten thousand years. Technology. And that was the that was the reason why ultimately the humans of that time were able to defeat the Diablos core. Right, was because they had. I, also, abilities. there's something about them running out of energy, like Graf. Just you know, like just I mean, they they, they were just sci-fi. They, they would have just fallen apart over time. So like Graf, Graf could could harness them and use you know his contact with his Zohar modifier to to power them for a while, but eventually they would fall apart. And that is also what happened too. Good to right. Anything else on that that you're finding there? No, most of my notes are um, fun facts in the form of questions I use to make a quiz to trick Chris. <laughs> a little bit um, scattered. I was tricked. I mean, bam, bam. yeah, I'll kind of just add to this by saying that um, it, it is a good question and there is a lot there that is kind of left unexplored, but as far as what I read in Perfect Works this week, they don't do a lot of elaboration. 
yeah. on the Diablo's core. There's, yeah. It's okay. kind of just one of those plot points that it, it's kind of just left vague, right? That's, ep that's episode four. They got to make the prequel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then we'll the, the last last thing I want to add is, um, if you want to know what a Diablos looks like, Alpha Welltall Grafskier is a Diablos gear. Yeah. Oh. yeah. It's the only one surviving. Oh, Grafskier. Oh, cool. Huh. Yeah. So big, bat winged, badass. Gear. That's what they look like. The it's one uh, that you fight uh, in the Xeno Gears, um, right yeah. before the Zohar, mm -hmm. there, right? Mm, yeah. yeah, with its incredibly and, and nerf stats. I believe that's also in that form. It comes to save Ellie when she tries to sacrifice herself in Kislev and she's Kislev. falling. Yeah, that version of the Alpha Welltall comes. Actually, you battle the Alpha Welltall as well on the in, wing. Yeah. Raziel's tree. On the, oh, on the Raziel's tree. Yeah. Yeah, and he wipes the floor with you. Yeah. Yeah. I actually beat it, and it was awesome. Oh, wow. you did? You wow. can, you can actually beat that yeah, boss. Good work. You're not supposed to, and you lose in the cutscene anyway. <laughs> but you can beat that boss, wow. which is awesome if you can figure out a way to do it. Okay, um, let's move on here. This comes from Rodrigo. Now I have to say I really like this username because the Go on Rodrigo is like Van Gogh. Yes, Van Gogh. <laughs> Very clever uh, handle there. I like that's that. cool. Okay, so Rodrigo says. Why did Krellian have a need of Ellie at all to escape into the realm of the wave existence or whatever it is he's trying to do? It's been too long since I last played. Sorry if the question is not clear. Um, I, I guess we can dilute that or clarify that a little bit into what... Krellian, towards the end of the game there, was all about getting Ellie. He, when Ramses goes after yes. us at the end of Disc 1... It was one, so, so important. He's like, make sure you bring Ellie back. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, and then they use, he uses the party as bait and the crucifixion bait. at Golgotha yeah, yeah. to bring Ellie there. What is it that Krellian needs Ellie for? I think... I, I think that Ellie is like Sophia and he just wants to bring her with him. I don't know that she actually was that important. Okay, now the, for the real answer. <laughs> I think that's a big part of it. Like the the, I'm upset heart. about my girlfriend is is, is yeah. always part of every villain's origin story. He goes, story, heaven think, ain't heaven without my girl. Yeah, but so I think I mean, girl. <laughs> you remember the uh, the I think it was one of the anime cutscene. Like it was just after the crucifixion stuff. I think where uh, where the uh, the Mia factor or whatever took over took over Ellie, and she became mm -hmm. Miang temporarily. I think that part of that had to do thing. with the reunification of, of Ahayam and, and and Mia to... And I think that was part of the the ultimate scenario that would lead to the revival of Days. Okay, but I think... Was it, was it even after that that he seemed to still want her, or is that not correct? He kept her after that. Like, yeah. a, that, like that's the point where you oh, lose and her Oh, and then we had to party. go rescue yeah. her. Yeah, that's yeah. For the rest of the You're game, right. Ellie's not in the party. You're right, you yeah. Save her in the final dungeon. Yeah, Ellie and, and Miang together. So they the needed him to make God in the first place. Yeah, because they've, yeah. they've merged back. So then that would be the answer, I yeah, suppose. The she's she's actually the central yeah. component of the whole thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, it has to combine back with the catamony, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, like, like every she's she, she's like the central circuit junction through which all the other systems communicate. Right. Um, and only if she's there, the the completed mother can God actually reawaken and be destroyed. So the the catamony, which is sort of like the central computer or the brain of Deus, right? Which is it, it was originally kept in the eye of the Zohar modifier. Mm -hmm. um, it has three organic components, the yeah. persona, the anima, and the animus. And it needs a return of all those, all three of those parts back into the catamony again for the resurrection of days to happen. And Miang, Ellie being recombined into true Miang and re going back into there with the anima animus is all part of 
It has to happen for the resurrection mm -hmm. of days. Right, and, and unless those things are all complete and all together, the wave existence cannot escape. Yeah. I think those plot machinations are valid, but also according to Perfect Works, at age 25, Krellian was sent to assassinate uh, Elium, and then instead fell in love with her when she started to be 13, spent seven years alone with her, and then she met Lacan, and that all ended. So I could think they're the whole human jealousy answer with a bit of weird age creepiness could be another reason for that. Like feeling like that she should be his even throughout time. So, oh, actually there was one more thing that I wanted to talk about regarding Krellian and Ellie. There's a really interesting passage in Perfect Works. Uh, everyone should, again, read it or check it out. But that is not in the game that kind of details their meeting, how Krellian and... Um, and Ellie met. Oh, yeah, it's weird. Krellian had I was been sent very confused. by the king of Nimrod to yes. assassinate Ellie. Who was basically yeah. ran the orphanage Ellie was at, right? Yeah. Oh, the, was well, like there the was priest. a whole power struggle in Nysand Church at the time. Yes. Um, so Krellian went and killed So he went to kill bishop. Sophia, who was supposed, who was like the sponsored, like, uh, the next the nominee, like, leader, right? the I nominated, guess, of yeah. Nysand Church or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and, by that group. Uh, anyways, uh, he was supposed to kill her, but... Yeah, he was going to kill her. So he kills the bishop, and then he finds her. And she's and like, a, I think she's only 13 13 years old. But and she, she says, yeah. She like, her smile and the way that she, her, her temperament sort of yeah. changes. She part. said, thank you. Yeah. I don't know exactly why, but she thanked him. And then he was like, you're coming with me. And then they <laughs> left. I didn't realize they had that type of... And they had apparently, uh, within Perfect Works, it says we don't know where they were for the next five years until she popped up in Nysan and became yeah. Mother Sophia. So Krellian and her were really close for like five yes. years probably. Right. That's crazy. Yeah. And he was supposed to kill her. And he did kill the father figure of her place Pen she was Penwell, at. Penwell, I think was his name. Yeah. Something like that. Unless yeah. he was just a bad dude. Like... Anyways, it's very strange. Kind of an awkward situation. Healthy I, way to start a relationship. <laughs> yes, uh, apparently. And, Seems like um, she was probably awakened, though. Like, that was an early awakening yeah, of uh, the mother and her. Of, she was already being venerated religiously. Of the anti-type, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, I, I kind of know why that would be cut, though, because that is or from the actual game. Yeah. That confuses, that complicates things a lot. I think that he only, like, barely references it in that scene by the fire where, like, you have Roni and Rene and, yeah. and Lacan, they're sitting there. He just talks about how her smile changed him. Sure. And he sort of went from being this, like, militaristic, um, like, Assassin. vicious person yeah. to the guy who becomes obsessed with nanotechnology yeah. and reading and learning, right? To a like, scientist. She, taught, she got him into that, right? Well, it's, it's like it's like St. Paul's um, Arabian journey for three years and then two years in Damascus before right. he returned to Jerusalem. Right. And the Gnostic the Gnostics are supposed to be descended from a secret wisdom of St. Paul, which mm -hmm. if you know anything yeah. about St. Paul is very silly because St. Paul never said <laughs> never held back anything that was on his mind at yeah. any time. Yeah. Um, but that is that is part of their religion. Right. Hmm. OK, now moving on to real M Slayer here. He says, one of the things that always fascinated me is the manufactured holy war between the ethos and Shavat. Um, I think he means, I think, I think, well, it's not necessarily ethos, because ethos was created after the, the war. Yeah, I think he's just re Shavat referring to like, a, it's like a cold war, just a, a constant conflict that's just manufactured between the two of them okay. through the next 500 years. 
He says, and the methods uh, both of those used, or both of them used to spread their propaganda, Shavat using its Wiseman to spread their teachings of Nisan, and Solaris using the Etone to spread their teachings. The thing is, I'm not sure which one happened first or which one uh, was the counter to the other. Um, Nisan seems more authentic as to a typical religion. The ethos seems to be a copy of what was organically happening with Nisan. Yeah, so the ethos was essentially like Solaris realized after this war that they won but still took massive, incredible uh, casualties from, especially after the Diablos and the... the, um, the gazelle were killed and everything like that, right? They realized that that kind of thing is probably not going to work to their end goals. It would be better if they could rule from the shadows or indirectly. And so the ethos was set up for that purpose. Um, and the ethos was on a timeline, chronologically, it came after Nisan as well. Right. So this was after the war between Shavat and the anti-Solaris alliance on the surface. Yeah. Right, against Solaris. And after the Diablos core, like took out ninety-five or ninety-eight percent of humanity, or how much, it, however much it was, um, this is when Solaris went uh, and, and basically was like, "We can't do it this way. We have to rule." So that's when the ethos was set up. They had to rule indirectly. Yeah. So I would say Shavat, anything to do with Shavat, precursed ethos, right? Yeah, I think so. And that, that it's very Cold War too. Like Billy, when Billy meets um, Margie, he's Curious, he's not hostile. Yeah. And Billy is exceptional, but there, there's clearly no standing doctrine of hostility. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah. Um, here's another one from him. Shavat claims to have no defenses. I think we kind of talked about that in that episode. We it's did. Not that they, they claim have to be no quite defense. They claim to be helpless. They're in a kind of a standoff where neither Solaris or Shavat can really get at each other because they're gates. Yes, except right. Shavat is but they're falling behind the curve to attack with, right? Right. Anyways, uh, he goes on to say but Saiten led an invasion of the uh, palace fairly recently, ending with him running away with Yui. So at least to that point it had to have uh, enough defense to fight that off even after the Diablos mess. Does perfect work say anything about this? This feels like the most underdeveloped part of the plot. It was so recent, it seems crazy to me that Ramses wasn't involved, which would have meant that maybe Faye was involved. Uh, this seems huge. Anybody have any um, anything they want to add to that? I know there were three invasions or attempted invasions on Shavat by Solaris, and that Saiten was involved in at least one of them. Might have been more than one. Anybody remember feels, those details? It, it feels like the the story of Saiten meeting Yui was a story that was written to tell us how Saiten met Yui and not necessarily well thought out in terms of the geopolitics of that. Because sure. I don't think that we ever really got a sense of 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 what the result of that invasion was. Right? If it feels like there was there, there was no reason for it, it was just we just know the result for Saiten. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's we it. don't know yeah. the result for yeah. Interesting. It also um, said that wouldn't Sidon go see Yui and then find Ball like in another room and start debating with him about stuff? Yeah, <laughs> like they would have conversations after he slept with his daughter. Oh, not Ball. It was uh, wait, who's Yui? Who's Yui's, Yui's father? Yui's father Gaspar? is Gaspar. Is it Gaspar? Gaspar. Gaspar. Yeah. Gaspar yeah. was Yui's yeah. father. 
Yeah, that 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 is true. Yeah, they would have. Uh, yeah, so we, the, we never really get a good sense of like how he was getting up there, or if Shavat was was still floating at that point in yeah. time. It seemed like Shavat was immune from a large scale invasion, but like single human or a group of humans could slip through with relative ease. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sh- Shavat. They talk about they recruit people all the time, and Satan is um he's a surface dweller, so they and he's a talented yeah. surface dweller, so they might just be like, oh yeah, let's scoop this guy up. That's true. He could have been on the surface pretending to be a lamb or something, and then. He wouldn't even have to pretend. He really was. True. Um, Okay. Anything else on that? Nope. Okay. Um, Okay. This is from Rodrigo again. What were exactly the requirements to resurrect God? When Satan and the Emperor talk about the time of the Gospel, they seem to be in haste, as if it was an inevitable event whose time was approaching. However, when the ministry and later Kralian are introduced to the story, we learn that there are certain steps to make it happen, and previous attempts have failed or led to unexpected results. Between that and the anti-type contact pair, what exactly is the catalyst for Deus Return? Who wants to take that one? Wasn't there like a time limit? Like, didn't it have to be done within 10,000 years after the crash of the Eldridge and Xenogears right. is on year 9999? It, it just so happens to be right around that very round number of 10,000. Yeah, it seems to me like where Rodrigo might have gotten confused here was was confusing the time of the gospel with being some time in which Adeus will automatically come back. But it's not that. It's, it's that a time it's, by which if, they if need they, to do things. If they don't get it done by then, it can't be done. Yeah. Do we know why that is? Why the dramatic time? tension? Yeah, okay. <laughs> good good answer. Yeah. There I mean, is, just, it, if you look in the perfect works, it just it just says if you don't do it in ten thousand years, tough luck. Yeah, huh. it's kind of an arbitrary time limit where Deus has 10,000 years to revive itself, otherwise it dies. Just written and in so the So that's luck, what the time luckily, of the Luckily, this planet has the exact same time measurement as Earth, otherwise we'd be in trouble. <laughs> no, I don't know how they measured years in Xenogears. It was probably it's more the, complicated well, than that. Well, they actually do talk they had about... Left Earth um, way before that. There's something in, in Perfect Works I remember reading where they set up some kind of standard for like a galactic year. Kind yeah, but of it was thing. 365 days. But, I do remember that. Yeah, so it's based on Earth time. So, but I wonder if okay, the but they people else, who yeah. came out of the Eldritch crash just used that as their time scale rather than sure. the actual revolution of their own planet. I don't know. It's probably not that well. I don't know. I don't know. But Maybe they just got lucky. And it wouldn't really matter because the 10,000 years according to uh I don't know if Deus is referencing like the star date, or if it's referencing ten thousand years on this planet. If it, as they were crashing next to this random planet, it like it did the calculations real quick and was like, "Hey, uh, roughly 10, exactly ten thousand based years. on this planet." Like, wow, it doesn't really what matter. A round number. Whatever there also it is, <laughs> there also exists the possibility that Deus is wrong. Like he's wrong about almost everything. That's Actually, true, that's well. probably the right answer. <laughs> like he just that, might believe that, but Deus is wrong. He's like, guys, this has to be done. Yeah, he Kane can is just wrong. be wrong. The ministry is frequently wrong. <clears throat> yeah. When we're dealing with game canon, it, that's often not an answer that people like, but that could very well be the right answer. Yeah, like usually Deus, the villain... The answer like, is Deus doesn't actually know what he's doing. Like, Exdeath and Sephiroth are always right about everything, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, um, you assume Kefka, so. like, knows, like, Gestal knows the secrets, and everything that comes out of Gestal's mouth is 100% correct. Yes. Um, but but in Xenogears, that's not the case. That Everybody, is not the case here. The villains are very flawed, and they, they do not know things. Yeah. I like that. They, Let's but they use still that say an- they do. Let's use that answer more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, before I move on to this next one, 
Uh, I think this is as good a time as, as any to pass it over to Pat to talk about um, the connections with Gnosticism oh. and and uh, and uh, like Platonic stuff, right? Yeah, sure. Oh, and yeah. Plato um, forms. I what, what's I mean? Yeah, I mean, if, if I just give a primer, hopefully it'll it'll answer a few questions that are on the list anyway. Sure. Um, I'll try to be real brief though. Um, so basically, the way that most people understand religion is typically like we have like these religions, and then philosophies come out of those. Like we have a set of religious beliefs that came to us from deep in antiquity, from prehistory, and then philosophers took those religious ideas and were like, well, what if we took, you know, what if we examine this more rationally? <clears throat> um, and that's, that's your average religion to philosophy type deal. Um, uh, and there is some of that in Xenogears. We'll get, we'll get to that. But, um, but Gnosticism is the reverse. Gnosticism is if you have Christianity and then you, but like, so it, um, Valentinus, the, 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 the Egyptian Roman, he lived in Egypt in, in the um, late second or early second century. He basically was a Christian uh, at first and didn't do very well in the Christian church, but he also had this really extensive platonic education. So he, he studied Plato and Aristotle and all of that as a well-to-do Roman would. That's, that was, that's what education would have been like back in the day. That's, you were very educated if you knew that stuff. And um, he was probably very smart. Um, another idea I want to get rid of is that if you think that the ancients were dumb, um, most of them, if they came to your mock trial, they, they would wipe the floor with you. They were very, very smart and good at the things I, that they understood. They, did, they yeah. didn't know any science, right? They, they knew they knew a lot about agriculture, actually, and, and animal husbandry. So they knew a lot about that and probably engineering. But they didn't know the science that you know, but that does not make them dumb. They were very smart. So here's this guy. He's, he's, like, he's like, Christianity didn't work out for him. He wanted to become a bishop, didn't get the position. He's like, screw that. I'm going to go make my own religion with blackjack and hookers. Um, and, but he, so he, he took his platonic philosophical education which said that um you know in in the in plato's view in the in the, the what he called his his writing the timaeus he envisioned um well first of all plato was a monotheist i should say that plato believed in one god um his belief is epistemologically very different from what we think of as belief today but that was plato's thing he was a weird guy. He that was a monotheist. Fit, that fits in with his the idea of forms, though. That there is there's yeah. one perfect form, and and it's right. one, right? Right. So that yeah. he he believed in what the demiurgos, which is just actually just craftsmen, right? That's just there was a craftsman who created the universe, and he did the best he could, and but the bless, universe bless came his out. heart. Yes, yeah. yes. And like, uh, but the universe could never it come up, it, the universe could never match the world of the ideas that inspired the, ideas, yeah. the um the 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 um inspired the demiurge, demiurge. So he, you know, just did the best he could and we as a result we have a flawed but not evil world. Um Plato didn't see the material world as evil, simply as flawed. Um the evil part was added by Valentinus. So that's essentially he took Plato's idea of the flawed world and he sort of mixed in a little bit of Christianity and said the world is actually I guess even Valentinus is not really evil. Valentinus is more like the world is just like wicked or or not not malicious, but like the world is just crappy and awful and suffering. Like he took it he took Plato one step further towards like this world sucks. Um, you know, Plato's like, well, the world can't live up to the ideals and Valentinus was like, the world sucks. Yeah, Valentinus was like, have you been to Egypt, Plato? And <laughs> yeah, Plato was like, no, no, I haven't. Um, yeah, he, he, he was living in a much nicer time, uh, Valentinus was. so. Um, and then, oh, um, actually, another philosopher, uh, Plotinos, um, uh -oh. came along after Valentinus. Um, he, uh, a lot of people would call him Plotinus. 
but Plotinos, mm. um, this is Greek name. He was another Roman um, of Greek origin. I, th I think, yeah, probably a Hellenistic, another Hellenistic Egyptian. And he took um, the idea of the, the Plato's ideas and sort of went further with them, which is exactly what Jacques Lacan did with Freud's ideas. And, right. and same with um, um, Jung. They both... I like, was going to uh, say, Jung more or less did that with the Plato's yeah, ideas. Yeah, yeah. So the well. relationship yeah. Yeah, between Jung, Jung and, and, and Lacan and Freud is the same as between Plotinos and Plato. Okay, and cool. um, so he just took this idea. So like the world is evil. Um, but like not not in like a religious sense. Plotinus was not an especially religious person as it's a like Greek an philosopher. Ab an absence of good kind of thing. Yeah, it's just like the world is just like like he he went further. It was like the world is full of like debased things, and all we do in the world is like you know you need to renounce the world and pursue intellectual things because the world and everything in it, it's just like it's just gonna corrupt you. It's just gonna make you worse. Sure. It's not like a, not in the moral sense of a religion necessarily, but like the world's just gonna like it's just gonna drag you down. So get out of the world, study. Use your mind, right? Um, and then That's the Gnostics, kind of, kind of Buddhist. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. Um, and the Gnostics, who were actually running alongside Plotinos, right? The Gnosticism had already started, um, but the Gnostics, every time a new development in Pl Pl Platonic philosophy came along, the Gnostics would absorb it. So it's like a, the just the Platonic version of Christianity, but Pl Platon Platonism was evolving, and so um, Gnosticism evolved right along with it. So all these new ideas entered, and they were like, okay, so we have we have Plotinus's ideas, the monad, that in the world of ideas, all things are one. There's the one good everything, and that you were part of that one once, and your pneuma left that world and entered the fallen world, and you can get back there through a series of mystical practices, which have no orthodoxy, so don't bother <laughs> trying to establish what that was, because it was a secret, and it was myriad, and it was very confusing, and we can't recreate it today. Not very well. Um, but yeah, so like that idea of the monad, the one, that's, and then Gnosticism absorbs that. That's what we get in Xenogears is this, like at the beginning, the wave existence was the one. It was just, you know, it existed in a universe where everything was waves. And um, and, and out of it, it accidentally emanated into another dimension and created the physical universe. So that's the science fiction interpretation of Plotinos's Plato, Platonic philosophy absorbed by um, the Gnostics at the end of time in the, in the third century, early third century in, in Egypt and Rome. Um, so that's cool. sort of the cultural context cool. is that it's just like you think about Plato's philosophy, the religious version of that is Gnosticism. And that's what the game Xenogears is trying to interpret. Right. Um, but the really cool thing is the comparison that the wave existence makes. He says, um, I'm not the actual wave existence you're seeing. I'm a virtual version of the wave existence that you're seeing that you created when you observed me. Right. Um, which that is very um, much like Plotinos, who was really on his way to uh, uh, the teachings of Kant. He was, he was like blazing mm. that trail for Kant to come along. Now, the, that you can't perceive the real universe. You right. just perceive your perception, um, which, which is a shadow of the universe. Which is and, a deep, yeah. yeah that's right, good. right. That's like projection. You're, you're basically projecting categories onto everything. You're not actually right. you, perceiving reality. Yeah. yeah so you're, you're perceiving a, sh a dim shadow of reality. And Plotinus yeah. really took that farther. But quantum mechanics teaches us that when we observe the world, we change it by our observation. I was wondering if we were going to get into this because this is the coolest thing ever. Right. So this, this is, this is, is the, the coolest that thing synthesis ever. that the wave existence gives you. That virtual version is that is the wave yes. um, particle experiment. So like yes. a, a, a wave of electromagnetic energy is a wave until a conscious observer observes it. And this is where 
things get like your, your wiggles catch on fire yes. is that this is really true that in nature, we know that if you're of, of a, if a living being or a camera is not observing a part, a, a wave, it, it remains a wave. But if a human being is watching particle. it, it becomes a particle. We know that to be true it because of experiments. It becomes manifest into the actual world right. physically. And but it actually th- also works for cameras, but not as strongly. Yeah. Which is, that's the thing. It's like, what? So it, <laughs> He no, knows it it's works being observed. If, if you're filming something live, but if somebody's viewing it on the other end, viewing the live camera, then that also can affect the wave and how it how it breathes. Right. So it's but, it, that's, but that's actually there's a time element here too, though, because you can look out at a star, right, and you'll see the light of a star. Now, light is both wave and a particle. If it's perceived, it's both a wave and a particle. <laughs> but that light can only, that particle can only have been, that wave can only have become a particle if one billion years ago, or however long the speed of light is, 100,000 years ago, at the other end of the Milky Way, if 100,000 years later there were somebody to observe it, you're affecting the past. What you're seeing from the light from a star is not current light. You're seeing a light that was emitted 100,000 years ago. And you're seeing might essentially have, a particle. Might this have something or some But this particle did, did not exist 100,000 years yeah. ago unless you existed now to perceive it. Right. This That's is, this crazy. Is the, That's this is insane. called the EPR this, paradox. This is um, a proven thing in quantum mechanics. People should look yeah. it up. It's, it's, it's called the, it's, if you look it up, it's called the, the EPR paradox. Yes. And this, um, was, they, this experiment was done in, I think, the 80s or so. So they, Xenogears would have been aware of this yeah uh, they talk about the epr radar in, the in saga which is basically this times 10 so it's so. the same kind of thing but, so, but that, I, that I was just i was just asking if it might have some relation to quantum entanglement where two yes. particles can be separated by infinite space mm-hmm. but still react instantly to each other right, right. that's 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 also part of the epr paradox yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it's all it's all together but anyway that that's, that's cool, fusion of so cool. the, the, the cool thing about xenogears is that it makes comparisons right it's, it's not just a recapitulation of gnosticism it compares um, quantum mechanics and pl- 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 you know Plotinos and, and Gnosticism. It compares and says you know like, like you can't really know the world or God, but you can see a virtual version and it's a reflection of yourself. And that's what Faye has when Faye meets the existence. He has a moment of um, abreaction. That's how mm-hmm. Freud would have called it, where he sees himself through all of his lives and comes to integrate all of his personalities and says. And then Wave of says, "You've been through some shit, man." That's not what he actually says. That's that's my that's the Holloman <laughs> translation. I, I think that's what he actually said. <laughs> yeah, that's the Holloman translation. Um, yeah. But uh, he says, uh, you know, you've been through many, um, you've had many traumas, and Faye's Sorry, like, I can't, yeah. I can't blame anyone else for what I've been through. Right. And that's the moment yeah. where it's like, oh, okay, Faye Monad's has like, sweet, you're the one. Right. Yeah. So Faye has made contact with God, even though it's a virtual version of God. He's able to see himself, and that's what really mattered. He he understands like, you know, I have I have people who love me, and I have Ellie. And, um, you know, they complete me. Um, and that's why I want to stay in this world and save it. That's, and that's what, that's the debate he has with Corellian at the end. He's like, you know, I, I've seen all the suffering that you've seen, buddy. And I still want to be with these people. They complete me. Um, and Corellian's like, no, I disagree. I'm going to go be with God. Um, so that's the synthesis is that you have the, the, the science fiction element of, of quantum mechanics and the, the monad. And somehow Plotinus prefigured the monad and, and, and prefigured Zing and Zich and all yeah. of that. And it shows up, and 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 Tetsuya Takahashi can make that comparison. Yeah. Um, I pr- I probably shouldn't go down the entire runway of how Freud and and, and uh, Kabbalah are are. Oh, related. and Kabbalah. 
there's probably a separate question for that somewhere. Let's let's wait. Let's wait. Let's uh, get back to it in a little bit if we have the time here. Let's get through a couple more questions. This is an easier one. Comes from uh, Av Bitron. You seem to have been very positive so far about the Faye Ellie relationship uh, so far in this podcast. Did you like how it ended, or do you think it was overall a good romance? Short answer to that is I think it's phenomenal. I think it gets better as it goes. <laughs> I, I think it's an, a phenomenal romance. Yeah. And, and as I look back at specifically comparing this video game to other video games in particular, um, this is about as good as it gets um, in terms of romance and video games. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's deep, it's meaningful. The whole story doesn't revolve around it, but in a meta weird sense, it kind of does. Yeah. But it's a deeper kind of thing to it. You know, it's. I think this game did the romance... Um, like almost perfectly also one thing that i liked about the, about the romance is that it's because it's a a teenage romance romance yeah. it's messy and oh, yeah. like <laughs> the, the the especially the moments like before the, the the love scene where like bart has to stand on the table and yell at Faye about something yeah. i can't remember exactly what but Just, uh he was being the, mean yeah yeah those those, those kind of things are i mean normal in teenage relationships like things get messy there 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 are situations where people misread each other and that was all represented in that scene which i liked a lot yeah that scene was great yeah and i think another part of it that might just be incidental due to how the story is structured but that i like is that you know a lot of um romance plots that i don't typically love a lot of times it's because, oh, this doesn't feel um, like it has developed naturally to this point yet. The, the characters have not had enough time together on screen for me to mm. believe that they're here yet, right? Right, yeah, yeah. But Xenogears, one, I think it does a good job with having enough yeah, screen time. Yeah, quite a bit. But even if it doesn't, the fact that their romance has uh, gone over generations, right? Yes. They've known each other for t- thousands of years, really, and yeah. they've been bonded for thousands of years kind of helps make that more convincing in and of itself. So yeah, there's, if, there's a great oh, scene yeah. at the end, right? Um, there's a Boing flashback um, where you see oh, yes, the, the yes. New Year's. Emeralda, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, so you see that like Faye and Ellie creating Emeralda and the, 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 when they have the New Year's together and Faye, Ellie's like, I'm infertile. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, I am a subject to these, the, the things that are going on right now. I mean, the Xenogears is so structurally brilliant in that it cheats. It shows you that happily ever after did happen like we when we have to go rescue ellie from deus but we know what their happily ever after is going to be like because we've seen it yeah. we've seen their happily ever after as as ellie and kim mm-hmm. so like we know that they're going to have this beautiful albeit human and flawed relationship but it's going to be this beautiful thing because we've seen what their relationship as a married couple was like yeah hmm. yeah i just i really like it it's my favorite of at least any jrpg i've ever played and it's not really that close um, in terms of uh, romance plots, I, I think it's extremely well done. You know what's hilarious? You guys should later all go look up the English translation to the song DNA from BTS. It's basically <laughs> Xenogears, and I just really? realized that, yeah. Oh, wow. Talking about their DNA and the, a love that spans through the ages that oh, will just wow. continue to like be around forever, and it's literally in, in your blood that... like. You comes together and it's a reincarnation kind of theme. Nice. Great stuff, great stuff. Okay, uh, next question here is from Zara. Uh, this is hard name. Zara Zarathustra Prime. Prime. Zarathustra is a Nietzschean reference. There you go. Yeah. Glad that somebody else is more well read than me and would know that. <laughs> um, 
It would be nice if you could provide commentary on some of the lore that is in perfect works, which we're kind of doing. Um, but he says in particular here, um, Krellian's background as an assassin, we touched on that. Yeah, the provided crazy. explanation for how the Zohar works in relation to the contact. And he says oh, here... Oh, yeah, we talked about that a little bit. Xenosaga's connection to perfect works and Xenogears. I have not played Xenosaga. You have not played Xenosaga. I haven't either. Anybody else want to touch on... Well, yeah. ...how Xenosaga and Xenogears are related or where they might break off from each other? They are not the same universe, but they touch many, many, many of the same philosophical Theme, themes and, and, stuff, and right. thematic points. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. So what are you guys' experiences with Xenosaga? I, <clears throat> I completed it. Um, I've only played each one once when they came out in 03, 05, and 06. And to me, they're not officially related, but it... Right. You know when you start a project and you complete the project and like, oh, I wish I could have done that better, and then you start a new project with what you've learned in the last one and start completely fresh? Like, that's the feeling I got with Xenosaga is it mm. had to be kind of by copyright very distinctive from the last one because it was through Namco as opposed to Square. Mm -hmm. Right. And it just felt like he was taking a more refined turn at doing it and leaning more into, you know, Xenosaga at the time was infamous for its lengthy cutscenes, like legendarily long cutscenes at the time. And it kind of aired in that Kojima thing where you get the feeling that he wanted, the director wanted to be more of a movie guy than a game guy. And it was still a, a fine game, or at least the third one was. Um, but as far as the concepts and the themes, that really, I don't think it went quite as deep as Xenogears, because Xenogears was like a one-shot thing with a lore book, and he planned Xenosaga to be six games, and it ended up being three games. Mm. So mm. It, was, it was a different variety of mess, but it is interesting to see someone tackle the same things with different hardware and a different story. Cool. Yeah, I think... I've only played the first one, but like the some of the like the the reason that I, I wanted to play the first one so badly was because I was I was such a big fan of Xenogears, and there were like it was difficult for me at the time. I guess I was probably my early twenties, and it was difficult for me at the time to like connect these things thematically. But I still have like certain imagery in my head that that came out of of Xenosaga that created the promise that it was going to complete the perfect work story because like yeah. I think isn't Abel mm. in that game. There's a bunch of wink and nod references. Yeah, and, and I was like, oh, I can't wait, but it never happened. But as we've joked on our podcast, is like we do believe that it is the, the dark, cruel destiny of God uh, for us to one day cover that game. So uh, <laughs> I guess our opinions will evolve. Probably same here. It is, it is not a coincidence. It is inevitable now, consequence. Knowing yes. almost nothing about it, because I've only played maybe the first two or three hours of Xenosaga a long time ago, hmm. is it more or less covering what might be the equivalent of Xenogears Episode 1 type stuff? I think 1 and 2, basically. And then uh, I mean, one, then two, then it skips to 6, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't play 3. Like <laughs> I always figure Episode 1 of Xenogears is more leaving Earth, generational ships, traveling through space, uh, terraforming planets, stuff like that. It just seemed... Xenosaga seemed more like a classic space opera. Like a, yeah. a, mm. a, a true way to interpret just interpersonal relationships in extraordinary circumstances. I don't know that there was necessarily a deep-rooted religious aspect, at least not in my memory. Oh, there, 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 there definitely is. It's not very well done, though. Um, <laughs> it was more like uh, Our Machines People type thing was I more mean, of a theme there. Oh, the AI kind of thing? Don't you don't you hang out with Jesus in a spaceship in that game? You uh, absolutely Jesus, do. Jesus Christ is in yep. uh, the third one, yeah. definitely. So. He's weak as shit. <laughs> uh, he is very weak. You do not want to bring him into battle. 
But like Chaos's real name is Yeshua. Like there's still references and you're not sure if there's anything to read into there or if they just think it's cool to name a guy Yeshua who has godlike powers. Now, there there actually is a whole whole Jesus like Christianity um theme that he attempt, that they attempted to do, but um because the writers I mean they basically fired Takahashi as a writer. Mm-hmm. The Namco execs were like, uh, we're going to push you aside and have somebody else write this. Oh, really? Um, yeah, big scandal at the time. Yeah, yeah. And You're like, I thought right. episode one was the best one. Most people like the episode three the best. I mean, episode three has all the payoffs, right? Yeah. So, of course, if you have a, all t- two games of setups and one game of payoffs, people are going to like the payoffs. <laughs> um, I liked episode one the best because it was like more interesting religious stuff um, and philosophical mm-hmm. stuff. But uh, yeah, they, cool. it's supposed to be Christianity. Um, Basically, uh, Augustinian Christianity, sort of fifth century, uh, yeah. um, and uh, and 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 Jung, Jung, like a lot of collective unconscious, like the UMN. I don't want to spoil too much stuff, but the UMN is like a literal embodiment of a, of a Jungian idea, and I won't mm. I won't spoil it. But like, there's a lot of Jung in, in the game. It really runs with it. But the, the problem is that like uh, most of the audience is familiar with Christianity and what it is and what it says. Yeah. Um, and so when this Japanese guy goes into Christianity, you're like, uh, you know, we, we don't. What is this we Bible school? Yeah, we we don't know a lot about Gnosticism, and we don't know a lot about Kabbalah in the West. Like we know some. So like Takahashi's relatively surface level knowledge of those things is enough to make us yeah. curious and and satisfy us. But like because we're all like you know, I, I know and then under the boys here went to Catholic school, yeah, and they yeah. gained more than enough knowledge from that, even if they weren't paying attention very much. Um, I'm not no no accusation of that, but no, even anyone who goes yeah. to Catholic school and pays half attention would be like, the Xenosaga thing is not at all accurate. like 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 yeah. any Christianity that we've ever heard of. It's totally not mm-hmm. accurate and not even thematically accurate. Um, so yeah. it's just like it, it's like he it was clearly Takahashi doing that for a Japanese audience, plus also having other writers. But yeah, there's definitely a big big Jesus thing going on in that. Cool. I think going going back to the to the perfect works timeline. So something that somebody pointed out to me in our Discord uh, not too long ago, and I haven't I haven't played it, but in terms of the the episode, I believe it's the episode three storyline, which would have been Sophia, Lacan, uh, and Krellian, Ronnie, Renee. That that whole timeline, mm-hmm. that story is kind of told in the Xenoblade Two DLC, mm. Torna: The Golden Country, because it right. is about the uh, the 500 years before Xenoblade 2, which I could take it, take it or leave it with Xenoblade 2, but like, I, but the the idea of being able to live with the characters who will eventually fall to become the villains, I think, is a is an interesting concept that they that mm-hmm. I, I, I'm assuming that Takahashi decided to go back and explore there. So they've tried to tackle, you know, that those those episodes in in, in different ways, but unfortunately, we're never going to see it in a in any manner of congruence i don't think yeah it's certainly true that across all his games he's more or less exploring the same ideas over yeah. and over and over again yeah xenoblade <laughs> like, 2 is, is is episode 5 basically it's xenogears again but it, except for with all the th- things that come along with xenoblade 2 which right. uh, we don't have to get into <laughs> yeah so it's like it's like once you've played <laughs> xenogears when you play any of the other xeno games you should be able to kind of pick up especially yeah. If you've looked into the stuff we've been talking about this whole podcast, right? You, right? You watch the Jung podcast. references, the yeah. Lacanian references, uh, the Gnostic references, all this stuff. You should be able to more or less keep up, is my guess, with mm-hmm. the other Xeno stuff, right? Cool. Yeah. <clears throat> the structure's there. You've got a primer for whatever first one you play. You can, you're primed to go in the next right. one. Right, mm-hmm. to the next one, right. Okay, this one comes from Beer Chozo. 
What do you think was Deus' ultimate goal with returning to lost Jerusalem? It says th- in perfect works, it says that we don't know, but he was going there and he basically, all he does is break stuff. So <laughs> my theory, he's going to break it. <laughs> my, my theory on that was always that when, as soon as Deus like took over the, the, the Eldridge, it was looking for a place in which it could uh, regenerate, like a, a planet that was ripe for it to create life so it could create replacement parts and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. And the only data that it has had was the data that was in Raziel's tree, so that pointed it back to the original Earth. It just so happened to be um, that when the Eldritch blew up, it landed on an Earth-like planet that also has dinosaurs and three hundred sixty-five days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole thing. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> so um, th- there, it is hinted at in Perfect Works that there's some, you know, hidden reason there, but there could be something special about Earth that the humans who left Earth don't aren't aware of. But so, that the you know. Yeah, let me, let me fill some people in here who have not read Perfect Works on what Lost Jerusalem is. Um, so Lost Jerusalem is Earth, right? Um, yes. When, when humanity left Earth to go start colonizing, it kind of became this... thing called Neo-Jerusalem. It, it, there was almost a taboo around going back there. Yeah, um, they never explain. They, they go out of their way, though, to say it's not because yeah. of the climate. It was yeah. not because yeah. of the climate. It's, it's not just humans just left. Anything changed about it? It's just there. Was, there almost became sort of a religious taboo around like going yeah. back to. It feels what like it was something that was going to be Jerusalem. Mm. But yeah. uh, the first star, or the first planet, I guess that they colonized, they set up as their kind of new base for humanity, is yeah. called Neo Jerusalem. Yeah. And from there, they spread out all over the galaxy. But Lost Jerusalem was kind of left behind, and so. In the opening yeah. uh, cinematic, where you know the the operators are freaking out as Deus is taking over the ship, they see that the coordinates have been plugged in to take the Eldridge to the, the main, main planet. planet. But, but she's all worried about it. She's like, "Oh no, the main planet!" But it sounds like there was no one there. Well, that wouldn't just, have been it's that just big a deal, that in their right? culture. It's I, I would say it's kind of a taboo. Okay. Like, what does it want with the main planet, which is right. Lost Jerusalem, sure. which is Earth? It's like, what does it want to do there? They're freaking out because, anyways, it's... Does anyone else have uh, something they want to add to that? But I just wanted to lay down the foundation so people know. I I think the only thing that I was going to... Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris, please. please. Okay, I I was just going to say, the only thing that... um, that I could think of in terms of, like, this, this taboo that was created around Lost Jerusalem is that that was something that they were holding close to the vest to explore in the next, in the sequel to Xenogears. In the like sixth, the, the, episode six yeah, part? Of yeah, course. Yeah. Of that, course. that was Which, the kind of way I read that. Oh, man. Did, did you catch at the end when Krellian says, I, I have to go to be with God even if there's no place for me on when I return, to come back yeah. to when I return? Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. I remember now, the second you, time I played, I was like, he's coming back? <laughs> you, you guys didn't, um, haven't, we haven't released the final podcast that we did here. Yeah, we're talking um, about that. But I actually had a slightly different interpretation on that which was that when he says even if there's no place when I return meaning that he's going back to be with the wave existence from whence everything emanated to begin with yeah, and I know that kaidu um, is in, in Japanese is like this loaded 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 verb right yes it can mean lots of things <laughs> <laughs> like you know, like, like uh, kaidimasu you, you're kaeru, going home yeah. but yeah, you yeah. also like I'm going to go back to somewhere but like, there's, when you say kaidu, like to go home, it means Kaya really meaningful. Yeah, yeah, something that, or yeah, just and it could mean a lot of things. Like okaeri, meaning assuming you you had been somewhere before and you were returning. Yeah, but 
Yeah. I, I took it to but be that there way. Is, there Returning is an episode six. The, so the I way of existence, gonna... I know. But I was saying, the way of existence may not want him back. But he's right. like, I'm going to go try anyways. But yeah, Kairu could also be, you know, I'm going to leave, but then I'll see you suckers again soon. I don't know. Right. Well, he's like, what Who is knows? he going to come back with? Like, after being with God? Like, it's just like, yeah. that's interesting. Uh, Yggdrasil 5. That's what he's coming back with. I cracked the code. It's in the text. If you read it closely, you'll you'll see. Yeah, um, I forgot. I forgot. What, oh, uh, th- th- there's a thematic reason that I wanted to add this to. There's a thematic reason why um, Deus wants to go back to Earth. It styles mm-hmm. itself God, so oh. it has to go back to where God is, right? Like it's just like it's well, got God its own kind of yeah, like it's got this ego things. Like, well, yeah, I'm going to be God. I'm going to go be God over Earth, not God over some stupid planet in the a- asteroid in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's funny. Interesting. All right. Got another one here from Lucario. Which of the eras in the timeline would you have wanted to explore, play, or learn more of? Um, episode well, the one, one through four episode of Xenogears Saga contains so much of the world's lore and history. If episode six is what you'd be most interested in, since we don't know what that's going to be, then maybe yeah. theorize as to what you, it could have been, which I think we just did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just kind of leave it at that. I'm definitely most interested in six it's because we just have no clue. We only have like basically hints or cryptic hints of what that could have been. That's why um, I'm not interested in six. <laughs> because we already know <laughs> essentially, especially with Perfect Works as a Guide, like what all the other yeah. episodes contain. Yeah, but I like talking about going there to explore. Like, I want to see how in the world y'all started this and figured this stuff out. And that's like the, the now times. The, it, I think they said in 2001 is when it, the, uh, like the really obelisk early was discovered. Episode one stuff. Yeah, yeah, like right, like around basically now, just, just in that world. Like how everything, how it came to be that this, um, this 2001 Space Odyssey, what's it called? The, the monolith. Yeah, the monolith. Yeah. How that monolith got discovered and then determined to not be valuable and then packed away in a Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse somewhere <laughs> and and just everyone <laughs> just kind of forgot it, about it. They like, said it was how like did a, that happen? A museum ship, like a like a it traveling belonged museum. In a museum. That I mean, was going around. <laughs> <laughs> that was going around like you know displaying old stuff and it was like uh, that thing is. Th- this is the key to the the <laughs> the everything. path of Sephiroth, right? Yes. <laughs> but anyways, I want to know how that all worked with today's culture because I get I feel a little disconnected from a lot of the Xenogear stuff later on. But I feel very connected with Episode One and how, and I find it to be a plausible the way that they said how everything went down. Yeah. And so it's like, hey man, I want to be there. Okay, cool. How about you guys? I, I've already alluded to this, but the I can't remember if it's Episode Three or Episode Four, but the the episode where we learn the origin stories of Krellian and Groff was mm. w- would be the game that I would want to play. Like I would want to mm. see the moment in which Krellian first met Sophia, see how that, that yeah that, that would actually changed. be kind of fun. Like, That'd be cool. And and you know like it, a lot of games have villain origin stories, but I want to see one where there are two villain origin stories and both of those villains are on opposing sides. Like that's mm. what I like most about those stories. For a more boring answer, I think Perfect Works has outlined enough of the prehistory for one through four to where it leaves such a profound idea in your head that seeing it realized and then seeing them maybe leave something out that you didn't want to see could kind of ruin your expectations. Yeah. And there's so little data about six that all that's left is the invitation to wonder about it. And it could literally be anything. And it would, I think, disappoint fewer people in its execution. 
I think like episode two and three, like covering the Kim, like that's just like yeah. Kim and Ellie, like that's just like a J drama. Kim is the most mysterious. Yeah, yeah it's like but, a J drama. You're talking about. Like, like, I was like, and then the contact went to medical school. Yep. And his, his Asian parents <laughs> had were had these new ideas, but then the system said, no, we're orthodox here. Your ideas don't work and shut right. it down. You can make friends That's and totally go on Japanese. dates along the way. Yeah. yeah. And like he had, he, his parents were really proud of him and he met yeah. his girlfriend at medical school, which is an Asian parent's dream. <laughs> and she and like, was a nurse while he was a doctor. So. Yeah, like exactly. She wasn't a threat to his authority. Yeah, exactly. But they complimented she was each other really well. Subservient, of course. Um, if, really, if it played it straight for like 60 hours and then just dropped something crazy for the last two, that'd be really good. You want to well, see yeah, I mean, nanotech. There would be like, there would be some like, like hints of like, there's this war going on, but because it's a Japanese drama, we do not have the budget to show any of it <laughs> at all. There you, um, go. you know, like the Netflix version will yeah. have like, you know, like, like, cause Japanese television budgets are like, Japanese um, TV is bad. That's why I watch Korean TV. Mostly. Well, since 1991, basically Japanese, like back in the day, they used to have some budgets, but now it's just like, mm, sorry, not, not yeah. happening. And, um, so That's that would be Korea like, it would be interesting company. as a drama, but it would not be a video game. Um, but like, so <laughs> if like, it was, <laughs> that would be it would be like it'd be like Toki Meki Memorial. I was, but like, say, I was like Love Plus. I was saying Love Plus, but you're we're yeah. on the same page. Um, it's but a dating I, like the, the 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 this holy war between uh, Shavat and Solaris okay. would be that's game material, right? Yeah. And yeah. also the prehistory. There's they talk about like how the creation of the Persona system and the scientists who were working at it didn't yeah. know how that was done. It just sort of happened. Like when they when they started tinkering with Ma'am, it started yeah. having a personality, like the, the computer did, and it's just like that. That's that's interesting. There's some fi- sci-fi meat in there. The other interesting stuff you could explore with um, the episode three Kim Zebuim era is um, Miang waking uh, awaking in two twin sisters. Yeah, that, like how did that things. work? And all like the political intrigue going on there. Yeah. They're manipulating a nuclear war. Yeah. Like there's a, probably a lot of interesting material you could pull sure, out. Sure, sure. Right? I think so too. Yeah. Instead, they're going to to uh, start the series Xenoblade and then do episode five twice, <laughs> which yeah. is what they did. <clears throat> exactly. Can't blame them. Uh, anything else? No. Okay. Perfect Works said there were 998 Miangs total, so just kind of like a... Holy crap. Uh, I'd love to see just a, an overview of her life, just how like crazy that would be. Like a WarioWare-styled game with like 100 <laughs> different mini-games of, of Miang. <laughs> Like random sequences. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. It would be fascinating, though. She probably had the most interesting life of everybody. Uh, the manga series, I don't think they're canon, but there's a really interesting, sad one that involves uh, Miang assuming uh, go- dying and going into a new body. Yeah. Yeah, it was, mm. it's really interesting because she, really? what, uh, it's like a Gabler soldier or something? Yeah. Yeah, a Gabler soldier is is, is uh, being taken over by the, what, the Miang factor or whatever, but as soon as Miang phases into that body... She automatically assumes the uh, what was it? The she carries all the memories, like, yeah, carries yeah, yeah, she's yeah, that ca- person as well as her, yeah, carries the memories. And, and most of those memories were said, it's, 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 it's an interesting take on it. Oh, yeah. cool! Wow. Not all of those manga are interesting, but many of them are. are. <laughs> cool. Here's a pretty interesting question from Sleep Dedication He says, I understand why Graf would give power to phase opponents, right? When he shows up and he does his. Yes. Blossom of uh, Fallen Seed. His dance. His, yes, his yes. power uh, speech. But why does he do it for Stein, too, who was Bishop Stone yes. originally, right? Um, what use is there in giving power to Billy's enemy? 
when Faye isn't even there because he was yeah. locked out. I think point. we speculate or we wondered the same thing when we did our podcast that there's no there's no particular reason there other than to enhance the boss fight. I don't think. Except the Kato was raiding it at that point. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. My guy. <laughs> that explains it right there. My guy. Fun guy. Any, anybody Flight got a, 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 a potential theory on why that might be? I think it's I just think, a miss, to be honest. Yeah, it's probably a miss and probably like Kato just doing it. Kato's like, here we go. This will this will be fun. Um, but also I think like, like I think the I think that um Graf's power kills you. I'm pretty sure that like mm. like Graf is not gonna give you power and be like, ooh, he got away. Oh, now I have this giant opponent. I think pretty sure yeah. that Graf like gives you power and then after a little while, it kills you. So he and he, he just like drops the power on people to be like, This Stein guy is a jackass. I'm gonna go kill him with the power. Yeah, it was time for him to go. Yeah. <laughs> Like Graf, Graf really doesn't like the Salarians, right? He's scheming the whole time. He's, he was about to use the Goliath to go merc the whole ministry by himself. Yeah. Um, before Faye was even awakened, because he just hates them so much. Yeah. Um, second part of this question is: um, after Saiten betrays Faye to interrogate Id, their reconciliation feels oddly rushed. At the time, it also seems like the game is setting up for further intrigue and possibly for deceit. Like when Bart um, asks Billy in Sighton if he removed Faye's limiter too, and Sighton sort of stutters, like, oh, uh, yeah, of course, right? right? But to my memory, there's no payoff later, and Sighton is trusted by the party from then on, basically treated like another one-dimensional good guy. Did I miss something important, or is there just a plot thread that the devs seem to have abandoned? This comes right at the end of disc one, so my, mm-hmm. my thought on this would be that if there was an intention to, like, make you doubt Saiten more Again. throughout the course of Disc 2, that they probably just didn't have time to pay that off, really, right? And I don't know that they should have. I don't know that that would have been a good idea yeah. for them to do anyways, um, to keep that on Saiten. I still kind of had a little mistrust for him, because I was like, that that was too... There still could be something else. Mostly because yeah. we didn't know Kane right. until further into yeah. Disc 2. We didn't know his intentions. And so there was still a little bit of mistrust there for me. Um, but in a lot of ways, I'm actually kind of glad that they didn't have Saiten halfway betray us again. Again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't because have Because it would have... would have had the same effect. Yeah, it's better the way that they did it. Regarding the speed of the apology, the betrayal hurts so bad, at least for me when I played it the first time, that if they didn't amend that as quickly as they did, players might have just taken the disc out. Yeah, you can't just let that... You can't just let that go. Like... You gotta, you gotta deal with that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think also there's what, what happens off screen that we don't get to see is that Satan personally goes and rescues Bart and Billy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they like so they would have been like, oh yeah, cool, all right, we're cool. Like right. you just saved me from getting a brain transplant. Right. So, they wouldn't have had any reason solid. to distrust him the way that but Faye would. Yeah. That's off screen, yeah. so like we don't get to see like okay, this guy's probably you know maybe he's got ulterior motives, but he's probably not a bad guy. But they had a rush, so. Yeah, that's true. On to the next one. On to the next question. This comes from Richard D. Ross. With all the consideration of time, and given that we don't know the full extent of the behind the scenes in detail, do you think that disc two is presented in the best way the team could manage? Personally, I feel that some scenes needed to be prioritized over others for the sake of narrative, e.g. skipping the whole elements transformation scene and Power Rangers parody, (laughs) and even the scene of the Ingridsell 4, which is a nice payoff but totally pointless to the themes of the game, in favor of showing more pivotal moments such as the activation of the Geisha Key. Given the skill they showed in earlier parts of the game for visual direction, in my mind the better way to deal with the time constraints would have been to trim all the fat 
and focus on the important scenes. And he makes sure to put hashtag Choo Choo did nothing wrong. So oh, it's very true. <laughs> I mean, he's probably right that that wasn't the best way to do it, but I, I not knowing all of their limitations and everything, it's like you know they they did okay yeah. with what they had, and yeah, they probably could have definitely could have been done better um, in a lot of those regards. But that's that's I don't want to be nitpicky on that. Regard. Pretty much my major criticism of Xenogears narrative structure is that there's just too much story. Oh in the my game. gosh. For given given the, the the time constraints, the two year time yes. constraint that was set on them by Squaresoft, and the the team that he had, which yeah. was very inexperienced and young, um, like I, I feel like Rico and a lot of that like Kislev section could have probably been cut because it doesn't really get paid off super yeah. well. Yeah, and in if the you're end. not going to pay it off, then just um, and, and I think he brought up a couple of good points too with the Yggdrasil four. And um, and uh, the other example he brought up too, I forget what it was. I think oh, I the, the, the elements, right? Yeah. I, I, I think I can explain the Yggdrasil thing and, and the elements thing. Okay. Is that, um, remember that uh, Takahashi is not the only one calling shots. Uh, essentially, right. Kirohamichi Tanaka is in charge of this project, right? Yeah. He's yeah, producer, so he gets right? to call the, yeah, yeah, he gets to call the financial shots, more or less. Yeah. And he would have consulted with Sakaguchi too. But, um, you know, those are, uh, Yggdrasil 4 and, and um, you know, the um, knockoff, um, What's uh, what's Power the, the, the yeah, knockoff Power Rangers or, or the other Voltron? Knock Voltron, Voltron, Voltron. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, it's got a little bit more Voltron. Right? So, um, those are merch opportunities, mm. um, like cool merchy you know things. You're right. So, like, I'm sure that Tanaka was like, "Oh, these are merchy. We got to put these in there." Like, and he was like, but, and of course, Tanaka also, or um, yeah, Tanaka would have said, um, "You know, we got to prioritize the stuff at the ending, right? Stuff yeah. towards the ending that's like big and epic and explosions, like some explosions." Yeah. Is the priority stuff, which they um, they did a good job, at least. Yeah, know, they, they did do a good, job, a good but payoff like, in that regard. Tanaka, I, I can't blame Tanaka for not having the entire story and all of its key, you know, plot pillars in his head. Um, here we are, you know, um, twenty four years later, still trying to suss that out. So for Hiromichi Tanaka, who was just being a you know a financial guy on this, to not know at the time, you know, that's just the realities of of making games, I guess. I agree. I agree. I don't know anything about actually making games, but the back of Perfect Works has developer commentary, and all of them, almost all of them, talk about how tired and burnt out they are, mm -hmm. and how they just want to go home. And I think if you say, "Hey, we're going to have about um, 40 scenes with JPEGs and text," but also there's a Power Rangers scene, and there is a uh, <laughs> just something a fun for them robots. to. Yeah. Okay. Like, it Fair incentivizes enough. something. I don't know if that actually makes sense, yeah. but it is. I do make games. Lifted their spirits briefly. <laughs> I, I, for one I do week. make games, and we do that actually. The RTM, <laughs> yeah, like the RTM, gets yourself. upset, and like artists are sensitive, yeah. and sometimes we throw them a bone with doing something really cool, like and you, especially art directors. Like I, my art director might watch this, and he's an incredibly talented guy. But sometimes he gets like a creative burst, and he needs he needs to go somewhere, and like the the vision team has to be like, okay, all right, here's a channel for that. Um, so that absolutely happens because um, we do need to figure out because like they're you know they're making that game too. It's their baby too. They need something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of things that I would have liked to have seen played out more than anything, I would have loved to have seen the scene where. Ramses storms Nissan and then takes mm. uh, takes yes. hostage. Oh, that scene definitely they, needed. They glossed yeah. over that yeah. too yeah. much You're because 
you know, and also we get the, the disappointment of like almost feeling like Ramses is going to join our party late in the game yeah. when, you, yes. when you meet him on top of the snowfield hideout. So, like, was it Zephyr <laughs> who mentioned that? Yeah, you go talk to Zephyr and then the, yeah. the cuts the, the flashback. And it's like, do you think happens? she'll fight with you? And it's like, hey, we're just glad he's not fighting against us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that was, uh, that's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's disappointing. But I, I think seeing his arc play, play out like that would have been really interesting. I mean, that not to mention yeah, the various. I mean, I don't know if I needed another uh, homogenous uh, dungeon to go through, just you know, with nuclear missiles and stuff. But like, yeah. I could have, I could have yeah. seen some of this. Uh, well, I would have liked to have seen some of the scenes play out in uh, the uh, sure. non-JPEG format. But I do love this too, <laughs> and I do love the, I do love getting the interiority. So I don't think it's bad that that disc two is structured like, like it is with the kind of the, the narration thing. I just wish yeah. there was a little bit more meat on the bone in terms of it, gameplay. It really and, didn't bother me at all this time. And even the first time, I don't remember feeling like gypped by the way it's presented. It just kind of felt artsy to me. Right? Yeah, yeah. But at least it didn't feel like, oh my gosh, this is so out of left field and so weird and stupid that it like it didn't bother me like at all. Well, things happen, right? Yeah. Like it's not like a can example of like them spinning their wheels and getting nowhere. Like you know, like the la- the the episodes of like a twenty four episode anime, you have like episodes 17 18 and 19 which just recapitulate the plot because they're out of budget yeah um but uh you know in, in this case that's it's not that they really have a lot of plot to cover so it doesn't feel like we're going nowhere and this is just you know we're just examining our navels for 20 hours to pad the game length like right. so much happens in each cutscene. you're like whoa okay oh there was a yeah. giant war everyone in kiss love is dead uh it's like, yeah. like and that's a cutscene. Like, like well, okay, all right. It was, it was like at the end of every one of those sequences, I was like pausing and like frantically writing notes, trying to remember everything, and then going to have to rewatch the scene again to make sure I get like, like yeah. get it right. There's, it, it's very packed. Like each of those scenes are packed with very, very good. Ten percent of humanity yeah. dies yeah, in I each agree, scene. I agree. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, so like, like at the end, you're like, it's like, okay, we're at eighty percent. I don't know how many more seasons there are. I think that's one thing that we we, we kind of lose the the ability to sense the. Uh, the, the rampant death of humanity at that point in time because we can't travel through towns. If we could travel like back to uh, to Ave or whatever, we could see that like you know the the kid that was selling uh, that was selling uh, well, monster bones or whatever is, is is now gone and stuff like that. That that would have been a, a good way to uh, you know make us feel that, but instead it it, it moves very quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, we got another uh, question here from Chocolate Rob. This one's primarily for Case, and I would think. Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> I had you look this up earlier. Yeah. So he says, um, he's, this isn't really about the game itself, it's about the Creed album, or Creed album, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. It's one of the Xenogears like orchestral albums. Yeah. Um, he's talking about how there are certain tracks um, that they're, they're all in Japanese on Creed. Yes, but on Creed. In, in the original OST, they were in English. And, and the English came first. Right. They wrote the English songs first, and then they did the Japanese to right. the tune. So it, for two in particular, he's interested. Uh, Star of Tears, which is called Two Wings on yes. Creed. And then uh, I think it's Mebius or Mobius, which was small two of pieces in the yeah. OST. Um, he wonders if... The Japanese is a transliter, like a translation from the English, or if they went, you know, he's just confused about yes. the origin language and how it was translated into Japanese. Yeah. So the answer to that is no. These songs have the lyrics of these songs have nothing to do with each other, even a little bit. Oh wow! They are so Completely unbelievably different. different. I have right here. Well, the Japanese. I've got a translation that I did. Uh, the wiki also had somebody else do their own translation. Uh, but just to make sure for that, I did kind of my own here. 
Um, and with the Japanese, for instance, um, for um, Stars of Tears, Two Wings, says uh, the English says, your fingertips moving gently to my heart, the force of life goes on and on. The song remains like a haunting melody of angel music caught in chains, and I ask you, can we ease the pain of those who lost? Okay, right. <laughs> the translation I got from the Japanese is, the stars fell, held by the sky. Listen to a nostalgic voice. Why are we born? Why are we calling? I can't fly alone with just one wing. That was, those were the same lines. Wow. I read mine version, and then this official English version was completely different. So the English version came first, but when they created these songs in Japanese, they rewrote the songs. Mm. They didn't say, okay, well, what did they say in English? Let's more or less try to move that over here. Um, I, I also have a theory here, and I wrote this down. Um, I believe uh, what I would probably say is that the Japanese, um, oh no, here it is, because that part's wrong. The, I think that um, they probably gave the English version uh, license, the people writing the English song and however they did it, license to do whatever they wanted to do to make the song work in uh, more of yeah. the English or in a Western way instead of giving them a thing to translate or a thing that like, hey, we want that it to be like this. That sounds like. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, hey, just do whatever, just make it a good song. Right, just make it a good song, and it's it's relevant. And the same thing with this other one, um, the um, Broken Mirror, A Million Shades of Light, the old echo fades away. Right, mm -hmm. that line in Japanese is in this endless blue sky, ten million stars hide themselves. You're kind of getting a similar kind of thing, but at least the the millions of yeah that that part. <laughs> and then we can run to the end of the world. Is here's the truth. You can see it with your eyes closed. Mm. But they're so different, wow. incredibly different. Wow. Um, but I believe that they, they said, hey, you know what? Let's pretend that English song never existed. Let's write our own more relevant to the game version huh. um, in just straight in Japanese and let's just not even look at the English at all. And they rewrote the lyrics. It's actually beautiful. I, I kind of... So for you the, prefer the Japanese? For Mo Mobius, the Broken Mirror, Million Shades of Light, I actually prefer the English for that one. Oh, okay. But... For uh, this one up here, for Stars of Tears slash Two Wings, yeah. I prefer the Japanese that they did there. It's way more thematic. It's way more relevant to Xenogears I wonder that's than why, the English. if that's why they renamed the songs. Yeah, that's that would make it's sense. It's called Two it's Wings like, instead of... It's like these are different. Yeah. These are different songs. It's Stars not the Japanese Tears. version. It is a different song. They completely rewrote it from scratch. Wow. That's yeah. crazy to know. I never see that, by the way. I was so surprised <laughs> at looking at the translations and being like, this is unbelievable. They just rewrote the song completely, but it, it still fits. But honestly, the English and Japanese, they both still fit, yeah. but they're so different. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, oh, by go. the way, Chocolate Rob, that new um, uh, Concerned Ape game, oh. the Stardew Valley game about the chocolatier, I think it's called Chocolatier, Haunted Chocolatier. Yeah. I thought of you. <laughs> okay, let's go. This next question comes from Namar. I like this one a lot. We'll probably take a little time on this one. I'm curious about everyone's thoughts on how the themes of the game had any real-world impact on your own thoughts and beliefs and ideas, or if they drew inspiration from it in uh, your personal and professional lives. <laughs> from those that have played this game and longtime fans, more than any other in my experience, I've consistently heard that the ideas and themes impacted them in a meaningful way. That's That's... That's true for me, for sure. Yeah, that's that's a big question there. Yeah, Pat's answer. <laughs> Sorry the longest. to jump in your Kool Aid, but well, <laughs> uh, not a small question. Um, yeah. yeah. Who wants to go first? You guys have a good story. Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, 
I, I played this game when I was uh, 17, 18 years old, and as we've mentioned in the past, we, uh, Eric and I both went to Catholic school, so yeah. um, we're both kind of, or at least for me, I, I'm, I'm kind of already starting to like question, like, what are the, what, what are these power structures and why do they exist in my life? And uh, with with Xenogears being so critical of, of power structures that have to deal with religion, like, obviously, like, the ethos has, like, an ulterior, ulterior motive that has nothing to do with uh, kindness or religion or anything like that was, like, uh, I guess, revelatory for me to, like, allow me to be uh, skeptical of, of, of structures of, not, not just religion, but structures of power. Uh, so... Uh, that may have been a, a product of me playing this when I, when I was 18, when you tend to have those kind of thoughts anyway, but right. it definitely like accelerated my, my, my path of, of, of thinking about the, the, the structures that were, that, that exist in, in my life and exist, you know, around us. Hmm. Also, like I always, at this point I sought, I, I, when I, when I played RPGs, I sought stories to impact me in the same, in the same way that this game did. And I never found it, which I guess led me to doing a podcast about it 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> I say it a lot, but like I, I went to buy Xenogears because it was the game with the giant robot on the cover. And I didn't know that it was going to like lead me down the path to atheism at some point. So there's, there's a, a strange bridge that you don't necessarily expect a video game to take you down. Mm. Um, and other than that, pretty much the same thing Chris said. We went to the same school. Didn't really know each other there, but it was the same... Like once you're that young and you've been in a Catholic school for you know eleven or twelve years at that point, the outside a world outside of that seems alien. And then yeah. Xenogears was kind of an invitation, indirectly, to start exploring uh, other places. Yeah, and I think for me too, it was like a, an invitation to to seek out media, whether it be uh, other video games or anime or whatever that had these kind of uh, non-traditional uh, worldviews and uh, uh, critiques of. Of, of the structures that we that we grew up in. Mm. All right, Pat, it's your turn. Um, it's interesting that Eric talks about um, leading a better path to atheism because this made me much more interested in um, the ancient part of the religion that I practice, uh, Christianity. And uh, in spite of my many four-letter words, um, I'm sorry, I'm very Irish in that way. But uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it made me like, it's like, oh, so like, there's like, I had like my Sunday school lessons where it's like, okay, I understand where this is going. Like, I understand what this is about and the enculturation that's happening here. It didn't bother me personally, but then I was like, oh, there's all this ancient stuff where they have all these big ideas. And like, like, I was like, I was like, I was like, there's Augustine and Milton and, and all these other thinkers who have these incredibly rich ideas about religion that are not, you know, for, for good reason. Sunday school is like, you know, you get eight kids in a room at different reading levels um, at different ages, you know, it's not going to be like, you're not going to have this really impactful theological, um, debate in the Sunday school. It's not going to happen. It's not, that's not what it's for. Um, they're transmitting a culture to you and then they're going to, you're going to take the ball and run with it. Um, and so that I did. And it was, I, I, I had a really rich experience. In fact, um, uh, Xenogears literally reshaped my entire life. I spent from the time that I played it, I, I always, I already wanted to be a game developer. Um, when I, after I played Secret of Mana, cause it was just like, yeah. oh, this is from another planet. Um, in the 1994, and, and I later learned that I actually also have ADHD, which means that I was destined to become a video game developer because <laughs> like almost everybody I know who's a game developer has ADHD. It's a little alarming, yeah. a little worried about us. Um, we, we're, we're hanging in there, but, uh, um, but yeah, like I, I, I after playing Xenogears, I was like, I need to become the person who could understand and make this. And then I literally spent 
my entire education and many years and even you know 10 years after I left college working actually like 12 years after I left college studying to understand what was going on in Xenogear so that I could explain and then make something very much like it. So like I, I, I in college, I, I took Latin and Greek for a little while. I took psychology. I went to the, the library and, you know, everyone else was out partying and I was in Saturday night, I was in the library reading the Zohar. Um, but but uh, you, you know, were invited to the parties, right? No, no, I was not invited to the parties. <laughs> uh, the, the, that, that, that ruins the story though. I, like, I need to be like, I need I'm sorry, to have some, sorry. some Moe girl from, you know, with a short anime skirt being like, Patrick, aren't you coming to the party? Be like, no, I can't. No. I must study. Yeah, that completes it. That completes <laughs> it. You don't understand my tragic backstory. Um, <laughs> he was studying the blade. It was the Zohar. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like reading the Zohar and I'm reading like Jung's Ion and Jung's uh, The Archetypes. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm in there and I'm like, oh, I'm getting this stuff. Cause like, you know, the Zohar begins with talking about the, the radiance, um, the emanation from beyond the end of the universe, um, where God, you know, the emanation of God that created the universe in this light. Mm. And like all these little wordplay things that are going on in the Hebrew and how man man and woman complement each other and, and used to be one soul before they were divided. And I was just like, oh, wow, this really is in there. They, they weren't joking around. They really went for it. And then like I'm reading, you know, young, and it talks about like, the the blessed mother and the terrible mother i'm like oh that's me and ellie like wow they really they it really was true like they really did go for it and um and then i went to japan to learn like why is japanese like how did japanese culture produce these things um like what is it different about their culture that they allows them to produce this pop, you know work of pop art which is just full of all this cool stuff whereas that, from that, all that over stuff the never, world yeah, like there's really fine, beautiful, moving, thoughtful things that can produce in the West. Like, um, for example, The Incredibles and The Incredibles 2 are, are two things that have a lot to say about, you know, family and superhero culture and all that stuff or Watchmen, right? But they're not full of references to Gnosticism, Freud, and it's like, com they're not comparing like, oh, how, here, here's how Gnosticism, Freud, and Kabbalah are all about becoming whole. Like, that's not in there. Um, and you know, our culture used to produce things like that and like paradise lost or, um, you know, some of Shakespeare or things like that. Um, mm -hmm. I guess Thomas Pinchon sort of does that, but he doesn't really have a lot of ideological ground to cling to after the undermining of institutions. Um, but like I, in, you know, in Japan they had, you know, there was a lot of things that led them to do that. I was like, oh, okay. So they, you know, this, I'm to begin to understand how and why they got to that really rich, um, imaginative life in 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 based on what their culture is like um and so like you know after spending then i did wrote my book series and so it's like where i did all this gigantic research thousands of hours of research on games and how they get made and what they're about and i was just like so that i could one day become a guy who could make something like xenogears mm -hmm. so um you either think that's pretty cool so you it think affected I'm a giant you loser. a little bit it affected <laughs> yeah. you like you know just a touch yeah you, you, no you think that's pretty cool which means you're a xenogears fan and you think that makes me a giant loser which means you're my <laughs> wife <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I spent a whole career trying to become Tetsuya Takahashi, um, but maybe with um, slightly better focus on actually getting games completed oh. and keeping the budget down. And on that note, uh, Quartet, which is the game you're directing right now, had a very successful Kickstarter. Campaign. Oh yeah, yeah, we, it was how great. Was, um, how was development proceeding on that? Um, great. Um, we are paying our artists. Um, Nice. Amounts of money to give me heart attack, but that's what the <laughs> oh, I thought you were for. just scared you're paying your artist because a lot of times <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, hey, that's a start. <laughs> yeah, well, we, 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 he, you know, they work for us and we pay them. And I, if you, 
<laughs> funny, funny story. Little, little, very, very short side note is um, okay. Um, pixel art is very expensive these days. If you yeah, get a good less pixel people artist. do it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, for for the good stuff, it's really expensive. But like when I was, you know, I I already after I played Xenogears, like my my middle school science teacher, Mr. Schmidt, was like. I'm drawing in his classroom, like he's in science class, he's teaching, you know, like biology, and I'm drawing little pictures. And he's like, mm. he takes it, rips it up and goes, you're never going to get anywhere drawing little pictures. And now I'm paying, you know, like thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to guys who draw little pictures for a living. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, like, oh. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, Quartet's coming along and I promise there is, it's not Xenogears, it's not about killing God. Um, it's not. <laughs> what? I mean, That's okay. There's room for that well, too. You and know Xenogears what? fans need to realize this. There is room for stories other than <laughs> of this layer of depth and complexity that are still awesome and worth talking right. about. But there, there is a lot of ancient stuff. Um, there's a lot of ancient Greek ideas in it, um, mm. and uh, and so a lot of yeah, and a lot of like cool. interesting, I think interesting ideas from like Aristotle. There's actually like ver long verbatim quotes from Aristotle in the game, sneak snuck in as, as regular dialogue, um, just to see like it's it's like. When I came to understand what Takahashi was doing, he wasn't writing a manual. He was making a comparison that illuminated what the original source material was right. He's not, it's not Ayn Rand saying like, this is how you should live. It's just, mm. let me cast light on this subject and how these two or three things have something in common. Yeah. So I, w I wanted to do that and Quartet is the really the first attempt at that. That's awesome. What, 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 what comes after Quartet? Is it sing, Sinquet? <laughs> Quint. Sextet. Sextet is six, right? Quintet. Quintet, there you go. Yeah, you're gonna do. Is quintet in the world? Oh, you're making the new no. Terranigma. Quintet. Um, yeah, they, they, they quintet oh, there you go. Actually, oh, there you go. okay. There you go. There's Sorry, another game um, that I'm working on directing for a client um, called My Familiar, um, and uh, that also has um, some ancient ideas. But I, he, he asked me not to spoil what they are. Okay. Um, so, uh, but that it also has some fun, like thousand year old ideas in it too. So that that'll be fun too. Yeah, looking forward to cool. it. Uh, I played the demo. Um, it's really great. So everybody, look it up. Looks yeah, awesome. free demo. When 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 is the projected release date? You know? Um, probably like Christmas twenty twenty two. But um, okay. you know, we'll see. We'll something keep like everyone year, updated. Something like a year out. But yeah, we're gonna do a long beta to iron out the problems because you know, yeah. like there's no hype to speak of. We're not gonna miss quarterly projections and have Bobby Kodak <laughs> come and lay us all off. Yeah. So we're gonna do a long beta where we smooth it all out and we release a nice product. So that might delay it past the date, but okay. we'll be pretty cool. transparent about it. Sweet. Uh, how about you, Kason? How did you feel about the game's themes? How it affected? Oh, very much so. I, I probably couldn't, or I shouldn't go into all the different ways that it affected me. Uh, but this is a profound game. It is profound. It is profoundly deep. Um, and even even to the extent that they just kind of collected a bunch of ancient things and put it into one smorgasbord of a game, right? They really were positing some original ideas as far as I can tell in terms of, you know, how how this all could all come together and mesh into one, which as we started playing the game, I was like, Jung and Freud didn't agree on anything. What are you doing putting them in the same game together? Now that's not true. That's not really what I said, but they had some big differences and you're yeah. going to put them together and pretend that they were in agreement. But it's like, well, you know what? They actually found some parts that they weren't in agreement and that, you know, do seem to come together in, in a beautiful way. Um, and then all of this crazy stuff. They just kept putting in thing after thing after thing. And um, honestly, the biggest thing that this game probably affected me on was that, you know, it pushed me to kind of go deeper into some of the real world stuff and look, look at that a little bit deeper. And that's cool. Any game that gets you to open a book 
and read a book mm -hmm. is a good game yeah. in, in its own right, you know? Yeah. And this game did that as well as telling a very compelling story with some great characters. So, yeah. you know, I got no complaints. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's like impossible to articulate. I know. I just had to. This game has like personally affected me. <laughs> it's so yeah. many ways. That's true for me. And there's too. like, I'm, I'm for sure going to leave something out mm -hmm. and like maybe that's okay, right? But How be... could that not be true? Yeah. How can anyone play this game and not be affected? Like this was really, it's, it's on that level. It's you know? crazy. Yeah. Um, but like one thought that came to me while Pat was talking, right, about, um, you know, ADHD oh, is yeah. like the, my thought, I, I've always hated um, the education system in the United States and how a lot of kids get left behind or they're all kind of pushed toward a certain style of learning or whatever. Yeah. And just the power that literary art has to get people focused on things. Hmm. Like the need to understand this really cool Shown an anime video game can push you <laughs> to like focus on what Jung is talking about, what right. Lacan is talking about, yeah. what Karen Horney was talking about, right? Like uh, Plato, even uh, like you, it, it just sparks hmm. your curiosity and your desire to learn outside material that maybe in school you couldn't have given two yeah. craps about. Yeah, because your teacher sucks <laughs> at teaching, <laughs> but Tetsuya Takahashi has managed right. to spark that desire to learn. Because right? of this game, I've read more books this year, just this year, yeah. than I had in the previous like five years. It's insane. Yeah, how, just just because of this game, how much yeah. that flame or desire to learn can be struck yeah. by one piece of art of art yeah um, by a good and, story. and that's that's why yeah. i have i have such a passion for storytelling because yeah. i i think that it is more effective in yeah. getting people to think than a lot of times you just sitting down in a class and someone yeah, trying yeah. to get you to be interested in something who might not have they may be very knowledgeable about the about the topic but they might not be very good at educating right? right they're not good at making it interesting presenting the information in a way that captures uh, captures your imagination. Mm. And that to me is like the embodiment and like the reason storytelling was invented to begin with yeah. tens of thousands of years ago. It's the reason we share stories. And it's, this is kind of the pinnacle of like why it's important to become good storytellers. Yeah. Um, so that's one part of it for me. The, the thing that struck me on this playthrough though in a big way was um, the way it handles relationships. Like and yeah. you know my experience at this point with the relationships that I have and and kind of coming to understand that some of the problems that I have in communicating um, is the fact that I have not done a good job at developing my inner opposite mm. um, as much as I could have um, sure and learning to embrace you know some of the um, the the traits of the yin right uh, yes. of the feminine side of things that doesn't mean like becoming more girly it means it, not being so obsessed with rationale, yes. <laughs> learning to embrace paradox, learning to focus more on spiritual things and not so much on yeah. what you can see and touch and prove. Like, and the, emotional understanding. And it, the yeah. fact that my miscommunication in some of my relationships was probably bred from this fact that I wasn't doing that enough. Mm -hmm. um, on top of like Enneagram 
personality stuff yeah, and learning to understand cool. what drives people and what they're afraid of and why, yeah. um, why they are the way they are. Uh, it has really helped me in my relationships to communicate better, um, to understand people better, and to become less reclusive because of that. Because that's my tendency when I'm struggling yes. to understand people is just, I, I get away from me. <laughs> I can't stand you people, <laughs> right? And to be like, okay, well, hold up. That's a problem with me, right. not a problem with them, right? Right, right, right. I, 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 there are things I can do to understand them better if they can't articulate as well as maybe I'd like them to, right? So mm -hmm. there's that, um, and uh, just, just really all kinds of ways that this game gets you to think about your life. And uh, it, it's, it, it's really, it, like I said, it's almost impossible to count the ways. And I think each time I replay this, which I will do many, many times more in my life, I, hope I will find more ways in which it will, you know, challenge me yeah. in, in certain ways, you know, in what I think. So It's so funny because it is, it is a shonen video game, <laughs> but, but it moves beyond that. And yeah. I don't, you don't often see video games get beyond, get into a more mature relationship theme and what it really means to be in a relationship with with an opposite with somebody like yep. with somebody else you know mm. a lot of games it it just it just feels shallow and they just don't want to go into it you know right. and a game like this it just takes shallow ideas and makes them mature and it develops them throughout the game mm -hmm. in just a beautiful way yeah it's very it's impactful great. i think it, i think we would we would be like we've all told our four personal stories about the game but yeah. I, you know, I moved into th this house like nine years ago, and when we first moved down to this basement, it was unfinished except for this room. It was painted blue, and there were guitars hanging all, all around the room. Uh, mm -hmm. The room was a little bit longer. The wall was a little, little bit further out. And I was like, what am I going to do with this room? I don't know. We don't really, we didn't have kids. We didn't really have any plans for this one finished room in the basement, so it ultimately became a storage room. Uh, nine years later, there's a picture of a dolphin man hanging above my friend Eric's head <laughs> on a podcast because of Xenogears. Right. And, yeah. you know, like, I, Eric and I both love podcasts. We love video games. We love video game podcasts. And, uh, you know, we, we did a general video game podcast years ago, and, you know, we had, like, five people that listened to it, and it was fun to do. But uh, we, when we decided to make this podcast, it was like, well, it, it'll be cool if we can get our friends to listen to it. But we did not really understand that we would that there was such a... Uh, I, I guess a underserved uh, niche brigade. out there. Yes, yes, uh, of of <laughs> people you, that that had that had the the same kind of attachment that you know Mike that you just expressed about uh, about this game that would kind of develop uh, you know a, a community around us and allow us to not not, not just make it because we were just going to make a Xenogears podcast and just put it on the internet and then just walk away, but you know it developed into a community. It developed into you know seasons about other JRPGs, it's developed into the, you know, knowing you guys, it's developed into Patrick Holloman leaving 7,000 comments on every on every uh, post on uh, Patreon.com and, you know... Guys, you didn't, like, throw, you didn't throw me in the bus like that. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate them. I, I actually feel like those comments should be put somewhere out there in the uh, in the, in the ether to where you don't have to pay $3 to see them. So, uh, anyway, it's just like, the, I, I don't think that would have happened if we would have chosen, you know, I don't know, uh, Final anything Fantasy, else. anything else, yeah, anything else to, to, to start with. So we were able to do these other games and, and, and have this singular podcast to focus on, you know, to this, this meaningful distraction uh, and meaningful hobby 
uh, because we happened to accidentally choose Xenogears first. So, because yeah. uh, it had a cool mech on the cover. Yeah. Yes, cool robot. Yes, and and a fluffy pink animal with bird feet. Stand yeah. tall and, sh- and shake the heavens. Yeah. Just right. like yes, yes. it's like fifteen year old white boy bait. <laughs> yeah, kind of, it was. Yeah, that you know what, uh, the though? ad that was an EGM. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this game could have been a, a turning point. I, I just I, I lament that the game what it is in its unfinished state because of what it could have meant. This game could have been a revolution for video games the way Final Fantasy VII was, mm-hmm. the way well, the Mario if was. if it had been Final Fantasy VII as it was originally uh, One year earlier, exactly. Yeah. And then all of a sudden this game, and I, I, I love FF7, right? But, but this game represents a direction that video games are afraid to move in. It, not all, but by and large, video games avoid this kind of deep story, this kind of deep you know, thematic material. And they would prefer to go the way that most video games, at least the big AAA games that you play now, the way that those ones go. And people are kind of afraid to do Xenogears. And honestly, with good reason. It was hard for them to actually make this game. And in the end, they didn't finish it. Yeah. And I think you're that's, gonna see, that's difficult. I think you're going to see that some of these games come out, though, because uh, I'm, well, I'm running Kickstarters to, to make them. <laughs> I know <laughs> I'm not go. the only one, though. I'm not the only one. There's and a I'm lot not of saying they here. don't exist. I'm just saying that, you know, man, you... you after playing a game like Xenogears, you really would have thought that you'd see a lot more of that kind of stuff in games. And I feel like you you don't. At least yeah, not, true. not it, to a large extent. Not most yeah. most publishers wouldn't want to take that risk. They and they try like Xenosaga, no. right? They like, okay, let's do a smaller Xenogears and then they like, all right, all right, Mr. Takahashi, let's 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 spoil that down a little bit. I'm gonna put a new writer on this project. Yeah, you can just yeah. direct, then you can just produce, and it's just like yeah, the, the publishers are risk averse, um, but you know, there's like there's things like Witcher Three and Horizon Zero Dawn, which are not the same but have a similar scope. Yeah, um, like if you had a Witcher Three amount of time you, and money, you, you can say, but um, I don't know what I'm trying to say here actually because I don't feel like those games would approach what they tried to do here with Xenogears. No, no, they they don't. They, they're good you, in their own right in different ways, but like Xenogears is on a different level. Yes, I agree. I think I think if you had a, a Witcher three time and money though, and you had yes. a director like Tetsuya Takahashi, you could really go. For no, because like, then he'd is... just try to do even more. Yeah. <laughs> then he'd be like, now let's incorporate ancient Egypt and ancient Sumeria. Oh, and there's this really cool idea from the Norse. Let's take that, and then all of a sudden you've blown your budget and you're over your pass due again with your hundred million. Well, he's going to do that budget. no matter what. But exactly. if you had that Witcher three budget intact, at least the the attempt would be even more glorious. Hey, at least disc one would have. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> like, well, like think of Tatsuya Takahashi like the demiurge. He can never make a perfect product. That's true. There you go. There you go. That's a good point. Okay, let's move on here. Um, oh, this one's interesting. The case and in, in, uh, might have a good answer to this one too. Yeah. Um, this one comes from Christian uh, Dalen or Dallin. I have a request. This game has an obsession with hierarchy, mm. and I think we just witnessed one of the extremes: eating and being eaten. Even Matsuno games have power distributed more equally among its characters than Xenogears does. In Matsuno games, the characters are playing against each other, but in Xenogears, the characters literally exist in different stratospheres, considering who the final boss is, mm. uh, the ultimate expression of the top of the hierarchy. It would be interesting if you would explore the theme of hierarchy in the final analysis. How does this theme interact with the theme of dualities coming together? What is Xenogears trying to say with this? 
I actually don't know that I have a great answer for that. Okay, I, I well. do know that what the very end of Xenogears seems to be saying is let's let's do away with the hierarchy and all live together as one evenly, right? Yeah. I that's probably about all I got there. Is that okay. that's more or less where Xenogears seems to be going. Anybody um, else got something on that? We talked about it earlier, like the the Gnostic theme of like there's a god and then he creates Accidentally creates something, and then that acts, that the new false god accidentally creates, and then yes. so you, yeah, you have yeah, this chain of being. Yeah, yeah. So this profane version of the the great chain of being. So it, the hierarchy is an essential to that. You can't have the Gnostic theme playing out over and over again unless you have hierarchy. Yeah. You, you're, um, you're right. It's kind of a natural thing that happens. But I, as far as what the game is saying about hierarchy, it seems to me that the game is saying, stop it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's even when you even when you loop in like the the geopolitics, like the hierarchy of of Solaris Shavat and then the the surface and, and all that kind of stuff. Like yeah. pretty much every power structure that exists in that hierarchy, Xenogears is saying is is bad. Like, are there any yes. good power structures really? Like, not really. Maybe Nissan, but that's about it. Well, and maybe that plays into kind of the the Gnostic thing that that Pat's talking about because. Um, Anything in the physical universe, maybe these hierarchies would exist as structures in the physical universe, is mm -hmm. flawed or damaged or inherently evil somehow. Yeah. But in the wave existence, fifth dimension, everything is on. Everything is one. Everything's on the same wavelength. Right. right. It's like there isn't a hierarchy there. It's like everything's in harmony. Uh, and so maybe there's something there about uh, hierarchies being inherently flawed, kind of in that same way in this physical universe that we live in that yeah that seems to be more or less what it's saying um try as you might you can't get rid of hierarchies though well that's part of being in the physical universe is that yeah. you have to deal with the you have to deal with the things that are imperfect that's just what life is you yes. can't you can't abolish them or make them perfect until well, yeah you, escape you, you this think you want to abolish them uh, <laughs> until you find out what happens when you do yeah <laughs> It's also interesting, though, like Tetsuya Takahashi is famous for being a curmudgeon who does not take a lot of input. Yes. Like, so, like, he, uh, he needs a hierarchy to make his games. Like, <laughs> he, the, he needs The people somebody. above him, he doesn't listen yes. to. The people below him, he's like, that's nice. That's very cute. Keep going. Um, <laughs> so he, he is a creature of hierarchy in the most absolute sense. Um, yeah. So he would be the reason hierarchy exists in some ways would be people like him to be curtailed and to be confined and to be... Focused. Yeah, right. it would take him 30 years to make one game if he was at his own devices. It's actually good for him that there are constraints and that there's somebody out there yeah. telling him, you've you got to finish this, dude. Another uh, ADHD tie-in, possibly. Then. Yeah. No, I feel... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one comes from Tom Schneider. Uh, let me skip through the beginning part a little bit here. I was curious about fans of Xenogears and how they would feel about a modernization and a finishing of Disc 2, i.e. a jump uh, in polish with the graphics. Um, I know that the team is probably scattered, it's a pipe dream that will never happen, but I always felt that this game deserved a second go, especially on modern consoles with all its cinematic majesty. Um, no I thanks. Think, I think we've more or because less this, on this, already. this is the perfect art style for video games, in my opinion. Yeah. This PS1 sprite, 3D, pixelated, like. I don't I think want it's a remake of Xenogears. No. As much as more, well, maybe like a, kind of like what, what was it that uh, the director of Nier said? It's like a. Oh, 
It's like a 1.5 1. 1. something yeah, yeah. or whatever other. that fraction <laughs> is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, like, it's like a yeah. I, an like expansion. A modernized pixel art take on it. Like like um, Project Octopath Traveler, right? Or like something, something like that. that. I could, I could get behind something like that. But as far as finishing disc two that goes, though, there's so much that can go wrong. Like if you don't have the original team, it depends on. If if Tetsuya Takahashi was not involved, I wouldn't want it. It could be that disc two is a lot less cool than we think it is. Yeah. When, and if they actually flesh it out, and we're like, oh well, that's not as cool as <laughs> what I was thinking. Uh, can we go back to the PS one thing? Yeah. I feel like that's inevitably likely to happen, but it would be cool to see all that stuff. I mean, we talk about fixing things here and there. It's a total pipe dream, um, but uh, in some ways, it's like, be careful what you wish for, because yeah. I doubt we'd really get anything better than what we already have. I, I think I think I've shared a similar sentiment in one of your tweets, Pat, about wanting a Xenogears remake. I was like, you really want Square to, <laughs> you really want Square to do that now after all? Yeah, because <laughs> it won't be re- Takahashi directing it. Like a like a remaster that just fixes things and uses things that are already in game data, because like there's a lot of unused yeah. game data as well, there are in many. That that sounds like a good um, just project for somebody to right. do so on their own. All, all I want is for them to release it on PC, really, because then yeah. we can ah, add there it. you go. Yeah, um, you can. It yeah, would yeah. Be really, because like I know there's some guy who I think he's like a JLPT one passer, and he um, yeah. he's doing a he's doing is a retranslation. Yeah. Um, oh, and good. I'm, like, I'm waiting because I. No, I've I, heard. I'll, I'll be like, he's been doing that. this for years, though, right? Yeah, he he only announced the project this summer. Oh, oh good. Been, uh, this is a new one. I'm not aware of. Yeah, uh, I forget. I'll I'll try and link it to you. But yeah, there he was just someone announced. ten years ago who was going for a while and then just yeah the, clearly the got a job or something because it's stuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had had some kids that that ended that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And so ends Project Noah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, like so, like you know, like basically, what if someone would retranslate it, then someone else should come along and edit it because, like, um, yeah. Xenogears is one of those games that requires not just translation, but a, also a second localization pass yeah. for like the Gazelle Ministry, because um, like the Gazelle Ministry needs to be not just translated but localized because what they're doing yeah, is yeah. like what a Japanese boss does, like yeah. Japanese. So in, in this is a linguistic thing in Japanese. The onus is on the speaker to make sure that they understood, or on the, on the listener to make sure that they understood what the speaker was saying. That's so why you need clarification. is so common. Yeah, right. Yeah. You need to ask because it's on you. And bosses basically never have to be clear. They, the onus is on the underling to be like, "What did you mean by that? About that?" And then a lot of times, if you watch like um, Agretsuko, you can see <laughs> how the, the employees like it's the I office but for Japan, right? Yeah. But you can see how the employees are like, "What did the boss mean? What did he mean? What did he mean?" Because they're afraid to ask. So like that's what the that's what the um yeah and the culturally that's what the uh, gazelle ministry is doing right they are being like j- super high old crusty Japanese bosses who just say a bunch of vague things and make everyone scramble scramble around them but that concept needs to be translated into English in a different way yeah I wonder like, what the best way to do that would like be. old country club boys you know talking you know at, at their at their you know uh, Freemasons meeting so you would change the way they talk. <laughs> You would change the way they talk to be like sure, the sure. cultural equivalent of of what Japanese bosses do, um, because it's, it's 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 that 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 kind of speech is so vague, like linguistically cannot even form a complete thought in English. Yeah, it's it just linguistically it just doesn't work. So you'd have to have them say like, oh, it's just like you remember back then during that war, and that that's like what they're trying to say is like, right. and they'd just be more specific in English because in English you just have to be more specific. 
Right. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to ask a, a loaded question. Do we have any Sonic the Hedgehog fans here? Uh, uh, not no. necessarily, I don't think. No, thanks. Well, Sega had been, has been messing up Sonic debatably for the last, uh, since the Clinton administration. But then, uh, I, I, am, the, I am aware of this. I'm aware of this. Since Sonic, Sonic Mania. 17, Sonic Mania came out, which was yeah. largely a game made by the Sonic fan community who had yes. seen Pro and proven yeah. themselves. Yeah. And Sonic Mania was like pretty much a remix of a bunch of Sonic 3 levels with three or four brand new levels integrated in. And if you find someone who's knowledgeable about it, understands the limitations of the game, understands like what made the game function well, and is talented enough to make something new on top of that, I think you can do a 32-bit Xenogears in the same style, expanded with reasonable limitations to make a product that honors the original without requiring the original development team who has since moved you know, on and gotten older, that stuff like that. I, I think what you're advocating for here fans, is that Squaresoft bring Pat Holloman in. I know, I was going to say, we got one right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is that is a remake that I could get behind yeah. because the fans know this and they... The spirit of the work better than Square does. Yes, yeah. yeah. I would rather have a fan remake of FF7 we'll, than... We'll um, have, um, have Christacular do... Um, do, do consulting on the nanotechnology too. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> like, there you go. Nanotechnology assistance provided by Dr. Kristen Cedarquist. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, I know that we've been going here for a long time. Let's maybe just do a couple more and wrap up. Okay. So I'll sit in a pixelated chair and be very brief about it. <laughs> uh, okay, let's do this one. Xenogears was a perfect example of the sum being more than the parts and the spirit of the project surviving the execution. For me, a big part of that was the soundtrack. Xenogears completed uh, Mitsuda's golden trilogy years, with uh, Trigger being the whimsical and colorful, Cross being the darker, more cultured, and Xenogears being the most spiritual and mature. If you think Xenogears succeeded despite its trappings, what element do you feel made the biggest difference to you? This question came from a musicologist. <laughs> Probably. Clearly. Uh, I don't know. Let's. Uh, who wants to take that one first? That, 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 that's, it's a tough question because uh, yeah. I, I don't know if it's a sum of parts. I just think it has a lot of good parts, you know, because <laughs> uh, like, you know, we, you guys have talked about this throughout the course of, 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 of your analysis of the game. But there are so many good um, in I don't know if anybody's a sports fan, but like you always like you, you label a certain player on a basketball team who's not the most talented guy. Uh, and not the most uh, 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 the highest paid guy, or the most essential guy, but he's the glue guy. He's the guy that holds the whole team together. Yeah, and yeah. this game has like a lot of glue guys, I guess, because there's like the not not just the the NPCs that 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 kind of fleshed out the world, but it also has a lot of these kind of secondary or 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 even even lower tiered characters like the 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 elements, and you know even somebody like Yui just fleshes things out just a little bit more than. That, that it needed. So there are like a lot of a lot of really good small parts, and I, I don't know if I necessarily agree that the the game, uh, like, is the is the sum of all is is greater than the sum of all its parts because all those all those parts are really, really well glued together. I think it's there just may be they, they, too they, many great parts. Yeah, in order to well, make that, a good sum. <laughs> yes, that, thus we must sit in chairs and explain to you those parts. <laughs> I I think it does makes sense the whole greater than the sum of its parts because I don't know that I will ever try to explain this game to anybody <laughs> ever I don't know that I can it would be you already did too you a psychiatric <laughs> commitment if you try I, I played it while Mike explained it but you know fair enough okay but um, it would be really difficult but at the same time 
like. Well, you've had conversation with Eric about it, right? You sort of. I've told him to about him. general themes about. It. I just tell him that what the themes are and what it incorporates and all that stuff. I haven't really I tried to explain. Sorry, it. our buddy Eric. Yeah, a friend of ours. Um, you know, I, I feel like this game, um, in a lot of ways, is is a little bit of a mess. Yeah. But it is so, so good it's and impactful and meaningful. Mess. And it's one of the better games I've ever played. But but if you look at all of the technicals or any of the, you know, just the, the story in general or looking at some of the characters here and there or, you know, if you measure the music or whatever it is, it's like, okay, there's other things that did it, all of those things better yeah. in, in different ways. But as a cohesive whole, it outshines all of them. You know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in its own way that's more important, I think, yeah. in a more important way. And that is hard to explain. So I think it does have that X factor there. I think I do agree with where you're going with that because I know the first time I played the game and I came to the end of it, I didn't, re- I could not determine or decide how I felt about it. I did not yeah. know whether I liked or disliked Xenogears <laughs> after the first time playing it. And I feel like as our analysis kind of went on, as the podcast episodes went on, mm-hmm. when I really like focused in on particulars and details, I actually felt like I became more critical. Yes, and that some of the it podcast kind of, fell apart kind of a little trended bit. a little more negative in certain episodes. Yeah, and as we went on, and as I sort of like cared less about some of that, or, or just focused more on some of the the broader concepts or just how it kind of all comes together as a whole, mm-hmm. I feel like I like it. I like looking at it that way a little more. Yeah. So if I were to pick one element that made it kind of come, I would probably pick music too. The music really is just amazing, the way it creates mood. It's, it's very good. Yeah. And I mean, even Takashi has his own quote of saying like, he didn't feel like, the game was coming together until, the way he liked until Mitsu's yeah, music was inserted. The soundtrack, and yeah. it was like, oh, there it is, there it is. Yeah. There's the spirit. There's the, where, there's where I'm going for. There's the essence mm-hmm. of it. I feel that now. So I would probably pick music, at least to a certain degree, but also just ambition and scale. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a rabbit hole that you just feel like you have to dive into. And, and it's not until me, you do that that you really appreciate the universe. Yeah, it's not yeah. until you realize yes, the 15,000 year time scale and yeah. all of the stuff it's referencing and you really explore all of that that you can actually understand it and really get the fullness out of the game. Something tells me that there are still hidden things in there oh, that, for that are references and things supposed to be there that even the fan community has not yet you know, found all of. Yeah. So, uh, Pat Holloman and I are back. Um, last week we, we left off, uh, before we could get through all of the topics we were hoping to discuss. Pat had a few in particular that he had done some research for, so let's not put that to waste. (laughs) Right. Um, there's also, uh, a few pretty good topic suggestions and questions from Patreon and YouTube that we didn't get to. So, um, I'm going to try and do that and then I'll just cut this in to the other video, um, when we're done. So. Why don't we lead off with you, uh, just pick one of the topics you had wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the big one is, right, is um, the comparison between, because Xenogears makes comparisons. Like, it's not, I think the interesting things about, the most interesting thing about Xenogears is that it, it doesn't just, like, have Gnosticism and have Kabbalah and have psychology in it. It makes a comparison between those things and comes up with something meaningful. 
Mm. And it comes up with the meaning that, you know, all of these systems, um, Gnosticism, Kabbalah, uh, Freudian psychology and Jungian psychology are about becoming whole um, in different ways. And so it just makes this, you know, unpleasant comparisons like these are different ways that people are trying to become whole. And many of the characters in the game reflect that. Um, So we covered uh, in the last session, we covered the the similarities between uh, Gnosticism and, you know, and um, the uh, the monad uh, of Plutinos. And how that's very similar to quantum mechanics, which is how the wave existence explains itself. So I, that's just a really cool comparison that, you know, comparing this really ancient idea of the monad, this ancient Greek idea, to, um, you know, the the um, problem, the, sort of those, uh, the uh, Schrodinger problem, right? Which is that you can't actually observe a quantum phenomenon. You can only observe a state that it assumes when you are in the middle of observing it. Um, right. And that that's just really cool. So it's like, hey, ancient idea, modern idea. Um, comparison there and then it, that that also means something to Faye. um but the other sort of through line is um the the com the commonalities between um freud and jung and um kabbalah so uh zohar which is um the the, the zohar modifier the computer that powers everything sort of the battery of deus um has absorbed um god essentially a part of god which um or you know it's 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 sort of ambiguous how much of god if there's more of him or not um, but it's got, you know, this this wave existence inside of it. And um, but the word Zohar is 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 a title of a book. Um, you know, we you've talked about this on the on your 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 podcast a few times. But it's the name of a book by a Jewish mystic in, living in Andalusia in Spain in uh, I think the twelve hundreds. And yeah. he just had this mystical revelation. He started writing down this book, which is really a forms a commentary on the um on the Torah, mostly Genesis. Um, but he just talks about these mystical ideas um, about like the, the radiance of God that came out and, and created the universe, which is actually how the wave existence describes um, what he how what he did, although what he did was accidental, just emanations from his dimension created the three dimensional world that Faye and Ellie inhabit. Um, so there's a similarity there. And then um, and a similar similarity to Gnosticism, too. Um, but also the, 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 the Zohar talks a lot about how, and this is kind of radical actually for, for Jewish thought at the time, how men and women were one soul and that they've only split when they reach the, um, the, the realm of creation, when they're descending from God's throne, they split into two and, and they're not whole. And, um, only by men, men and women coming together, can they be whole again? And that's, that's what you see with Faye and Ellie, right? And Ellie explicitly talks about this. She says that she's. You know, she only feels complete when she's in the arms of the man she loves, which is, you know, not not what you would ordinarily expect this incredibly empowered woman to say. But, you know, she makes no apologies um, when she becomes Sophia. Yeah, that's um, kind of the the symbol of Nysan as well, right? The Right. The, the, the one winged angels. It's not yeah. it's not like a it's not like it's just a Sephiroth cool thing. It means <laughs> something great. Right? The, yeah. They have to help each other and the masculine and the feminine helping each other. And of course, there's the yin and yang. I'm, I'm sure that as a, um, someone living in Japan, uh, the Takahashi was not ignorant of Confucius and 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 the Tao and, and everything, um, but you know, so he, the, the, there's this sort of revolutionary idea in um in in this mystical document um, that really elevates the position of women um, relative to some some of the things some of the ways that they were um, treated and in, in, in ancient times. Uh, Jewish women, if you read history, the Jewish women were never docile playthings of of their men. Um, and you know, um, that would be. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met any Jewish women, but <laughs> they're not like that. Um, yeah. uh, there, there's this archetype in, in the in the in the Old Testament called the woman of valor, um, and that's that's something that is taught a lot in in, in 
in Hebrew um, legends, which is like that there are at times there have been women who have been very brave who who kick a lot of ass. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not like it's it's not like saying that this was a totally um, patriarchal culture, but it was certainly saying that men and women are equal and need each other and can only be complete together. Well, that does, you know, that that, that is born out of the, the Bible and the, the creation story. God says, you know, oh, uh, you know, man, man does not need shouldn't be alone. He needs a woman. Um, yeah. someone who is his complement. Um, so that the, the author of the Zohar sort of runs with that into a place that, um, you know, wasn't, it's not unthinkable by Jewish standards of the day, but was not as prevalent in, in Jewish thought at the time. Um, sort, sort of forward thinking in that regard. And um, then you have like Freud and Jung, um, you know, Jung is coming at it from a much more Asian perspective, but still, um, you know, Freud and Jung, Freud talks a lot about how um, humans desire sex. Um, that's just like this base desire that motivates everything to do. And we also desire our mothers and we have all these desires for the opposite sex, which Freud, you know, Freud characterizes that as pretty chaotic and primal. And then um, Jung, Jung is a little more generous with it. He thinks it's just a natural good thing rather than this negative impulse that you have to mature out of. He thinks that your Jung thinks that your desire for the feminine or your, your desire for the masculine is part of your desire to become whole, um, and, and Jung is very much in in align with with Freud, um, and Jacques Lacan also had this idea that you know you 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 desire things and that desire is is a, is a problem, but it, you know um, fe masculine and feminine it's just your desire to have something. Um, not just Jacques Lacan really generalized the idea of desire, but you are looking to be become complete, a complete person. And that um, that's that's something that Freud um, shares with with the Kabbalah is that you are searching for some kind of compliment. Um, although, you know, Freud characterizes this as much differently because he, of course, he's a he's a doctor, a medical doctor in the modern era. He's not a mystic in Andalusia in Spain. But still, there's a comparison there of like this sort of um, you have the benevolent versus chaotic versions of the, the desire between men and women to 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 be whole together. Um, but obviously they both say that this is a primal human need. Um, one is mystical and one is sort of more essentialist and says, oh, you know, this is a biological imperative and, you know, beware. But oh, be aware that, you know, it is something within you and, and don't try to ignore it because, you know, that's that's unhealthy. Um, sure. So the, that comparison, I think, is just really neat. Um, and even Freud's, you know, in later his later years said, yeah, I think I think I was very heavily influenced by my Jewish education, which was extensive. He was the son of a wealthy um, Jewish merchant in Austria. So I think, you know, he was right in seeing that Jewish teachings um, really did influence psychotherapy and close reading and all of that. So I yeah. think I think that comparison, too, is just really it's just, you know, Takahashi had something to say. Um, and he said it in an eloquent way, in a way that was meaningful to the characters. I think that's a really interesting um kind of perspective on things because I know like as we were kind of going through the game Kaysen as he was trying to put things together was um, sometimes questioning or a little bit confused about how are you going to um, align the views of say Freud and Jung who were in so many ways divergent from each other they they disagreed right like how are you going to bring these things into harmony and it seems to be precisely what Takashi was trying to do is look for the similarities look for the ways in which they are similar look for the ways in which they complement each other look for the ways in which they work together rather than uh in in many different comparisons across all kinds of uh, obviously inspirations right and that was it seems like the conclusion he came to is this kind of like pursuit of wholeness um that there's many ways 
to to arrive there but but that there are uh across these different ways of thinking about it there's kind of one parallel he saw and that this happened to be to be the one right yeah it seemed like he was pretty deeply read of jung too because if you read like a summary on Wikipedia about Jung, you would not think that he Jung see, is is much interested in human relationships at a small scale. But if you read his books, um, you know his his big ideas are kind of pretty far out there. Like Jung is yeah. a big big dreams kind of guy. But if you read like his clinical notes, um, I want to say it was probably Ion or the Archetypes. Can't remember. All those books blur together when you read them. But um, yeah, <laughs> uh, he he really he really is all over the place. Jung Jung is just he's his books are a mess. But he's, some he's, of he's, he's tough to read. I, I was. Yeah. I was not having an easy time getting through Ion and when I was preparing for this podcast. Yeah, he's he's very much in, in a tradition with Nietzsche in writing in yeah. German of just jumping around a lot with crazy big ideas all over the place all the time. Um, but if you read some of his clinical, you know, notes, he like he frequently talks about like it's like well, you know, we can get caught up in our archetypes. Like if you've ever seen a couple who have kids and. Um, you know, the dad is just dad and the mom is just mom. And they call each like the, the, the husband and wife call each other mom and dad. And that's the roles they've assumed. And that's all there is in their relationship anymore. That's not a healthy relationship. And it's like, that's a wonderful observation. That's really applicable to like billions of people. Sure, um, yeah. But that's just like tucked in his book. But clearly Jung had this idea that like that, you know, that our desire for the masculine and feminine is also expressed in our relationships. It's just that, um, you know, he just he didn't talk about that in a grand way, but it was clearly um, you know part of his theory of that. So sure, um, and that shows up in this game. Yeah, for sure. Okay, um, let me take a look at some of the questions here. This one's from Prince Darkly. It says I'm not even sure how to phrase this as a question, but in your dev history research, were you guys able to get an idea of how the heck Tetsuya Takahashi and Sordia Saga ended up with a plot as extremely complex as this one? Not saying it's bad, mind you. It was a tremendous joy experiencing Xenergu's narrative for the first time. It really helped me have um, the luxury of discussions through this channel, because if not, I probably would have been confused out of my mind. It's just mind-boggling to me how much academic and mythological material are packed into here. I find writing a simple story hard enough. Um, so, to answer that part of it before going to the next part, Soria Saga had written a lot of this stuff as either outlines or short stories, years predating uh, Xenogears coming up. I have a quote here from an interview with her where she says, Back in 1994, I wrote a story about a young soldier of fortune with multiple personalities. Takahashi proposed the plan to our boss, though the plan was rejected because it was too sci-fi for RPG. She's mentioned that in many different interviews about they rejected it because it was too dark and complicated for an RPG. And then they made Final Fantasy VII essentially, like, very similar. But um, So, yeah, I mean, she was writing a lot of this stuff way back before Xenogears was greenlit as a game. And they had been discussing a lot of this philosophy years before this was a greenlit game, right? Um, and so it was a combination of their ideas that they had discussed together, um, that they had written about you know, uh, in, in sort of their private projects or whatever, ideas that had been brewing for many, many years, and they kind of worked together to, okay, how do we unify these, you know, cool concepts we've been thinking about for a super long time? So the, the origin of Xenogears probably dates back way, 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 way before 1997 or wherever de develop, development began. Uh, 
when they were kind of coming up with this. Obviously, they were working on the Final Fantasy series at Square. I think Tetsuya Takahashi had been working at uh, uh, Neon Falcom before that. Um, but in the midst of that, you know, their daily work, they were kind of had they had the ambition to write their own story and had been doing so for many, many years beforehand. So that is, I mean, the culmination of years and years of, of writing and thinking about this stuff is how they developed a, a story as complex as this. And then they kind of during the course of Xenogears came together and sort of pulled all of that into something comprehensive, right? I just want to make a comparison, which is um, uh, that when David Bowie was trying to do, I think his third album, um, he was kind of stuck. And that's when he started working with Brian Eno, mm. the sort of whiz kid producer. And what Eno had was this idea for constraints where he said like, um, you know, we're going to write a whole song where you can only play three strings on the guitar or you have to play an instrument you've never played or you can't use these notes of the scale. Uh, right. And that's like those constraints, Bowie found them to make him really creative and they created this awesome album. Um, but those constraints is, is the same thing that's going on with um, with Takahashi and, and, and um, his wife. You know, um, they had these two like Takahashi had his own idea for a story, too. And they just had to combine these two uh, stories that didn't seem like they would fit together. But of course, they just sat down and worked it out until they did. And so that's how you have this plot that really takes sort of a lot of sharp turns. But it all seems to work because they, they put the work in. Um, so they just those constraints really made them creative. And that's why Xenogears is really sort of unlike anything else. Yeah, it's it's really necessary to do that sometimes. I think Kaysen and I had talked about this on the exclusive podcast that goes just to the patrons once a month, is that um, a lot of times, you know, when you're trying to, when you get stuck in your writing or, or whatever it might be, whatever creative project you're working on, a lot of times the best way to get out of that is to force sort of arbitrary constraints on yourself. <laughs> and, and that will, like, by taking away this like ocean of options that you have for what you could do it starts to get you focused on just a few and you start to like experiment with those and all of a sudden it leads to some answers um yeah so the second part of this sorry they're doing some uh, construction apparently in the room underneath me i did not an anticipate this so there's a little bit of uh, noise going on downstairs um second part of this question was do you guys think having a more convoluted plot such as this is more rewarding of an experience or is it diminishing return sort of thing where too much complexity can hurt a story? How does this apply to your own writing, if I may ask? Huh, um, how do you feel about that? <laughs> That's like seven questions, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> That's a convoluted question. Um, I don't think that convoluted plots or simple plots are good in and of themselves either way, right? Yeah. Um, Hamlet is a simple plot. Um, with a very convoluted protagonist, right? Hamlet, I mean, if you think about it, Hamlet gets on stage and just can't make up his mind for four acts. Um, so, like, you know, like, Shakespeare can pull that off. But, uh, you know, someone like Masato Kato probably could not. Um, different strengths are different writers. And, uh, you know, so I think it's really just a matter of, like, play to your own strengths. Um, you know, write things that are interesting to yourself and, and work with your style. And that's certainly what I do. Um like when we're working on quartet, um, I, I just, you know, I, I was given constraints and actually I, I do this for a lot of clients. I walk into a situation where I have a bunch of constraints that it handed to me by them. And it's like some of them are like some of these decisions that the creators have made are like, I, ooh, I would not have made that decision, but now I have to fix it. And that's fine. It's my job. I get, I get paid to do that. I have no problem. But sometimes that leads to some story, story elements being a little bit convoluted. And 
um, you kind of want to push that stuff to the background a little bit. So it's like people who are really into that convoluted lore can go look for it. But people who are not can just see the surface story of like, oh, this is the chosen one or oh, these two people are in love. You definitely want to have that simple element on top of it, right? Like yeah. in this story, it's a love story. Faye and Ellie love each other and they deserve each other, right? They're destined for one another and the people they grow into. Like at the end, when you see them in Xenogears coming down from the sky, it's like that moment's great. That's just like oh, that's the ending awesome. is so satisfying <laughs> mm -hmm. because you actually... You know, these people deserve each other. And, you, of course, if you've seen the Zaboyam City flashback, you know that, like, there is a happily ever after waiting for them. It's not perfect, but they really, you know, they're going to create things together. That's that's mm -hmm. who they are. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, it's just a matter of personal style. Like, some people are good at really simple, direct stories. Um, I think of, um, oh, boy, a, a lot of British authors in the in the 1900s were, had really simple stories where it's just, like, it's mostly people sitting in parlors talking and then the the plot is very simple. Yeah. Um, you know, even Jane Austen plots are quite simple. But you know, she has all this dialogue that goes on. That's that's her strength. She played to her strength. Simple plot, lots of dialogue, lots of characterization. Um, you know, but Tetsuya Takahashi was like, you know, I need to have this wild plot that incorporates all these crazy elements and giant robots. And and you know, he it, it worked for him. And he he played to his own strengths. Yeah, I really agree with that. And it's something that has been like a little bit frustrating for me as I've uh, engaged in discourse about the story of Xenogears over the course of this podcast series and my reviews, you know, a few years back, looking at other people's thoughts about Xenogears, is there's this, there's this, um, I don't want to call it common, but there is a strong sentiment among passionate Xenogears fans that this story in particular is like uh, set on some pedestal of greatness that will never be surpassed again. <laughs> and that, that, is, that is largely due to its sort of complexity and, and labyrinthine nature and like layers of meaning. And that if, if a story doesn't have those things, it cannot be as great as Xenogears was. It's like without that, and I reject that premise wholesale. Like to me, uh, a story like Chrono Trigger, which is far less complex, executed as well as it is, to me is just as satisfying a story experience as Xenogears, even though it doesn't require the same, um, you know, external research and thought and introspection and all these things. It's still just as satisfying. I think that a simple story told well, told well can be just as satisfying as a complex one told well. The But the the... the difficult thing is that the more complex your plot is the more difficult it is to execute so you're going to run into problems of uh and as we've talked about with our critique of xenogears for these entire 21 episodes there's a lot of places where it could have been improved right so that's what you'll run into there but the benefit is those who are really looking for that uh exploration and, and deep sort of like looking at all the, the details will get a lot of satisfaction out of uh look seeing all the symbolism and the references and the and, you know, sort of the, the outside research. And so it really just yeah. depends on the kind of story you want to write. Like, what do you find satisfying? And who are you speaking to with your story? Who are you trying to reach? Um, if you're trying to reach people who love that kind of thing, like Xenogears, d then don't write a simple story, right? Um, for me, that's really, really what it comes down to is just like, what are you trying to say? Who are you trying to say it to? And then you'll pick how complex or not you want to present that information uh, based on those answers. And one, one last thought that occurred to me while you're talking is um, also if you're going to write a story and you want to decide between simple and complex, pick the one you feel more comfortable with. But also 
pick the one you have enough runway for because like um yeah. as 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 a really convoluted stories need a lot more space and time mm -hmm. to, to to get off the ground and um simple stories if they get too long um can end up like dickens and like dickens is a great writer who wrote some amazing stuff but sometimes his plots sag very yeah. badly because they're way too long because he was writing for money i don't you know get paid you know chuck i understand but um <laughs> get paid um but you know, like he, he there, like so. There's big saggy points in in great expectations and things like that. So it's like he, because it was a simple story, it it had some problems being long. But if you have a complex story that's too short, you're never gonna you know you're gonna end up with Chrono Cross, right? Where you where you just yeah. like barfing all these you know plot details at, <laughs> you know and, and during hour twenty eight of thirty five. <laughs> it's just like yeah. it was just like whoa, slow down there, Gaspar. Okay. Uh, yeah. Balthazar, but you know, it's just like I like they, that that game needed 10 more hours of runway and also, you know, to have a plot that made sense in the beginning. Um, yeah. <laughs> speaking of flaws, it had some cool <laughs> moments regardless, but you know, that's that's the problem, right? You, you pick pick the game that you have the space for and consider, you know, the material considerations like, do you have an editor? Your editor is going to determine how long your book goes, right? Yeah. Do you have, you know, is it for a film or is it for a game? You know, you have a budget, so you got to, you know, you don't have to stick to your budget. So just just keep that stuff in mind when you're deciding complexity. Right. Okay. Um, how about uh, moving on now to uh, the the relationship between Miang and the Gazelle Ministry? And, oh yeah, and we were talking about uh, wanting this to is, talk about that last time. This is good. So like, uh, this is something that people have talked about a lot. Um, like I've seen a lot of posts. Like, what is the relationship between Miang, Kane, and Gazelle? Like, what is the power structure? <clears throat> and there's two two things to understand. So there's the first thing to understand is um, what is the power structure. In, in the in the game, what like what does the game tell us? Like just by a close reading, what can we infer about the game, um, and what the, the power structure is there? And the second is to where did they come up with this structure? Like why is it so weird that the emperor doesn't have power? Like doesn't the emperor don't emperors have power? Um, I think I'll actually begin with number two there because it's you know it's it's, it's strange to us. Um, we don't have emperors in America. <laughs> we never have. Um, I guess Moctezuma died a long time ago. Um, <laughs> so since then, there's not a lot of uh, emperors in North America, and um, so we and but like, if you were German, you might understand imperial politics a little bit better because they had an emperor not so long ago, um, or maybe British. And there's a there's a you know, there's a queen who who until you know 1950 1955 was the empress of India, um, and that person is often a figurehead. That that part I think everyone understands. But what is strange is that the imperial politics of Japan after um, when the emperor actually held power between the Meiji Restoration in, in uh, I want to say 68 1868 and um, and then 1945, when the emperor was basically written out of the constitution by the, by MacArthur, um, there was a really weird set of imperial politics. So what happened was uh, a group of nobles from Satsuma Domain, so sort of the west of Japan, got together and decided they would install the emperor as the head of government and head of state um, in in Japan. And that because he was an ancient, you know, he he was a direct male descendant of the original emperors of Japan. So like there was real legit legitimacy with the people. And they were trying to overthrow the uh, Tokugawa shogun, who, who, who's, you know, they, they, that that government had really become weak, and uh, there had been some famines, and then, um, you know, the Commodore Perry came in and shot up the place. So Japan realized they needed a change, and so these Satsuma nobles formed a clique um, called the Genro. Um, and it was just like this group of nobles who were going to just surround the emperor, and the emperor had all the power, according to the Meiji constitution. Um, everything was derived from him, so all power derived from the emperor, but... The Meiji Emperor was kind of a drunken party boy, um, as emperors often are. Many nobles all across the world are like that. And uh, 
So they, they, the, Gen the Genro knew that they had the power over this guy. They just got him to sign off on things. So as long as they just, you know, left the Emperor to do what he wanted to do and gave him minimal responsibilities, these Satsuma nobles ran the country. And that's what their plan was. So you have, you know, like a relatively small group of people who know each other and are related to each other running Japan. Um, yeah. and, and they did it in a modern way. But that is essentially the structure you have with the Gazelle Ministry and Emperor Kane. Emperor Kane holds absolute power, but he often doesn't or cannot use it. Um, that leads us into point number one, which is what happens in the game. Um, one thing we know is that um, Krellian doesn't respect anyone <laughs> at all. Um, maybe he respects Lacan and maybe maybe Ellie. I don't know. It's hard to say. Mm -hmm. But um, Krellian would absolutely let them all die um, and does and even conspires to kill Kane. So, like, why... Why would Krellian let Kane get life extension treatments? Because Kane is dying. He's almost 10,000 years old. They're all dying. All the parts of Deus are dying. Um, and but, but Krellian is, you know, the head of the government, and he still lets Kane get these life extension treatments when he should just, even if he can't kill Kane, maybe there's something inside of him that prevents him from killing Kane. He should just withhold medicine, right? Or you know, poison him or something like that, right? You would think and, he and, would have had his limiter removed, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, or he's Krellian, right? He would have figured out a way around it, right? Yeah. He figured out, he, he played everybody, including God. Like, he played the entire universe to get his end. So, obviously, he could have let Cain die if it was materially possible. Um, but I don't think it is. I think I think what the case is that Miang, at the end, I think once once she's inher inherited Ellie's body, Miang calls Cain the principal living being. And I would love for Kesa to check into um, what the Japanese for that is. Oh, sure. But um, but basically, I think that that what we see in the game is that Kane has absolute authority over everyone, including their free will, and can tell anyone to do anything at any time if he's if he's within proximity of them. But he has a human attention span, so he can't control everybody. He can just control anybody, um, including the Gazelle Ministry. Like even though they're machines, he can just stop them from doing anything. So I think. I think Kane can just like if he's if he's close to you, he can just make you do things, um, and that that's what his authority consists of. And so he can make Krellian he, he, um, extend his life, or make the subordinates around him extend his life. So you can't poison him or something like that because he would just immediately be like, "Are you going to poison me?" And the, the person would have to confess or or have to not do it. So he just has this aura of command that he just exudes over everybody, but it's limited to whoever is in his presence because. Obviously, he, if he could control anybody, he'd be controlling the lambs, he'd be controlling uh, Satan, he'd be controlling Fey, he'd control Graf, something like that. Um, so he's got some kind of absolute authority, but it's limited in range and, and scope. Is that um, more or less what led to <clears throat> the Gazelle Ministry being unable to use the Geisha key the first right, time? Exactly. Right, exactly. So and he just if, comes if, on and says, like, nope, you can't do that. <laughs> right, exactly. So Kane can, can stop anybody from doing something if he's within range, apparently. Like, he... He like he he just didn't even worry about it. He just said no, can't do it. And they were all like, "That's true. We cannot oppose Kane." They seem very convinced on this on this front. The only reason they thought to use the keys, they thought Kane would go along with it. Yeah. Um. And they thought they had the support of Miang. And apparently, even Miang, you know, Kane's creator, can't also kill him. They like he's the sysadmin of the Catamony project, and they gave him complete sysadmin powers, but he is only one person, so he can't be controlling every subsystem all at once. Um, and that's the way. I, that's why you know Miang and 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 uh, Krellian and the Ministry can't kill him. Only himself, right? They clone him, and then um, I guess uh, you know Ramses is immune because he is his powers don't work on himself. Um, but I guess sure. Ramses also doesn't inherit the absolute control. So I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that part. But 
That's and that's not that different from the um the Meiji constitutional powers that the Meiji Emperor wished. And and this also played out in a big way with Emperor Hirohito in World War II, is that whenever Hirohito wanted to intervene in World War II, everyone listened to him. They did. If he anytime he said something, they would listen and they would do it and unquest not unquestioningly, but they eventually they're like, I know I have to do this because if I disobey the emperor, I'm gonna be a joke and I'm gonna lose all my institutional power because we all know it's derived from him. As soon as it's not derived from him, we all lose our power. So I have to. And he would fire people and he would order things. He was a big um, part of the Sanko policy in China that killed 6 million people. He was very much culpable with that. And it's very highly documented what he decided the army should do. He didn't make all the decisions. He left large parts of the war effort to other people and large parts of the government. But when he decided to act, people did obey. So he did have absolute authority. He just had a limited attention span. So. I think that's the cultural framework that Takahashi was working from. Takahashi probably knows those things. He goes to history class. And sure. He's very well read. And that's that's just metaphorized into Kane having this ether power that can compel people. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so it so yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You can't you don't have the bandwidth, so to speak, to control everything at once. You can only focus where your limited <laughs> brain can allow you to focus, but on those things the power is absolute. Yeah, that's that's what it seems like, and 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 yeah, and I mean, Mian gave him that power, right? <laughs> so yeah. clearly, it was necessary. Like, and I see why you have to have a sysadmin of any system, right? Needs sure. to happen. But and but if, if you're a billion, if you're a business guy, you're like a billionaire, you're gonna have to hand the keys over to some you know some IT guy, and he's gonna be running the business, and you have to, you're just gonna have to take that risk. So that seems right. like what what happened there. Okay. Um, let's go to another question here from Patreon. This one comes from Greg Troyan. Do you think the story of Xenogears was optimal for a video game, or would it have been better served as an anime, manga, or novel? Um, I would say that, well, even, I, I believe that even in their own plans, the, the intention was never to make, like, six video games out of the six episodes. I think they meant it to be multimedia from the start. Am I right? Have you, have you, do you remember reading that? I, I seem to remember reading that. That is, that was my impression that they, like, because, I mean, like, the episodes, uh, like, episodes two through four are recounted in the flashbacks of Xenogears, right, so. Right, right. So, uh, I, I seem to remember, but I cannot, I could, don't quote me on this. This is me just, it could be faulty memory. I seem to remember him saying that they had, like, you know, preliminary thoughts, not like any, like, concrete plans or anything, but to do, like, a manga or, or some other um, media for episode six, but it might not have been that. It might have just been they might have had plans to just have supplemental material that might have been not necessarily related to one of the six episodes, but just something related to Xenogears that was a, a manga or, you know, uh, maybe graphic novel or yeah, something Yeah, I mean, they, they, like they did do all those things, right? They did make mangas and graphic novels and, and they mostly about Xenosaga and then uh, yeah. Soya Saga did, you know, various other graphic novels. Actually, funny story. One time she was on Twitter uh, po posting pictures of graphic novels she wanted to write. She's like, I never had the time or budget. And I'm like, I was like following her. I was like, well, you should do a Kickstarter. People over here love you. You would get all this support. They loved your game. I was like tagging all these people like, don't tell, you know, like these are all people who are huge fans of yours. And she got so flustered at me saying that she she blocked me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, okay, all right. You don't want Gaijin attention. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, it, so the, clearly they've done multimedia a lot. Um, they yeah. did an anime in Japan of, of I think it's like of Ig Ziggy's story. 
I want to say. Oh, okay. From Xenosaga. From Xenosaga. Um, yeah. So they they did a lot of multimedia stuff later on. So clearly they 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 would they would do that. Um, yeah. That was some, that was something they would like to do. And um, game directors, like really ambitious game directors like that, are um, they they always have ten different plans going at any one time. Mm. Um, like I, when I work with uh, the director of Chris Tales, Carlos Rocha Silva, he's just ex- he's exactly like that. He's like fifteen different plans going at any one time. <laughs> I can, I'm like I'm like Carlos, I can't keep up with you, man. W- which yeah. plan are we talking about right now? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so that's just that's just how go- artists like that work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, considering the fact that even up to after the time that Xenogears was released, within Perfect Works, Takashi continued like evolving the universe of Xenogears or adding to it or changing it or altering it is kind of a testament to that that way of uh, you know doing things just constantly working on more expanding it and so i'm sure that um if we're, if we're talking about the complete story right i mean like the whole fifteen thousand year time scale thing like certainly there's going to be areas of that that would be better suited um like maybe uh the zebuim era stuff because there's not really a lot of conflict there at least from what we glean from the game that might lend itself to random battles and running around the planet kind of a thing, right? That lends itself to an RPG like that. It would be like a hospital minigame. What's that? Um, what's the <laughs> uh, hospital oh, game? Trauma Center? Trauma <laughs> Center, like yes. That. Exactly. It would be like, it'd be Trauma Center like Life in the Xenoverse. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean... A, a mystical ion just leaped out of this patient's chest. Um, I would play that game. In, I would play that game in a heartbeat. Now, now that you bring it up, I would too. So, like, maybe you could find some other genre or something, but I think a story like the Zebulum era would probably work better as an anime or something like that, right, than necessarily as a sprawling RPG like Xenogears is. But I think episode five that we got was very well suited for it. I think it works perfectly for it. Um, I don't think it would have been better. Four would have worked too, like the the, the Solaris War. And then the Diabolos, like it would have ended with the Diabolos destroying everything and you barely surviving as the Diabolos Diabolos run out of fuel. I mean, that would have been like, whoa, that would have been pretty intense. Uh, a lot of the episode one stuff, I mean, obviously is um, kind of uh, spiritually successed, if that's a word, in Xenosaga. So, like, obviously that works uh, as a video game form. But, yeah, I, I think that episode five, at least, and four, like you're saying, would have been fine and, and probably are tailored or well-suited as, as a video game. I think um, just one of the things, I don't think Xenogears, though, could have ever been anything other than a video game. Yeah. Just because the way it was portrayed, like... Like first of all, no, there's no 60-hour animes getting made after 1989, <laughs> yeah. unless they're like really low budget, like Fruits Basket or One Piece, right? Like One Piece, I guess One Piece is, is a similar sprawling, but there's no plan for One Piece. Like if you think there's a plan for One Piece, I've got I got some uh, swamp land to sell you <laughs> in Florida. Um, but like, like you know, like unless you're like a com- very broad comedy, you're not getting 60 hours of of yeah. screen time in Japan anymore, and uh, you know. So I think it had to be a video game because it couldn't have been anything else in terms of media. And it couldn't have been a book because it's way too visual. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, all, like, there's a lot a lot of like the meaning that's conveyed in the battles, like when Graf is fighting you on, on foot and you're in your gear. You, mm. I don't how, how do you convey that in anything but a visual medium? Yeah. And there's no other visual medium that you can afford except a video game for 60 hours. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, next one from Greg. Do you think there's any other video game with this amount of narrative density? Xenosaga would be Xenosaga would probably be the first comparison, right? Xenosaga is so much of it is like like Xenogears has way more in-game lore text, 
where Xenosaga has like all that is like mostly perfect works type situation where you have like this huge dictionary and like yeah. uh, spoilers for Xenosaga right for a few minutes um it's not a huge spoiler but like the UMN network is literally built on the collective unconscious like yeah. it's like just and but you would never know that unless you read the dictionary in the game right um so they don't they don't succeed as injecting as much of that lore into the game as they do in Xenogears yeah but I guess yeah it is there like there's like have you have you seen the sketches like the perfect works type sketches about about Xenosaga where like they talk about like the upper domain and the lower domain of religion. Like there's oh, like I the seen that. Udu lives in the upper domain and humans mm -hmm. live in the lower domain. And it talks about like how, which which direction information can travel in terms of like quantum physics. Oh, so wow. like the upper domain can radiate information down, but you can't send anything back. So that's why Udu has two eyes because that's the only two places where he can see into the universe. It's hmm. like it, it went pretty hard, hard with it, but you know it's it, you don't see that in the game at all. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that I've found. You know, it's it's always funny, you know, kind of running a, a YouTube channel or reading comments and stuff. Um, when you have people who have clearly been uh, keeping themselves up to date on their Xenogears lore for however many years it's been, twenty years. Its twentieth anniversary was, you know, not long ago. Um, <clears throat> where it's like clearly they know all of the perfect works references by heart and so they're like no it's this and this and this and they can just put like just like but it's like that was not in the game i promise you that what you just said was not in the text right i think that happens a lot um but uh, i get i would say that what he probably means by narrative density is less so like the amount of content and more so like the complexity or like the depth of that content yeah like a lot of world building like yeah, a um, lot of that maybe like uh, referential material, like uh, the you know the cycle analysts. Yeah, you know, as far as that stuff goes, yeah, stuff. I can't think of another example. That's, I can't either. I, I would say uh, the closest I've I've seen come is um, Fallout New Vegas has a lot of classical illusion, yeah. a lot of pretty good classical illusion actually to like Rome and Greece and all that. Um, that uh, clearly um, the creators knew their classical history. I, I'm pretty mm. sure Josh Sawyer did. He talks about it all the time. Um, so that, that, that's good, but it's not like, they, like there's, it's just, it's, it's, it's prevalent and it's, it's well done, but it's not this. It's like one idea. It's classical history, right? As yeah. opposed to like three different schools of psychology and religion. That's totally different level. Yeah. I'm sure there are lots of, um, RPGs out there where if you just, you know, look at their world building, you know, like the, the, the level at which you can get kind of lost in, uh, looking at like data logs or whatever to sort of like expand this world or like make it into something that feels really big and dense. Um, you know, I would say a series like Mass Effect or The Witcher or uh, Dragon Age probably are all comparable there. Knights but of the Old Republic of, is a big one. Knights of the Old Republic as well. But when you're talking about the philosophical density I mean, unless there's something I've just never heard of, it's this might be at the top, Xenogears. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I haven't seen much either. However, I do have clients who have come to me and be like, I want to I want to do something like this. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> we don't have we don't have Xenogears budget or teams, but like they sure. there are definitely people who grew up with that, and now you know some of them are millionaires, <laughs> mm. and uh, they want to make a game like that. And I think that's pretty cool. That's like almost like a, how the Renaissance, pro, you know, progressed where they have these, these rich Italians who like, let's make something incredibly beautiful that will last forever. It's like, all right, 
you know, there yeah. are worse things you could do with your money. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, two more. One a, a little bit uh, deeper, and then one really quick one from Greg. Um, he asks, is it a masterpiece? My answer is yes. I think despite the flaws, this is one of the most profound stories of our lifetimes with great characters, set pieces, themes, and lore. In some ways, the flaws are kind of charming, at least to me. Um, I think that towards the beginning of the podcast, I had made a comment about how there are a lot of fans who regard Xenogears kind of at the same level as, um, like, uh, Russian classical literature or something like that. And me saying, I don't know where I stand on that yet. This is my second time playing the game. Let me come around to that later. <laughs> um, and, I mean, ultimately, the short answer for me there is, like, execution-wise, not close. Not close. Um, but in terms of the ideas, in terms of the richness, the uh, the cleverness in which all of these different schools of thought are sort of woven into one cohesive theme that is very, very meaningful to me, yes, I would say it, do, it did impact me in a similar way to something like that. And I would consider it a masterpiece given the fact that this was a game that in the large scale of things, in terms of like where video games will be, let's say, 100 years from now or something, right at the infancy of <laughs> of the medium itself, right? Like right at the beginning with the limits that it had, um, you know, all those things considered, I think that it's, its ability to cut through a lot of its problems and sort of get to my heart like that, um, for me, I would classify it as a masterpiece, a, a, a must-play classic video game. But I would not put it on the same level as some of the most profound... Um, masterpieces of some other uh, mediums uh, just because of the execution being as sloppy as it is uh, from time to time. Yeah, I mean, uh, masterpieces tend to have glaring flaws, like a lot of them. Sure. Um, like big ugly sides. And I think I think that it's just inherent in masterpieces because like the, like Paradise Lost and um, it has these has just like these chapters where people are like, really, John Milton? Like you, <laughs> like this is your explanation. You're going to explain the ways of God to man, and this is your explanation. But then it gets a lot better. And then there's sections like um, famously like uh, the beginning of uh, books two and three um, and book nine. There's just a section where Eve eats the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, and it's the psychology of it is so persuasive. You just like. You feel indicted as a human being yeah. just reading and you're like i'm i'm the devil and you're like whoa how'd you do that like you just like and it just slips into you and you're just like okay this is a masterpiece like this is despite its flaws it's really great and i think a lot of works are like that like the fact that it's so good in so many things is what makes you accept those flaws and just say it's flawed but it's a masterpiece and xenogears yeah. i think is, is similar to that um john milton had his whole life to make paradise lost and didn't require a budget from anybody so um, Tetsuya Takahashi had to have a budget from a video game company in 1998 and two, two years, years to make, to make it. it. Yeah. Um, and a rookie team, no less. And a, and poor Richard Honeywood. Uh, um, right. Imagine like imagine having to try and translate you know 160,000 words full of chock full of references to other that's, languages. There's Hebrew, that's a German. Super good point is that like Xenogears would land really differently for the Japanese audience than it did for the American audience, just solely based on that fact alone just we yeah. didn't allocate a budget or a team to localization 
just that yeah. one fact like makes Xenogears a very different experience for English speaking audience. Right. So if, if there were a better translation, and actually there are some people working on that, I, I hope that you know there's a good project. If if Xenogears ever comes out on PC, someone will just mod in a better translation, and that'll be great. Um, yeah. Even just even just possibly better. Richard Honeywood is a good translator. He just was set up to fail. Yeah. Um, you know, he was supposed to be one of three people, and he ended up being he ended up being the only person sleeping in the server room. There's a, an amazing podcast about that. Um, that has his how how Xenogears was this horrible project and how it revolutionized um, the process of localizing. Like he, Honeywood was promoted after this, and they changed all the policies. And um, so, in, in that regard, Xenogears had this huge historical impact on the localization of games forever after. Um, so that's really cool. Um, but I think Xenogears also compares to other cert, certain other masterworks um, really well. And again, yeah, the execution is not on par with say, I don't know, something like. You know the Russian classics, or or Dante, or John Milton. There's no, it's not the, not the masterful poetry of, a, of someone who's trained their whole life. But there are um, the ugly parts of, like for example, not ugly parts, but like more workmanlike parts of Dante's padded, um, uh, Divine Comedy. Um, like Dante's poetry is not the best Italian poetry. It's it's like very sort of workmanlike and often very uneven, and he uses lots of mixed metaphors. But the structure of, of how Dante views the universe and how he's able to imply all these different levels of judgment and, and say all these very meaningful things about you know human condition, um, in, uh, you know through the, just the structure of how he constructs the universe, um, it makes it a masterpiece, right? He is he's not Dante has something meaningful to say and he says it in, in grand style, even if his his poetry poetic lines are kind of plotting and sometimes not very elegant, but uh, people forgive that, right? Yeah. So you know. That's 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 something that that you know, Xenogears has in common. It's like the way it gets to what it says is sometimes flawed, but the ideas that it has are very big and, and worth studying. Um, Dante did it better, but you know, I don't want to get struck by lightning. Um, <laughs> and another one, I think I think the best comparison this this I, I made this comparison before, um, but as uh, Xenogears compares really favorably to Moby Dick, um, and it gets a little crazy actually. <laughs> um, so. Uh, you have a game about killing a, a monstrosity, uh, a, a white monstrosity that lives under the sea. Um, it's a you know it's heavily fueled with Gnosticism, mixed with all of the best scientific knowledge of the day by someone who wasn't a scientist and uh, has lots of contemporary philosophy. Um, all those statements are true about Xenogears and Moby Dick. Um, yeah, so like, and of course Moby Dick. Lots of people bounce off Moby Dick. Most people agree it's a masterpiece of American literature, um, but. You know, it, it, his prose wanders. Um, it has yeah. lots of unnecessary chapters that just really don't do anything to the plot. I'm trying to remember, um, is, it, is it Moby Dick or is it Robinson Crusoe where, like, they'll just go to a whole chapter explaining, like, how a ship is constructed or right. something. Right, yeah, like that, that is Moby Dick. And how, yeah. how whaling works. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> we don't care. Right. I mean, whaling was big at the time, so, like, maybe it's, like, you know, like, uh, but, like, he goes into way too much detail. And he spends, like, five pages talking about sneaking to Ahab's cabin when Ahab yeah. is asleep. And he goes with like these really long diatribes, like meta, um, I guess not even metaphorical, but like allegorical diatribes about um, transcendentalism and Gnosticism and all that. And it's it's cool if you're into that stuff, but it's like you, you got a little long winded there. The book is way too long, and but it's great. It's, it's a great book. It's absolutely worth the read. Um, but if Xenogears is very similar to that, right? In that um, it's crazy. It has all these weird things that don't seem to go together. It's about Gnosticism and a, and a vendetta against an ancient powerful white being that lives under the sea so um <laughs> you know I, I i think uh i think those two things compare really favorably in terms of like 
okay, I understand. That's that's the kind of place that Xenogears might hold one day is this Moby Dick like thing where you know it's like mm. oh there are flaws there are things you need to skip there are annotations you need to read but at the same time they did something amazing yeah I, I think that's really well put and i mean just to add one more part to it there's not a single game movie novel whatever it may be that i've ever experienced that i don't have parts of it that i gripe about where it's like this part yeah. like uh that like this could have been done better. I mean, literally everything. And I still love it to death, right? It obviously still had a great effect on me. And I think that's the the mark of a, a great piece of art or a masterpiece is, is its ability to overcome uh, some of the, the inevitable flaws that will arise in any work of art because nobody is perfect and no artist is perfect and no artist has the perfect circumstance or the exact amount of time or even if they do have more, uh, you know, enough time, they'll usually mess it up by painting over something that was great and trying to improve it by ruining it in the process by overthinking it. So you just can't avoid that. There's always going to be problems with things, right? Um, last one. This was real simple from Greg Troyan. Choo-choo, where do you ultimately land after this playthrough? He's, uh, he's on the hashtag choo-choo did nothing wrong side of things. I don't know what your opinion is of the character. <laughs> I mean, choo-choo doesn't add much to the plot. Um, yeah. Uh, but she's a lethal character if you know she's the best character if you know how to use her yeah she's this classic trope of the lethal joke character where if you know what you're doing like you can just like it's like I am I am Faye the contact I am gonna beat God Choo's like step aside and <laughs> like Choo's like if you know what you're doing you could be like like 5,000 damage per triangle hit with Choo Choo and like she goes like because you can equip her with the um the speed boots and everything she can like go like twice as often as everyone else she never runs out of fuel She's just absolute beast mode. Um, yeah. But what she adds to the plot, I, I, merchandise, like, again, the game <laughs> the game seems, I mean, the game's based on, like, all these you know, old Macross and, and Gundam things, right? And those game, those those shows were made for, for merch. And this game seems to have a little bit of that DNA. It's like, we should make some choo-choo plushies when this becomes, it's like, that's not the kind of game it is. Like, it's not a choo-choo plushie game. It's this dark, heavy, philosophical right. thing. Like It doesn't seem to fit, right? No, it's, it is incongruous to me. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. I remember my first playthrough feeling sort of indifferent about Choo Choo because I remember it was like on Reddit somewhere. They had put together in, I think it was the JRPG subreddit, some kind of um, like they did this big vote on like just hundreds and hundreds of JRPG characters to rank them from like top to bottom. And I remember Choo Choo was... I mean, within the bottom five. It was, like, way, way down at the bottom. <laughs> and it was, like, right around the time I was playing or, or right before I had played the game. And so I had this expectation that this character would just be completely unsufferably obnoxious or something. And in my first playthrough, I felt like, well, aside from the Shavat scene where she fights against the Oxen, and obviously in the background at Golgotha hanging on the cross... There's not she she's not really there unless you go out of your way to put her in your party or something, which I didn't yeah, do. They're they're very judicious with their use of choo choo. Yeah, it's like she she's kind of there, but you can mostly ignore the character if you don't like the character. Um, and so I think that upon this reexamination, I I had a little bit of frustration that I, I expressed about the character early on when we first got her in the party after the Ave sequence or the uh, Bledevec sequence um, uh, where you save Margie. And I think that was me getting hyped about something because, again, I was doing a lot of reading, a lot of 
research and things like that, finding, you know, getting a beat on what people feel about things. And so getting through the game again, my opinion kind of is kind of back to where it was on my first playthrough. It's just like Choo Choo can be as annoying or not or as fun a character. You, you can involve Choo Choo or not. It's really kind of up to you. Unlike, say, Tatsu in Xenoblade Chronicles X, who is mandatorily <laughs> insufferable in, like, all the scenes he appears in. I hate that character. <laughs> uh, you get to Xenoblade Chronicles too. Like, all the characters are insufferably <laughs> That's They what have I think. nothing to say. <laughs> um, so, anyways, um, I, I, don't, I don't hate Choo Choo. Like, I, I, I wouldn't... But I do think, at least in the Shavat sequence, during the scene between Marie and the Oxen, it, it it does feel incongruous, like you were saying. Um, it just kind of it kind of puts this like little blip or, or like sharp dive in sort of like the rising action or flow of that scene in a way that injects this like level of silliness that that takes away a little bit from the dramatic uh, dramatic gravitas of that scene. Um, but outside of that, um, I mostly ignore Choo Choo, and Choo Choo is not really like a, a factor on my enjoyment of this game or not. so Yeah, I don't even think about Choo Choo when I think about Xenogears. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay, I'll come back to this in a second. Um, let's jump over to, and this is something I kept saying, we'll talk about it when we get to it. We'll talk about it when we get to it. Drum then, roll. <laughs> in the actual episode, which is going to be next week's episode at the time of recording this, episode 19, um, which ends up being about a three-hour, fifteen-minute episode. We finally get Oof. to the part. We finally get to the part where Lacan, um, where it's explained how Lacan became Graf. Oh, of sort course, of. this this question. Right. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and I kept saying, like, I feel like we did an a, a, an adequate job of explaining how it all worked in the game, but I kept alluding to the fact, you know, Jacques Lacan and and the, his uh, theory on desire you know, plays into this. Um, and, and I think that we work it in a little bit, but just not maybe quite as much detail as some people were hoping that we would do. In Certainly more than Lacan. anything in the game does, because it's not sure, totally not yes. clear how that works in the game. <laughs> I mean, So, yeah, let's talk about how Lacan's desire um, works into the Lacan graph uh, transformation. Right, so like, so the biggest thing to understand about Lacan is that he took Freud... And he, Lacan always said of himself, I never said anything that Freud didn't say. But I just said it in a different, more universal way, in a way that wasn't, you know, more just applicable to everyday life. And Lacan took Freud's idea of sexual desire being the underpinning force of everything and just made it desire. That, more that your desires, yeah, you have an id. Yes, he agreed with that. And um, but and your, your id desires things and that causes problems in your life. And that is the primary source of your problems. But your id desires all kinds of things. It yeah. desires relationships. It desires money. It desires food, fame, comfort, uh, ego, like, you know, glory. Um, and if those desires go unsatisfied, that is the primary driver of psychological illness. Um, is your 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 lack of getting what your id desires. So your desires can just destroy you and make you into a horrible person, which is actually a little bit different than Freud. Like uh, Freud also believed, certainly in his early work about trauma, right? That bad things that happened to you in the past were also a big deal. And actually that, which is funny because Freud's most minor thing, traumas, became the bedrock of psychiatry. Um, 
and his all his theories about you know the desire sex sexual desire and id and ego and super ego are not considered serious anymore um they are in this game though and lacan certainly run with them and and some people still like lacan but because it is definitely true that we we can all feel for ourselves that like the thing we want things and we want things in an immature way things we don't need and we let that desire harm us we're harming ourselves and that that's uh that's what you know that's, that's essentially what happens to lacan um the character yeah, in the game yeah lacan in the game his desire is power right he feels powerless he feels weak and, and so he, he, desires he, he desires Sophia, and he can't have her forever. Yeah. But rather than saying, I, you know, I'm sad, I'm going to deal with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get past it, he just, I'm going to destroy the world, right? Yeah. Um, and who, who among us has not felt that briefly on a Monday morning? <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, so he, he really goes through with it. And you and I were talking on, on Twitter about how when we went back to the text. I, I, I had thought that um, when Lacan uh, made contact with the wave existence, that like he just it just like zapped him right and he was just put back out and he couldn't even make full contact because he was a flawed contact unless unless the contact is in a, is an active current relationship with with the antitype he can't make proper contact with God and I thought oh it's just this metaphysical rules of Xenogears yeah. but then we looked at the text again and we saw like oh no Graf did make contact with the wave existence but he right. came away from that meeting with the notion I need to destroy everything and that's and because so like, he hadn't he hadn't become psychologically whole. Right. When making contact, so his perception of what he learned from the wave existence it went the other way. Whereas Faye was made whole first, and then made contact with the wave existence. Right, Faye had, still had Ellie and had a relationship, and and yeah. he, he 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 came through his trauma right at the moment that he meets the wave existence. He says, "I can't," you know, he's that's a great line. I can't blame anybody for what happened to me. I can't right. can't be stay mad at them. And so, so his his moment of abreaction happens at the same moment as apotheosis, where he meets God. And that's actually one of the master strokes of 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 the, of the game Xeno Gears is that that those two things link up. Like so, the you have the fake character arc and the plot arc of meeting God. Those things hit each other right at that moment where he integrates all of his past lives. He integrates his id, ego, and super ego, and then he has this moment where he understands God. And it's very gnostic. Um, yeah. But like that, you know, Lacan would say that Graf was destroyed and is merely the shadow of his negative emotions. That that Lacan is just. The graph is just a collection of Lacan's desires. This yeah. this dark, twisted being, um, and that it's not really the whole person anymore. Um, and and that's actually what we see of Graf, right? Like he defends Ellie because he still has a desire for for Sophia. Um, so like he saves Ellie on a few occasions, or the one occasion, but also he he refuses to kill Ellie when you're in the Goliath fight. He won't attack her. It's the only way you can win the battle unless you're super over leveled, because um, he won't attack Ellie. So. That desire is still there, but that's all Graf is, is just the desire for power. And he manipulates other people's desire for power. Dost thou yeah. want the power? Right. Those speeches that he gives before, like, infusing them with ether or whatever it is he does. Yeah, it's it's about desire, right? He's yeah. just he's just this this congealed mass of desires, of negative, toxic desires. Yeah, and I think another thing to add to this is, according to Jacques Lacan, desire is also something that can't ever really be fulfilled. It's like a never-ending, like desire that you can't ever actually satisfy so he kind of differentiates between need demand and desire right like needs are kind of like your basic needs um your de demands are the the requests for the need from an other a concept of the other as he calls it and it's it's sort of sort of like the 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 subtraction between that that becomes desire right like the things that can't be satisfied but which you still want desperately and in Lacan from Xenogear's case, you know, the things that he wanted could never be 
it's impossible. The, 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 this unending desire for power, this desire for Sophia, who is dead, who's never coming back, right? Um, like things that could not be satisfied, this obsessive pursuit of those things leads to kind of this just this desire that keeps pushing you, pushing you, pushing you further and further down a path that leads him into becoming Graf, right? And I, I, the last thing I thought about is that it's interesting, though, that like, um, you know, Zeno Gears' villains, one of the things that makes them great is that they're often wrong. Like, yeah. everything in the X that says in Final Fantasy Seven or Final Fantasy V is 100% true, and everything that Kefka says is 100% true. And yeah. Everything that, that Sephiroth <laughs> says after he goes to the library is, like, basically all true. Villains are usually right. They usually have all the exposition, right? But the villains in Xenogears are frequently wrong. In fact, almost exclusively wrong. Only Krellian is actually right about things. Everyone else has total misconceptions. And I think that um, that Lacan's desires, this 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 hate ball of desire that that Graf is, um, also was wrong. That he was never going to be able to achieve his desire, even if he had won. Because like he's he's in sharing a body with Khan Wong, right? And he can't keep Khan Wong down all the time. And this is the Khan Wong is, you know, he's basically, you know, the James Bond of Shabbat, um, but he's not the contact. Like, like what did, what did Graf think he was going to get when he was in a sharing a body with id? Mm. Like, I don't think that, you know, I think it would have been something bad would have happened, but I don't think Graf could have held that body because it was like, oh, please, you're, you're number five in here. Get in line. (laughs) Um, So like, you know, I think Lacan was doomed and that's actually poignant though, because his, his desires were never going to amount to anything. Right. And that is something really cool about Xenogers, but also something that leads to its confusing nature is, I mean, part of the structure of writing a story is being able to deliver clear, (laughs) accurate exposition about what is happening in the story. And I, like you're saying, I think villains generally serve that purpose really well because they monologue about how, you know, proud they are about their plans and this is what I set out to accomplish and this is how I did it and they just kind of give you beat by beat like all the things that were true and that happened and uh, from just the sort of like meta storytelling or story structuring perspective like that works as a way of helping the audience understand what's going on but it's not necessarily true to life which is that people are flawed and they misunderstand and they don't always know what's going on themselves and that's true for many of the villains in Xenogears just as it is for the protagonists so it's cool that that's true but it also that it's kind of why after a while on the podcast I stopped like trying to dissect every Gazelle ministry scene in conversation because it's like they're, they're being very vague and the translation is bad and they're saying all this stuff, but it's like what they're saying might not even actually be <laughs> like true. They may be mistaken about this or they may be trying right. to work through a problem themselves. They're and totally so it's getting like, played. <laughs> exactly. The, so anyways, it's just interesting. Um, let's see here. Anything else you want to say about that? No, no. I think probably okay. if there's any other questions about villains, we'll talk about it. Sure. All right, we've got one from uh, Golden Vins. Um, Did you ever think that Ellie was going to die at some point? Man, I was so sure it would happen, given how you said earlier that many things were used in FF7, how Faye would have to go through a tragedy uh, to become whole and all. I really believed believed that it would happen. And this was so built up in the game, as well as Saiten, the the blade given by his wife, that moment when you're forced to play with Faye, Saiten, and Ellie in Solaris. And when the lights go out, uh, when Ellie unmasks Saiten, was I the only one living through that expectation? Can't say I'm disappointed, but still, did you think as much when going through uh, the first time? 
I don't know if I ever expected that Ellie would die like that. Um, but I do think it's interesting and a really good, uh, a really solid choice that Ellie doesn't because of the fact that Ellie was so self-sacrificial in previous incarnations, particularly with Sophia, where she believed this self-sacrifice would be the right thing, that it would be the best thing for the world. But in a way, and this is something that she actually admits um, when speaking with Faye, I think uh, once they're like, like at the end of the game where, where he goes in Xenogears like up towards Deus as it's like exiting the atmosphere and they're all like naked or whatever. Um, I, I think that she mentions something about how she's had a realization that the self-sacrifice wasn't the right thing to do um, because it in a way led to Lacan and Kralian becoming the villains of episode five from the protagonists of four to the villains of episode five. And that that's not necessarily the best way uh, to, it's not always the right answer to self-sacrifice in that way. And so I kind of liked the way that, that she reaches that conclusion. Of course, Faye has a counterpoint to that and they kind of go back and forth as this game often does. It philosophizes and doesn't try to preach at you, would give you like, you know, interesting things to think about. But um, I like the fact that Ellie does not die in the story. Well, she technically did, though, in episode four. I'm just saying that I, I guess what I'm saying is I did not have that expectation. I'm glad that they didn't do it. I think that it actually lends to the story that she survives it by the end. Yeah. I, th I, th I think when I was first playing it, I, I really didn't I mean when I was first playing Xenogears at like age 13, I was just like, I had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I, they could, anything could happen. I'm like, oh, of course. Um, but uh, I think that structurally, I had I had did have a sense that Ellie couldn't die because the thing that holds Xenogears together is the relationship between Ellie and Faye, right? Without that right. relationship, there's not like a through line of the plot um, for all that right. philosophy. Otherwise, it would just turns into serial experiments lane, which I found interminable, um, right. full of interesting ideas. But just like I don't care about this protagonist, and she has no relationships, so like you know that's a problem. So I think I think I I understood that structurally she had to survive at the end. Um, yeah, but that was just a sense that I had not any definite thing. Well, like the, the difference, say, between FF7 and Xenogears is that in FF7 you had Tifa afterwards, right? And, 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 I, and I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but I, Tifa, <laughs> Tifa is the proper relationship. Oh, I for agree, Cloud. I agree 100%. Cloud does, Cloud does not deserve Aerith, like, yeah. she he is an anchor to her. Tifa and Cloud are equally messed up, and so they deserve yeah. each other. I think that's what the end scene between them is, is, is about, right? That they're both messed up. And they deserve each other, whereas Aerith was too good. Yeah, Cloud didn't deserve her. Yeah, it, it, I I really like I I agree with the fact that to me Tifa is is, and this is the last thing I want to do is start this. I don't even know the shipping that goes on Cla in the Aerith versus, versus Cleefa. No, stop! Not having that conversation here. I'm not talking about the characters as if they are real people, and no, 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 which no, no, I'm no. talk I'm talking about for the sake of the story. Yeah, <laughs> as a story telling uh, uh, point a plot point it was important for the development of those characters when Eris goes that Tifa and Cloud are able to help each other through their trauma yeah and the fact that they can relate because they went through the same traumatic experience they, they're survivors of the same event and are messed up because of what happened there and can bond over this which it's is just I think beautiful beautiful makes complete sense and is perfect for the story 
has nothing to do with the people or whether I like this or that. Yeah, not we, we don't want to get too far <laughs> off the Xenogears track here. Obviously. No, no, let's not do that. So, anyways, um, we can move off of that now. To... You, you're gonna get a lot of hate views for this. So I'm that's sure good. we will. <laughs> and whatever, they're hiding the dislike button on YouTube. Yeah, like, this, so. <laughs> anything that boosts those views up, hey, I'll never hey. know. <laughs> hate, hate views earn just as much money. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> nobody, nobody at our level is earning money. Uh, Zarathustra uh, Prime. Uh, in the first episode of this series, you had an overview of the development background of the game and how it came to be. It would be fitting if as a post-mortem to the discussion aftermath of the game's release, um, or to have a discussion on the aftermath of the game's release with Takashi leaving Square and the birth of Monolith, or Monolith, Monolith Soft. Um, so I, I guess we can do that a little bit. Um, I don't want to take like a tremendous amount of time on this, but um, it is pretty interesting to see like where he went after that because he was hoping, obviously, for a sequel to Xenogears. Um, and this was right at the time that the, the merger between Square and Enix happened. And as I've talked about in other videos, particularly with like uh, Final Fantasy XII's development, um, this was a, a turbulent time at Square in its upper management where there was, there was a push uh, by Yoichi Wada to really like focus on making direct sequels and really, really focusing on the Final Fantasy series in particular. Just like really pushing Final Fantasy. This is our bread and butter. Let's make direct sequels to 10. Let's make direct sequels to 7. Uh, we've built assets for this. It makes no sense whatsoever to not reuse them and get something out quick and just make a lot of money that way. Business-wise, a very, very good strategy, right? Uh, uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi, who was executive vice president at the time, um, artistically was against that idea. And so this all came to a head with, obviously, Spirits Within bombing at the box office, him taking responsibility for that by stepping down from his executive role at the company. Um, this uh, Wada sort of stepping in and pleasing investors and smoothing over this this uh, merger between Square and Enix because Enix was sort of scared away from it for a while. They were like, ooh, I, this doesn't look good. I don't know if this is a good time for us kind of a thing. And so Wada kind of had to step in when he became president, smooth over the financials, get the company looking good again, then the merger could go through. But with him in charge, the company became very Final Fantasy focused for a long time. And it was like, this is this is how we're going to make our money. Kingdom Hearts also began part of that, but Kingdom Hearts in some ways is loosely attached to Final Fantasy itself. So... Long story short, Tetsuya Takahashi and some other people, I think Hiro, Hirohide, Hirohide Sugiyura was another creator at Square who were frustrated with the kind of the new direction of the company. They knew, or Takahashi knew he was not going to get Xenogears 2. So he decided to leave Square because of that and form Monolith Soft, which I think happened in like 1999 or something like that. Um... Uh, but they needed funding. They needed particularly a company who could help them with marketing, uh, running campaigns and that sort of thing, which they did not have the bandwidth to do. And so um, invested or, or had like a large uh, stock or ownership in, in Monolith Soft. Namco stepped in to do that. And so this is where uh, they developed Xenosaga. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe Xenosaga was meant from the beginning to be six episodes 
that would span like 10 plus years, <laughs> which is really, really crazy. <laughs> it's super ambitious. Not, not as crazy as you'd think. There was the Dot .hack series running concurrently, and that was That's like five point. games over eight. That's a good point. Yeah, um, so it's not like he had, there was no precedent, but it didn't work out that way. Like it's and and there are other examples where you've had series go on like that over like multiple console generations, let's say. But I would not say, let's say Uncharted or something like that. But I don't think that they're they had a plan from the start. Here are our four <laughs> uh, Uncharted or five Uncharted games that we're going to make, and this will be released in this time frame. Usually, they kind of take it one one game at a time, right? Um, but anyways. Xenosaga was meant to be huge. Um, for many, for a multitude of reasons, that didn't happen. And it ended up being compressed into three episodes. Um, and then Namco, uh, well, I, I can't remember if, no, no, this is right. So Monolith was helping development of some other uh, projects w- w- would uh, go outside of Xenosaga and, and help on other things. Or th- I think Botan Kaidos in particular was the game that they had done for Nintendo. It was an exclusive to uh, to the GameCube. And they did and Soma Bringer it, for Game Boy too. Oh, right. And so it was because of uh, the work that they did on those, Nintendo became interested in buying the um, the, the, the what do you call it? Uh, what is the freaking word? Buying out the IP? No, not no, the IP. They bought like, Monolith, oh, they had an exclusive like the, contract. Uh, the ownership of Monolith Soft, but that's not the word I'm looking for. It's the controlling, like... Stake? Stake, thank you. The controlling stake in Monolith Soft. It's been a long day, folks. <laughs> I know. Don't get it's old. It's been a long freaking four months. Um, yeah, so c- Nintendo bought controlling stake from Namco in Monolith Soft, and, and, Monolith Soft, and this is where they started working on the Xenoblade series and that's kind of what they've been doing ever since. They've also lended help on uh, Breath of the Wild and some other, uh, you know, first-party Nintendo stuff. But. I, I just I just picture that first meeting between Takahashi and the Nintendo executives just being like, <laughs> Takahashi just going in, so I'm going to go back to Gnosticism and, the, and like, the, the, what Nintendo <laughs> contacts like, I don't know what that means, but you're going to add waifus. Lots of waifus. <laughs> and that's, that's Xenoblade. It became more is. that way, more and more that way over time. Uh, because I mean I don't I don't know how how much is like the first Xenoblade you've played or whatever, but um, certainly by the time we get to Xenoblade Two, it seems to be the, yeah. the, the point of emphasis for selling the game, right? But yeah. Um, anyways, that's more or less kind of like the the Takahashi and Monolith Soft's like history after Xenogears. Um, uh, you know, Xenosaga was, they struggled on that project, but Xenoblade has kind of been the breakthrough success. And yeah, that's, that's like, kind of where they're focused now. can be sort of successful indefinitely. Um, I yeah. will say that, like, I think in terms of, like, the state of the industry, Xenogears had some impact. Like, um, I think Xenogears sort of broke ground in these long, long JRPGs, and then Nihon Falcom ran with that, um, the Trail series. Um, you know, I think I think the Trail series is, probably the most stylistically similar of anybody who's not Tetsu Takahashi working to his style, like long cutscenes, lots of cutscenes. They're un- unbearably boring. <laughs> I think most of the time <laughs> they have nothing to say, but they just definitely did imitate that style and have hundreds of thousands of words in their script. And it's like, if you like that kind of game, then there is someone making them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, I think Xenogears did break a little ground that way. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Um, Let's see, this one's from the Capitaine. 
The whole hidden true subconscious self thing, discussed near the end of the episode, comes across as another FF7 parallel that may have been the product of overlapping ideas, especially given that Xenogear started its development um, as FF7 or as a proposed FF7. The key difference uh, is phase or the key difference is that Phase is suppressed, whereas Cloud's true persona is actively trying to push himself to open his eyes and remember things uh, right through the, the voice in his head. I guess that's not as much a question as it is just a um, an interesting uh, parallel, maybe to discuss a little yeah. bit. I mean, Kato um, worked on both games, right? And Kato yes, wrote he did. that. Kato wrote the live stream scene, so it's like I believe he did. Yeah. So it's all right there. I mean, man, he's an artist doing his thing, and I, he did a great job. That's that's his real strength right there. It's like getting just digging into just a meaty sandwich of trauma. That's like yeah. that's the good Kato stuff right there. Yeah, and it's not even it's not even just Kato. I believe that um, Tetsuya Nomura very early on in Xenogear's development was assigned to that project, um, and so would have been really closely involved with it. But then got moved over to be the uh, you know, the character artist, but also working on the story with uh, Sakaguchi on Final Fantasy VII. And so I'm sure a lot of things got carried over between Tetsuya Nomura uh, initially working here and then coming to here, but on Kato working between the two as well. So, yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of parallels between Final Fantasy VII and Xenogears. Um, I believe in, if it's not episode 20, then it was probably episode 19. Case and I talked about um, a little bit about Theosis, right? And the idea of like becoming one with God and the way that that's done in Xenogears versus the way it's done with like Genova and the reunion theory in Final Fantasy VII. There's a lot of little parallels between the two games um, that were worked on simultaneously side by side and had developers crossing over between them. So yeah. Yeah, Writers steal things all the time. I'm a professional writer. I steal things like good ideas from other people all just constantly. Uh, Art is have you fast. seen? Have you seen the? Uh, it was a really popular little like um, indie documentary web series, uh, probably about ten years ago, called uh, "Everything Is a Remix." No, I haven't. Oh, it's wonderful! I'll send it to you. Everybody should okay. watch it. it okay. He he points at that. He points at just. I mean, everybody knows this to a certain extent, right? Like, artists are constantly borrowing, stealing from each other all the time. But the extent to which it's happening is really mind-blowing. <laughs> it's just, like, literally all the time. So you kind of expect it. Um, I'm sure you're already planning this, but would love if you quickly touched on Perfect Works and what it added to your experience and understanding. I recall Mike saying that's uh, what got him thinking deeper about the game's narrative, and I'm hoping the discussion will give me motivation to finally dive into it as well. Um... I know Jeffrey. there's, it, it is, it's, I, I try, like, in preparation for when we sat down together last week with uh, the retrograde amnesia guys, I read through it before then, and I got through maybe the first half, and I started to just say, don't care, don't care, don't care, I was just like flipping through the pages, like, do not care about this, because it really goes into a lot of things that are, at least for me, just like, superfluous world building stuff like what is the governmental structure of like Kislev and Ave and like the dynastic like politics of episode four like who's yeah. trying to kill who like people trying to kill Sophia and like emperors we never even hear of and it's like yeah like that, I guess they wanted to make that game or something um you know so 
That would have yeah, been relevant then. Because that, that's kind of <laughs> where one relevant piece that is cool to read about comes in, and that is that Krellian was sent to assassinate Sophia. Um, yeah. But he was sent by the, I can't remember, the emperor or the king of Nimrod or something like that. Right, which never even makes it onto the screen at all in Xenogears. Never, never, right. So there's a lot of that kind of thing, I feel, in the back half of Xenogears Perfect Works. There's a whole section at the end that's just about the science, like all the science of Xenogears, <laughs> and just explaining it. Um, it's the it's the first half of the book to me it's a lot of the timeline stuff that they explain that to me really adds uh to xenogears or to an understanding of xenogears just trying to like put make sense of like how we got from here to here and all the things that happened between it just adding anecdotes that like okay like that solidifies what's going on there i get the idea now um so yeah i would for sure recommend reading like the first the first half of Xenogears Perfect Works if if you're looking to just like if you really loved Xenogears playing it and you just wanted to like keep exploring it and learn more about it. I do know that there are some people in my comments section who believe that Xenogears uh, Perfect Works either retcons the story in ways that um, they don't necessarily agree with or, or that is conflicting with the text in the game or that um, it's not really necessary like I, I don't know if I would agree with that because it's not like something um, like the Ultimania guides for Final Fantasy, which were written like years after the game was released and, and some of the original creators were not necessarily involved in putting together those guidebooks. I'm not saying that they didn't have any say, but like some of them had already left Square, I think, by the time <laughs> that those, those Ultimania guidebooks were coming out. So there might be like conflicts between the Ultimania and the original uh, text of the Final Fantasy games that I might go, eh, I don't know if that was the intention. But if I'm not mistaken, Tetsuya Takahashi was pretty involved in the Perfect Works guidebook, was he not? Yeah, I mean, Perfect Works looks to me like they took their production notes and cobbled them together at the end. Like, they were like, here's our gigantic plan that we've made since we got married in, like, 1991 or whatever it was. And, you know, we've spent... Like it's just it's kind of cute to imagine them just going home and working on Xenogears at night, right? Like yeah. that, which that's just adorable. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, they they just have all these production notes, and they and, and like when they tell stories about like when um, Sakaguchi walked in, or I don't remember if it was Sakaguchi, but a producer walked in after Xenogears got approved, walked into Takahashi's office and saw him with like all these Gundams on his desk, and he was like, yeah. "Wow, this guy's been preparing for this for a long time." And mm -hmm. yeah, Takahashi is nothing if not a planner. Um, so I think they just cobbled together their production notes and, and edited it a little bit. Because, like, if you look at, like, especially, like, the um, Zaboyam era timeline stuff, like, there's a lot of repeats. So, like, there's a lot of different, like, timelines. They have, like, they probably each other, like, a bunch of Post-it notes. They have, like, three different ver versions of the same timeline to, like, make them harmonious. Um, and then probably um, Soryasaga wrote one timeline and, and Takahashi wrote the other timeline. And they tried, and then they just matched them up to make sure they still work together. And then you see both of them in perfect works. So it's like gets really repetitive and yeah. adds a lot of detail that was important for them. Like, I understand why adding all the detail about the Zaboyam era and Faye, uh, Kim and Ellie's life made that one scene in the flashback in Zaboyam to the New Year's celebration made that scene possible and made the whole relationship and everything in the dynamics possible. And it was beautiful. Um, but that's like the the, the, the ducks, uh, the, the legs of a swan paddling under the water. You just see the graceful swan on the surface. You don't see the legs paddling like mad. Yeah, um, and yeah. you don't need to. 
right? You just right. need to see the beautiful slot. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So I'm glad they did it. I'm glad I saw it as a, as a person who makes games. Like I can see their process. I'm like, oh, I should do this for my games. And I do. Um, yeah. I always have. So I was like, okay, so this, this is how they make games. I will make games that way too. And yeah. it's really helpful as a person who produces games. But as a person who's trying to understand Xenogears just as a work of art, who you don't want to make one, um, it's, I don't think it's super helpful all the way, but it's a good browse. It's free. It's a free PDF. It's, it's, it's a yeah. good browse. I, and I think uh, just the last thing I'll say on this, um, just as an example, like the only thing that I know of or that I've really looked at that's like a really, it's not even really a big deal though, but that is a contradiction between what the text in the game says and what Perfect Work says is, is regarding um, the Zohar itself, that the Zohar was created according to the wave existence in the game's text but it was discovered and was like from the birth of the universe kind of a thing, right? right. The, 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 they call it what? The MAM? MAM, like, ma Magnetically Anonymous Matter. Yeah, like there's a, it's like an element that is not like in the earth. So it came right. from outside of earth and it's, they, they carbon dated or whatever back to like the genesis of the universe or something like that. So <clears throat> it, it's very much more now, inspired by 2001 a space odyssey yeah according to the perfect works version of describing what it is so there are some things like that but the way that i look at that is not so much as it uh, an oversight or contradiction as much as it is takahashi wanting to continue working on the story post the game's release and saying like oh i like this idea better or something like that and t according to some people i've talked to uh, you know on my discord they may like the version in the text better than in the perfect works, right? And, and you know, maybe you can draw a parallel there with um, some of the changes made by George Lucas to the Star Wars trilogy as he oh made boy. the prequel trilogy <laughs> later and saying, like, oh, it was better before he started, like, explaining it all, right? Or trying yeah. to, like, add to it or whatever, whether it's midichlorians and the Force or whatever it might be. Uh, Anakin being a virgin birth, like things like that, that some people were like, ah, come on, like this ruins the mystique of Darth Vader. So maybe people would look at some of the things in Perfect Works like that. I personally don't. I think that for the most part, it enhances um, my reading of Xenogears and helps a lot. Um, and I don't see any clear contradictions in it that to me are important enough to what I value in the story, which is figuring out its core themes, right? Um, some of like the world building details or is Ellie really the daughter of Medina or not, or it was the Zohar discovered or created are not important to me. <laughs> What's important to me is the becoming whole thematic core of Xenogears. And, and I think that uh, understanding the plot and how it builds towards that is helpful. One little thing I want to say about what you said is um, whether Zohar was created or, or, or discovered. Um, of course it could be both. It could, Create the discover and then add machines to it. They call it the right. Zohar modifier. Build not on top of yeah. Build on top. Yeah, so of they it to create a, new a machine. Engine. Yeah, they they did build around it, right? So they're not you're not you don't like with atom bomb. You're not building uranium. Um, yeah, sure. But um, I I think probably what happened too is because I think they a lot of what's in perfect works was from before they made the game to help them make the game. Um, a lot of times when I'm writing scenes, like my a client and I will agree to an outline. And I'll send him an outline. I'll get it back with notes. And then we'll I'll start writing a scene based on that. And while I'm writing the scene, I get a new idea, which this always happens. You should always outline, but you always will get new ideas in scenes. And then I'll send back the scene to the client and they'll be like, where does this come from? This is not in the outline. I'm like, yes. All right. You know, it's just a small little thing, but I thought it also makes this other thing make sense. And most of the time clients will ratify that. And they'll be like, yeah, actually that does make sense. So like 
when you're whenever you're writing, working from an outline is is definitely the way to go for me. Um, you know, the um, what's his face, uh, 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 Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Uh, Jay, um, George, George Martin. Yeah. George R. R. Martin. He says he never uses any outlines, and and that's why his series is Talks has about completely the, come the, off the rails. What does he call it? The gardener versus the the pants. Uh, like, yeah, and it's like the two approaches. Either you work from yeah. outlines, or you you just free flow the story. Yeah, there's two he, approaches. He, to he, it. he said now he's bored. He's bored with his story because he didn't outline. I don't know. Anyway, he's he, <laughs> you're going to come. I I personally believe you're going to come off the rails if you don't outline. But Takahashi did, and but I also think that when he was writing the Zohar scene. You know, he and, and, and Saga and, and Kato were probably all working on it. And they probably came up with some ideas that explained it in a way that's more thematic. And they were like, they just stuck with that for the for the game. And even though it doesn't yeah. exactly match the outline, but that, that's that's just a normal part of writing scenes for any any medium, any 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 group project. You just you're going to discover things in the process of writing. Yeah, exactly. OK, um, I think we'll just do one more. So um, and we've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but maybe there's a further dimension we can find in this particular way of phrasing it. So this is from Tom Schneider. He says, I know this will be buried, but I wanted to ask a question for the next cast. Hopefully it can be seen. But uh, in the new world of remixes and remakes and remasters, I was always curious about fans of Xenogears and how they felt about a modernization and a finishing of Disc 2. Maybe we did touch on this one in the last time we talked about it. I'm trying to remember if we already did this one. If we did, I'll cut this. Um, I.e. a jump to the PS4-ish graphics and they actually let you play Disc 2. I know the team is probably scattered and it's a pipe dream that will never never happen, but I always felt this was a game that deserved a second go, especially on modern consoles. Uh, with all its cinematic majesty, even on PSX. Um, it holding up the sub is still awesome in late 2021, he said. Yes, it is. I, yeah, I want to have great, a poster of that one day. Great like, I, just, I want to commission an artist to just... It'll be on my wall. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, yeah. I, I I have a feeling we actually answered we this did, question. I, we did touch on that briefly, because Eric said, I believe it was Eric, um, said that, you know, like, Xenogears is long enough. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you, so you playing disc two would be like it might get too long. Um, uh, like, and it's just another dungeon might be like, ah, but there are certain things that if they remade it, it's like translation, speed of text, yes, um, yes. editing, clean up. Like whoever translated, like I'm here, just call me. I will help you edit because you know not translating is one thing. Retranslating that's very important, and I could never do it. My Japanese is conversational at best. <laughs> um, but editing it because like you need to edit out that Izuchi by Fei like. You can show yes. that Faye's an attentive listener in an English way. Sure. That's that's the thing. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that could be done to Xenogears to make it a new version that's more playable in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, and I think this was actually brought up by Greg Troyan in the comments of one of the, the podcasts. But what happens in Disc 2, like, is a lot of, like, really dark, depressing stuff one after another, right? And so, like, in the way that it's delivered as it is, as they're kind of rushing through it, it's, it's paced in a way that you, you sort of kind of, you're, you're in that, but then like you're coming out of it and moving on to the next thing. But it's like, if you were playing it at the same pace as something like disc one, there would probably have to be more added to just like kind of break up that tension. And the, it's just like the tension would just like mount, mount, mount and get worse and worse and worse. And you're just stuck in this depressing dark place for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And that might not actually be, as enjoyable as some people think it would be. It might kind of drag and start to feel like, oh my gosh, like when are we going to like move on to even intuitively to a, to a different beat just to kind of break this yeah. up a little bit. 
Um, and so I think that there's a, a good point in that. And so if it were re-released, like you're saying, I think all I would really want is like a cleaning up of the English uh, localization um, and really not much else. I guess if they wanted to, um, you know, create like new 3D environments that, that are maybe something more along the lines of Octopath Traveler. Yeah, in just terms like of some, their, shaders, like, some shader yeah. improvement, um, probably some anti-aliasing improvement, things like yeah. that that could, could look pretty nice. Yeah, um, like those types of things I would welcome. Speed up. Yes. Yeah. Like a speed up function or, or even yeah, like some of the things... Some of the things they have in uh, the FF um, re-releases where they have, like, you can turn the random encounters off. Right, exactly. Um, There's a lot of people who would play Xenogears like, ah, oh, forget this. I'm just going to give myself five levels and, and kill these monsters. Like, I, <laughs> I I don't want to fight this guy. I'm out of fuel. Yeah, exactly. I, those types of things I would like to see, but not necessarily, like, a fully fleshing out of the Disc 2 content. Um, especially not without the involvement of Tetsuya Takahashi. And I think I said this before too, but if he's not involved in it, all I would want Square to do is just re-release the game with some of those enhancements we're talking about. But if he was involved, maybe I'd be more open to fleshing out certain scenarios, like maybe where Emeralda and Ellie um, uh, go down into, what's the name of the base? Where The Mass Driver. Yeah, the Mass Driver. Like make that an actual dungeon or something. Um you know, maybe some things like that would be cool, but not too much. Or like um, I, when the when the Eldridge rises, they talk about how like they fly, they have to fly and fight off this giant wave of demonic wells that are all flying yeah. around and howling. Yeah, like that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be dope to play. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh man, that has an age one bit. Yeah, so there'd be there'd be a couple of places where I think if he was there, I'd be cool with them expanding on. But um, I'm I, like I said, I'm not totally like turned off by the way disc two is presented as is like this time playing through it i was like it's kind of artsy it's kind of cool like yeah sure they were they're rushing through things but yeah i think as an know, adult it's easier it. you just can yeah. you're like oh, okay thank god they're just gonna just give it to me straight <laughs> just put it right in the vein um <laughs> yeah. like, th- like i've had enough i think then like then krellian's lab was a great dungeon but i can't handle five more of those yeah it works as far as i'm concerned so um okay i think that's gonna be it but if there's anything else that anyone wants to leave off on before we, uh, before we go. There, there was one thing. I got a little bit of grief for my Eldridge comparison saying that it was a phallic symbol. Oh, right. In the comments. After having played the game, it is definitely a phallic symbol. <laughs> and, not, and there was an, another, another element that I didn't even realize before because I didn't know. But now that I've played the game, the that... Eldridge seeded, seeded the earth yep. with oh. the materials of life and the creation and all of that stuff yep. that, that the woman then used to create. Okay, anyways, sorry guys if you disagree with me there, but... Um, uh, you're wrong. It's what, <laughs> it's what it is. And I, don't, I might feel weird, might make you feel like a teenager or whatever, but it's like this is totally Freudian and it's, it's, not, it's not that weird. It's not that weird. It's not that weird. But it's, it's clearly that is what the Eldridge is. The Eldridge is definitely that space dick <laughs> see now now people are gonna be upset thanks pat if you need more of this just go and check out retrograde amnesia if you need yes. more of the, these kind of jokes <laughs> uh, uh, i listened to your all's complete run all this week at work and it is a, a wonderful experience to uh hear case and discover the game while mike <laughs> did his best to just hold back i know uh, takes I know. a lot of discipline not to just grin and look him in the eye and go yeah yeah uh, <laughs> 
but it was a pleasure to listen to. And uh, sitting here doing this, I occasionally forget that I can talk during it. So it's, it's <laughs> thank you for making this. Oh, thank you guys. You guys are the ones who practically inspired us to change our whole freaking format over to this. Because <laughs> I heard that and it was like a revelation to me. It was like, what the freak are we not doing something <laughs> like this for? This is way better than our podcast. <laughs> better to talk about the news, whatever happened that day. <laughs> yeah. Anything else uh, you guys want to say before signing off? About a thousand uh, things, but uh, yeah. I have to really condense it. Uh, uh, just a really brief summary. Um, all the things we talked about, the comparison between Gnosticism and, and, and quantum mechanics, um, the game also makes that same comparison between Freud and Kabbalah, mm. um, which are two, you know, two uh, Jewish lines of thought. I mean, Freud, even in his career, Freud was like, yeah, I think I went pretty Jewish with this. Because you know he's just reflecting about it, which he wasn't ashamed of. Um, but right. you know, like he just he just realized that the the the, the Jewish traditions had a lot of uh, influence on his uh, psychotherapy, and yeah. uh, so there's a lot of overlap between that and Kabbalah, um, which is where the Zohar comes from. And uh, good luck reading the Zohar. I, I recommend it, but uh, bring a guide because it's uh, if you want to talk about some, something really dense and hard to understand. Boy, hmm. boy, oh boy. But that's also worth worth pursuing. Absolutely. You know, um, I, as I was getting into a lot of this stuff, Google picked up all my search terms. And as I was just reading about more about Jung and specifically the Path of Sephiroth, the Zohar, all that stuff, this YouTube channel called Esoterica kept popping up. And I often would watch those videos. It's a good introduction to some of this stuff if you don't want to read the Zohar directly, yeah. <laughs> which I don't think, I don't know. It's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, but but you know, if you need an intro to ease you into it before you do it, the cha YouTube channel Esoterica talks a lot about Kabbalah and all of that kind of stuff, Jewish mysticism and things like that, um, and in a very good introductory kind of way, mm. so just to get you started. Yeah, no, about covers as much as we can without having to have another 24 episodes. Yep, I think so. <laughs> I think Gosh, we, we really didn't even scratch. Well, we scratched the surface. We didn't get into the mantle. Of what the game really has to offer, even all through all twenty-one episodes, all, the whole everything. All I can say is, this was incredibly intimidating to do, yes. and the entire time I was terrified that I was not going to be able to do the game justice. To all of it. And I don't think that I did, but. Yeah. Uh, all that being said, um, it's been a privilege to play the game again. Uh, I feel like every time that I play, like I said, I'm going to learn something different, something new, and that's kind of the way it's designed to be. It's designed yeah. to be played multiple times. So, after having played this, if this was your first playthrough, play it again. Just do yourself a favor and just play the game again. And now the defense under you that. will really see like what I thought was, oh wow, this is on the nose setup that you totally missed yeah. the first time. <laughs> And uh, it, it really comes together on that second or third or fourth or fifth or tenth or twentieth playthrough <laughs> in a way that it did not in the first. So I, I invite everyone to play the game again and then maybe watch our series again. All right, everybody. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you again next week with our next game, which Take will care. probably be Mass Effect, but maybe not. Peace out. <laughs> Later. <laughs> <laughs>